Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. In the past week, we've heard of conservatives in Oregon wanting to secede and join the more conservative state of Idaho. After Democrats last year gained control of the Virginia State House, red state Virginians along the West Virginia border have begun to seriously consider seceding from Virginia and joining West Virginia. We got Bernie bros versus Antifa, Bernie supporters against Hillary supporters still. There's talk of a civil war inside the Democratic Party. Four years ago, there was a civil war inside the Republican Party. We got the 99% versus the 1%, pro-life versus pro-choice, pro-gun versus gun control advocates. We have never been so close to another civil war. So say the hundreds of media personalities whose job it is to keep us on the edge of our seats, terrified, glued to the television, convinced that the battle of Fort Sumter is just moments away. For more on this, we're joined by Dr. Gary W. Gallagher, who is the John L. Now Professor in the History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. He's one of our nation's leading experts on the Civil War and... His latest piece in the conversation is entitled, Think the U.S. is More Polarized Than Ever? You Don't Know History. Thank you, Professor Gary W. Gallagher, for joining us. I'm happy to join you. Your introduction made me want to make sure that my documents are in order in case I want to leave the country on a very quick basis. I think my passport's okay, but I'm going to check now. You uh, are a third-generation Californian. That's a, I am indeed, yes. Third-generation. I was born in Glendale, California. And I have left California. I raised my family and was married in California. I always felt I would be safe from the vicissitudes of American history in California. <laughs> do, do, you, do you feel that you're as vulnerable on the the left coast as the rest of us are? I I was born in California, but have had a steady migration eastward and have lived in the east for most of my adult life. I, I think we're in about the same situation wherever we are. You mentioned in your catalog at the beginning the different groups who talk about secession. That I mean, Texas talked about it after Obama was elected, and California talked about it after Trump was elected. There's a lot of talk about secession. Yeah, and uh, you're, you're an expert on the Civil War, and there's a, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I guess right now we're looking at Donald Trump, and he suggests that our system may not be able to sustain these these authoritarian impulses, can our system withstand the kind of polarization we're seeing right now? Well, I, I actually think that it can, and I think that it has withstood far greater polarization in the past, and I'm not sure 
that of all the people who have a firm grasp on the contours of United States history, that, that Trump would be in the front rank of those. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not sure he has the best sense of whether or not we can sustain our republic in the face of what's going on. But but my serious answer to that is that we, I, we've seen far worse than this, been far more divided than this, and yet here we are. And I have every confidence that that the republic is going to emerge from this current current period uh, intact. Right. Might be changed. It often changes coming through crises, but I think that it will be intact. You are one of our nation's leading experts on the Civil War. One of your books is The Union War, published by Harvard University Press. It won the Laney Prize. Uh, uh, it was a New York Times book review editor's choice, and you wrote another book with another professor called The War. Who was who did you write that with? I, I wrote the the second one you mentioned is a it's an overview of the Civil War era that I wrote with Joan Waugh, who teaches at UCLA, and it it is called the American the title is the American War, and it's a it's a we wanted to write a manageable that is only about three hundred page treatment of the Civil War era, the the antecedents of the war, the war itself. Reconstruction, and but we also dealt with with memory and how the how different parts of the country remembered the Civil War differently to suit their own needs. When when Abraham Lincoln was elected, were we on the verge of a civil war? Did we know it was coming, and did we elect him because we thought he was the consensus candidate who could keep us from a civil war? So that's a complicated multi-part question. Uh, I don't, no one knew there would be a war if Lincoln was elected and it wasn't even certain that there would be a war after Lincoln was elected. It was that war came in the end because of various decisions that were made along the way. Lincoln certainly would not have been seen as a consensus candidate by anyone south of the Ohio or Potomac rivers. Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in 10 states, in 10 of the slaveholding states. So he would have been considered a very polarizing figure by white Southerners and and also by uh, white Democrats who made up about 45% of the electorate in the free states. They, they saw him as a polarizing. The Republican Party was a sectional party and considered a radical party by Northern Democrats and especially by Southern Democrats. When did they fire? When did the Confederates fire on Fort Sumter? Was that in response to the election of Abraham Lincoln? No, that's... Many months later, well, I guess you could say it's in Lincoln had to be elected before it was fired upon. Uh, there were shots fired before Lincoln became president when James Buchanan was still president, kind of hiding under his desk, hoping nothing would happen till he could get out of Dodge. <laughs> uh, they, they fired at a Union vessel in January before there was a Confederacy when it was South Carolina was out of the Union, but the the famous firing on Sumter came in mid-April 1861, which was not quite six weeks after Lincoln had been inaugurated. The inauguration used to be in the beginning of March, not in January. When uh, Donald Trump assassinated General Soleimani in Iraq, the Iranians responded by attacking our base uh, in, in Iraq, and it seems to have died down. Because that could have been, yeah. remember, the main. 
Was sure. was Fort Sumter could? Is that the reason? Was that the excuse for for beginning the, <laughs> the Civil the, the War? The real key. Fort Sumter is very important, but the real key isn't the firing on Sumter. They had fired on a Union vessel back in January, after all, and mm-hmm. nothing happened. The key is when Lincoln sent out a call for 75,000 volunteers to suppress the rebellion. Uh, at the time of Fort Sumter, there were only uh, seven states out of the Union. There was a seven-state confederacy in existence, and Lincoln's call for volunteers triggered the secession of four other states, including three really important ones, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Arkansas also went out, but three important ones did. And that took a huge amount of the eventual Confederate manpower pool, uh, the industrial base and so forth, such as it was in the Confederacy. That was a, a tremendous upping of the ante when those four states of the Upper South went out. But it was the call for volunteers which would have meant that these states would have to take an active role in forcing the seven slaveholding states that were already out of the Union back in. They, what, they said they would not do that. When did the, the seven states form the Confederacy? Was it, it was before Lincoln was it, t- took the oath yeah, of office? There was already another, there was already another nation by the time Lincoln was inaugurated. Uh, South Carolina seceded on December 20th. The election was early November, at, then as now. And then over the next, between December 20 and February 1st, all of the Deep South went out, the seven states of the Deep South. Just started Texas and go over Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. That's the original Confederacy. And they had a nation in place uh, by March. So before Lincoln was elected, there was no Confederacy? No. Before Lincoln was elected, there were people who were really, they had reached a point where they expected the worst from one another. And in that regard, it is like we are now, uh, because many people on, on each side just look at the other and expect the worst. That was true by the autumn of 1860 when the elections were coming, coming. And you'd also, but you, but you had had real violence before then. You'd had a kind of low level guerrilla war in Kansas territory between pro-slavery and anti-slavery people. You had had John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry with Brown's goal being to incite a massive slave insurrection across the slaveholding states. There's been very volatile uh, moments that came before people went and cast ballots in November of 1860. In the conversation in your piece, think the U.S. is more polarized than ever, you don't know history, you write of a caning that took place, I believe, in the House of Representatives or the Senate. No, it was actually on the floor of the Senate. And I, I just used a few examples of how what we consider polarization now is nothing like now. We're, we're used to seeing Democrats and Republicans lob stink bombs at one another uh, in, in of words. But I just mentioned the incident in 1856 when a, a member of the House of Representatives from South Carolina named Preston Brooks walked over to the Senate chamber and beat Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts into bloody insensibility on the floor of the Senate because Sumner had given a speech against slaveholders in Kansas and it said some things about one of Brooks's relatives. So, I mean, real violence, bloody, brutal violence on the floor of the Senate. So and when, nothing happened, incidentally. I'm sorry? 
nothing happened to the the guy who beat Sumner up. But Sumner, did he die eventually from those? No, Oops. no, he was he was absent from the Senate for three years. He went abroad for a while to help him to to recover. He came back and he was a very prominent uh, senator through the Civil War and through Reconstruction. He was one of the most prominent of the radical Republicans, of the radical wing of the Republican Party. Lincoln... Way out in front on things like civil rights and so forth. Lincoln didn't run as an abolitionist, did he? No, no, no. In fact, the, the he, he never would have, would have gotten the, even the Republican nomination as an abolitionist. Abolitionists made up a very small percentage of the of even the white north, maybe 3%. We can't put a, a definite percentage, but very, very small, and were considered radicals and and a threat to the stability of the union by by millions of people. The Republican platform in 1860 specifically said it would not do anything to get rid of slavery where it already existed, but it wanted to keep slavery, the Republican platform said, out of the federal territories. And that was that was too much for the slaveholding South. That was the issue. That was the real issue. It's not a question of are you an abolitionist or not. It's a question of do you support or oppose the extension of slavery into the federal territories. Interesting. Interesting. So th- at, at the time of Lincoln's election, the North, their policy was contain slavery to where it is. Don't get rid of it. Just don't let it spread. And the, the South decided to secede because they felt once it's prevented from spreading, eventually, kind of like Obamacare, they'll, you know, start destroying it. No, they they believed that in the long term it would it would disappear. And the way to make certain that that happened would be to prevent it from expanding. But they also didn't have the power. I mean, slavery under the Constitution is, is what they call domestic issue, which means the states control. The federal government could only get rid of slavery in two places by federal action. It could do it in the territories, and it could do it in the District of Columbia. Congress could not pass a law saying there's no more slavery in Kentucky or no more. They they didn't have that power. In the Constitution, didn't they put a date on an end to the slave trade? Yes, 188. They let it go for 20 years. But that's in the that's in the Constitution. That was one of the three great compromises on slavery that allowed us to get a Constitution. The, The other two, one of the other two was the three-fifths clause, that each slave would count for three-fifths of a person in terms of taxation and representation in Congress, which meant every white voter's vote counted for more mm-hmm. in the in the South than a white voter in a non-slave-holding state. And the other one was a fugitive slave. Uh, the Constitution said that fugitive slaves would be returned to their owners. Those were the three compromises in the Constitution. On slavery. What was the polarization like in the Confederacy? I would assume Jefferson Davis ran. For, did he ever run for reelection? Was he challenged? Was he, it- he did run for. He was there. There was a provisional government for the Confederacy that went for a year, and then they had their one set of elections that included the president on the ballot in the spring of 1862, and Davis was elected. They limited the president to one six-year term in the Confederate Constitution, so he would have been the longest-serving Confederate president in history because he had the one year as provisional president and then had his one 
one term uh, when he was elected in 1862. But there were tremendous divisions in the Confederacy, too. A lot of there were unionists in the Confederacy who didn't want to secede, not because they were anti-slavery, but because their argument was, look, the Constitution has protected slavery thus far, and we don't know what's going to happen if you go out of the nation. It just makes it more problematical. Right. What kind of government did uh, Jefferson Davis run as president of the Confederacy? So they had elections. A government that looks almost exactly like the they, the way they wrote their they they put together their constitution and nation in in a month. And the way they did it is they took the U.S. Constitution and then got some blank sheets of paper, copied it pretty much word for word, but made the changes that they 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 used the word slavery. They explicitly protect slavery. It, the, the parts of the old Constitution they didn't like are gone. But the Bill of for Rights, for example, did they alter the Bill of Rights in any way? They Especially the Tenth Amendment. Them. What was their? I mean, I would think their Tenth <laughs> Amendment would be their First Amendment. That's all about states' rights. Did they reverse the order? It's it's really interesting. They one they made a significant change in the preamble. Uh, Lincoln would have said, "Look, when when someone from the South said the states created the government, they're older than the government, therefore their rights are important." Lincoln would have said, "No." The people, the preamble of the Constitution doesn't say we the state. It says we the people. The right. power derives from the people. When he talked at Gettysburg of the people, by the people, for the people, which for some demented reason Hollywood also always renders with the prepositions being emphasized of people. By. <laughs> Lincoln would have said the point isn't the prepositions. The point is the people. He would have said of the people, by the people. The Confederates did in their uh, preamble of their Constitution, they inserted states there to make sure that everybody knew. But then, I, you know what, it, uh, this is, you stop me whenever you want to stop me. There's history so full of ironies. One of the great ironies of the Civil War is that by far the most powerful central government in United States history until deep into the 20th century was the Confederate government of Jefferson Davis. Wow. It did things just that wow. were enormously intrusive into citizens' lives. Wow. Way more than the Lincoln government did, and Lincoln did plenty. Uh, when you Was that because they were at war? Was that the justification? And yeah. since we're talking about polarization, yeah, what, was the, what was the pushback? Were there... The pushback was, hey, I thought we were a state rights society. Wow. <laughs> and look what you're doing. Wow. But, and, and I'll give you just a couple of examples. The United States government had never forced people into uniform, even in a war. It would ask people, but it wouldn't force them. The Confederacy was the first, and it did it a year before the United States did. It passed a national conscription law which said every military-age male was subject to be conscripted into the Army for three years. No, it, that was considered a profound abridgment of individual rights and liberties hmm. in the mid-19th century. Tremendous pushback against that. In, in, both in the Confederacy in 1862 when it passed, and then in the United States when it passed the next year, the, 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 the famous or infamous draft riots in New York City were in response to the United States version of conscription. Began as draft riots, turned into uh, anti-black uh, people riots in, right. in New York. But, right. it's, but the governments became much more intrusive, but the Confederate government far more so than the United States government. Right. One of the uh, ways I 
fall asleep at night. My bedtime story is that we can't have another civil war in this country based on pro-life versus pro-choice or Trump versus whatever, because at Thanksgiving, you know, we're some people are pro-gun, some people are you know, pro-life that we're, it's such a, it's such a, an, an agglomeration of ideology spread out across the land. How are you going to fight a civil war? Where are the, where are the battle lines? New York right. City, New York, New York City. Did New York City think about joining the Confederacy at one time? No, but what it thought about doing it, it even, they had a mayor. Uh, uh, a, a really colorful fellow <laughs> named Fernando Wood, who suggested that New York City become an, a, a kind of free city, an independent city, without belonging to any nation, and it would just deal with everybody and be a great economic colossus going forward and trading colossus, and let's just sort of declare ourselves, let's be Zurich uh, as we go forward. That that obviously didn't work out, but there was tremendous opposition to the war in, in New York. New York was a democratic state, a lot of anti-draft sentiment, huge anti-emancipation sentiment in both in New York City and in New York State. Had a democratic governor who was very much against Lincoln. I mean, New York sent more troops into the United States Army during the war than any other state, but there was tremendous opposition to the war in New York as well. Right, because we always think of the Cooper Union speech that Lincoln gave as it's his, great speech. Yes, his coronation, uh, and that the New I York mean, Lincoln had a speech when the Republican Party claimed that it had no uh, intention of getting rid of getting rid of slavery. Slaveholders would have said, "You know what? You're a damned liar." Because in 1858, you said a na- the nation can't exist in the long term, half slave and half free. It's going to be all one or all the other. And we know which one you want it to be. We we know you, Lincoln, and William Henry Seward, your Secretary of State, who also gave a speech along the same lines. You both want it not to have slaves. So just quit lying about mm-hmm. this. It, right. It's a big gamble. It's, 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 it's the biggest failed gamble, I think, in U.S. history. These slaveholders gambled that secession would protect slavery in the long term, and instead it ended it in four years. It would have lasted for decades, sadly, I think, but the war brought its end. And so it's a gamble that absolutely backfired on them. They they just backfired completely. Let's transpose the current situation. May may I just... Sure, please. Let me come back to one thread, and that was your thread about being able to go to sleep at night because you think there isn't any issue, not abortion, not not any issue now, health care, anything else, that could lead us to start shooting each other. And I think you are absolutely right. What is missing now is an issue that is so profoundly divisive as the institution of slavery and all the things, all the cluster of sub-issues around it, most especially whether it would be allowed to extend into the territories. There's nothing remotely like that issue now in our in our version of the United States. And how much of a role does geography play in a civil war? Well, it it, it clearly plays a role, but partly the role geography plays in, in our civil war is dictated by where was geography most receptive to the kind of large cash crop plantation agriculture that shaped the early spread of slavery and where slavery would really thrive. 
by the time of the Civil War, slavery was not just a cash crop institution. It had, it was, it had industrial applications. It had all kinds of other applications, but the cotton, tobacco, <clears throat> sugar, and rice culture that really allowed the institution to build, those are, those are southern crops. Right. In the 18th and 19th centuries. So we're not going to fight a war based on people's ideological preferences. It has to be over natural resources. It has to be contained to a specific territory in the United States so we know which side we're on. I mean, it is conceivable that you can be sharing a bedroom with somebody who is a, is polar opposite to you when it comes to politics. So you, you, you need, you need a, I'm sorry. I said, absolutely. That, I mean, it's what I think people often don't understand quite how powerfully the institution of slavery shaped the pre-civil war slaveholding states. I mean, it wasn't just a question of, of the, the, the property and slaves were immensely valuable. The 1860 census tells us that the, that put the value of slaves, just property and slaves at $3 billion. The same census tells us that the value of all manufacturing interests, all railroads in the entire nation put together was $2.2 billion. Really? The wealthiest, the people who called them, controlled the most wealth in the United States were slaveholders. And the two wealthiest states per capita, in terms of white population, were South Carolina, which was the wealthiest, and Mississippi, which was the second wealthiest. Wow. And those were the only two states that had an absolute majority of their population enslaved people. So the the, the gross national product, that's a, a, a conceit of the FDR years. We didn't right. have a GDP during the Civil War, but they were measuring the value of the slaves and slavery, and somehow they arrived at a three billion. Absolutely, they put they put a value on on enslaved people, uh, just as they put about. I mean, it's, it was considered property. Property in slaves were paid at three billion dollars in 1860. The census it has an, an an incredible amount of of information. The the data are fascinating from the 1860 census. Okay, I, 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 this is, this is dangerous territory, but it's history. So they were able to, to trade slaves, human life, the way you would trade gold. They would say, they would look at a man and say he is worth X amount of money. And that's how we arrive at $3 billion. That's how you arrive at $3 billion. That's correct. And do and, we do we have records? And, and, I'm, I'm, it's brutal beyond belief. So, an 18 year old man who was in good physical condition would be worth more than a 45 year old man or an 18 year old woman. I mean, it, it was yes, it was uh, it was just that brutal. And there were slave markets in in a number of places in the United States. Big one in New Orleans. Big one in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, there was a, a vigorous internal slave trade with enslaved people being sold from upper south states, Virginia being the most obvious one, to deeper south states as the cotton culture expanded in the deep south and as the tobacco culture declined in Virginia. 
but but there was more than property at, at risk. The reason I, I, I'm that sorry, all I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I can't wrap my head around this. And I think it's and I know I invited you to come on and talk about polarization. But, you know, uh, I, I you know, if there's the blue book value of a car and somebody can come over and look at your car and pretty much give you an estimate of what you can get for this used car. Were there guys, men in the South, who could walk around, look at your plantation, and assess the value of your property, look at your slaves, add it up? Yes, and there were people who ran slave markets who did that as well, who put, who estimated the value of enslaved people. And yes, there were. Yes, the answer is yes. Wow. I'm sorry to interrupt you because they really do paper over our, our history. Um, well, and it's, it's, but there's much more at play than that. I mean, that, I think on some level, people, they talk about how much property slaveholders are going to lose, but it isn't just that. The other critical factor is the question of social control. White people were afraid of what black people would do. They later pretended that black people were happy, the kind of happy, darky, image that you get from movies like Gone with the Wind and so forth, uh, they knew that wasn't true. They were scared to death. They knew that black people didn't want to be enslaved. That's why they had slave codes. That's why they had slave patrols. That's why they had punishments. In their mind was the, the image of Santa Domingo where the enslaved people rose up, killed a lot of white people, and took over. They were afraid of that, and they were afraid even non-slaveholding white people, which was the very large majority, uh, only about a quarter of, of white families in the slaveholding states owned even one slave. Three right. quarters of them didn't. But they all had a stake in controlling black people. And it, it wasn't as big an issue in, although racism was pervasive, North and South, there weren't enough black people in the North to threaten white people. That, that same census that I mentioned tells us that the free states in 1860 were 98.8% white, 98.8. The, the state of Illinois had less than one half of 1% of its population African-American. The only state that had even 3% was New Jersey. Wow. And so they're, they're, they're white Americans. People are always astonished, people, students and others. They're kind of, they, they think only uh, white Southerners were prejudiced. No, prejudice is pervasive, but white, black people do not constitute a threat. Didn't the so North invent people, segregation? <laughs> I don't know who gets credit for that wonderful thing they both did pretty well with it but i but, think but uh, one of the one of the you I, I should mention that you have several many lectures over at the great courses and you participate in the american uh, history survey yes. and yes. one of the things i remember from that class and i don't think it was your class i think probably patrick allen who did it i would guess he did right. the post the british guy he's british course. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think he was the one who said that when slaveholders traveled with their slaves to the north, they were shocked by how the slaves, they had to be separated from their slaves right. once they got north right. of the Mason-Dixon line. That seg I think, I, I hope I'm getting this right, that 
I think he suggested that segregation really comes from the north, that that's where uh, people were not accustomed to black people in the north. Right. And it exists in the north, but where it's, of course, fundamental to the operation of society is in the is in the south. And, and segregation isn't a pre, I mean, black people and white people, you, you can't separate them from each other in the antebellum south. They live very close to each other, very close proximity. But it's, it, slavery is, and Jim Crow, what Jim Crow is, Jim Crow is the response of Confederates who lost the war and therefore lost the institution of slavery, which is how they controlled black people. Jim Crow is the replacement. Okay, we can't have slavery. Jim Crow gives us the best control over black people. That is, that's the response right. to I, losing the war. Can you spare five more minutes? I, I'm taking up so much of your time. Do you have five more minutes? <laughs> yes, I do have five more okay, minutes. Okay, thank you. Five more minutes, I don't have to write this uh, lecture I'm going to give. <laughs> what is the lecture on? Do you mind? <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, yep, this is funny because that's serendipity, I guess. I'm giving a lecture on what Americans should know about the Civil War. What's the kind of minimum that Americans should know about the Civil War? <laughs> right. And then, because right. they don't know much about it. Right. And there's a reason for We're that. We're not great with our own history. We're really not. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, one of, you know, uh, one thing you have to say about Germany and my son, Spent two years living there after he graduated from college and I wanted uh-huh. him to, I wanted him to move there. I think that they've done a pretty fantastic job dealing with truth and reconciliation and not just, uh, the politics, but actually the horrors of their past. Has America, mm-hmm. has America addressed the horrors of our past the way the Germans have? Well, I think that you can find good treatments a lot of a lot of the hard edges of our past, but I don't think it's but it's not equivalent to what's gone on in Germany. And of course, Germany and Japan have taken the absolute opposite approaches to how to deal with this. J- Japan pre- pretends World War II didn't happen, and Germany has people confront it uh, directly. But we haven't really. I mean, the fact that. I couldn't get my head wrapped around the $3 billion property value yeah. of human life. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we've yep. been trained to believe that it was Hattie McDaniel and Scarlett O'Hara and the slaves loved working on the plantation. That was, that, that was certainly Hollywood's take on it until really until the 1960s. Yes, it absolutely was. That's all over, all over. And, and Hollywood is, is profoundly influential. I mean, Gone with the Wind has had more to do, not so much nowadays, but over the long haul, more to do with how people think about the Civil War than anything any historian has written, you know, multiplied by whatever factor. It's just, it's just, it just resonates more powerfully. I mean, nothing that historians have, uh, had written down to the late 1980s brought Black military service in the Civil War to the fore the way Glory did. And Glory, I, I saw Glory in a theater in New York City right when it came out. It was just out. 
and I happened to be in New York, and I went and watched, and I stood around in the foyer of the theater afterward. It seemed like the audience was pretty evenly divided between black people and white people. And the most common comment I heard from both black and white people coming out as I just sat and listened was I didn't know there were black soldiers in the Civil War. And then, you know, there were, there were 100, 180,000 of them. Isn't that a part of controlling us? Is it the way we learn history? There are powers. Well, that- it, 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 it underscores why it's so important for people to understand the difference between history and memory and to understand that yes, something actually happened, but it's often more important how different people choose to remember what happened than what actually happened because that's what you believe happened. Right. right. And, and 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 I think the the lost cause take on the war, which included this slavery portrayal that we're talking about, was immensely successful in many ways. I mean, it's it's not anymore. I mean, it's in it's it's in retreat in every direction now. But it was amazingly durable, amazingly durable. I, I don't want to get into the whole what we fought the Civil War over with the South, how they rewrite history. That's for another discussion, and I'm sure you find that to be, well, you wouldn't find it to be tired, but that's not why I asked you to come on. You taught. We have to make that another program because that's not something you can do in three minutes. Right, right. Uh, Before you go, and and thank you, before you go, um, right now we hear in the Democratic Party Evolution, not revolution. We just want to elect a, a candidate who will bring us back to before Trump, to bring us back right. to, and right. I happen to believe history moves forward. There's no returning to the past. That's one of the great lessons of uh, all American literature is you can't go back. Uh, it, it, you fail. I think Thomas Wolfe even wrote a book with something like that as the title, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and and the Great Gatsby. I mean, he, the, you know, he was obsessed with repairing the past. He was, and you can't go home again. No, it's pretty hard to rewind. It's pretty hard to rewind. So there is this message of you know a centrist, a consensus candidate who can bring us all together, who can unite us. And was there anything? this country could have done differently. I'm not asking you to do alternative history. Is there anything Lincoln could have done uh, to prevent the Civil War, to prevent the bloodshed? Was there any way to stop this? Well, I think, I mean, there were there were sustained efforts at compromise between Lincoln's election in November and the firing on Fort Sumter. But the problem is that most of the compromises demanded that the issue that be finessed was whether slavery would be allowed into the territories. And the one issue that the Republic, the Republican Party was only, it had only run a candidate in two elections. It won the presidency in its second election, mm-hmm. even though Lincoln only got, he didn't even get 40% of the vote, but he won in the electoral college. The key to their platform was no expansion of slavery into the territories. So they reached a point where the minimum demands on each side were not reconcilable. We demand that you allow slavery in the territories. We're willing to talk about anything except the extension of slavery into the territories. So there you go. Great. By that point, and then the question is, is the United States willing to allow these states? Are there people in the the North who say, 
God Almighty, finally, South Carolina is leaving. Good news. Get out the bottle rockets. I've been waiting for this for years. But no, they weren't willing to do that because, and this is something we really don't have any sense of anymore, there was a conception of union that people held that made them, that they believed the United States was an exceptional society unlike any place else in the Western world because it did two things. It allowed citizens to have a direct voice in their government, which is to say white men can vote. Almost all white men could vote. No place else in the Western world was that even remotely true. And the other one was you had the chance to rise economically. You weren't doomed to be what your father was. There wasn't a powerful class system. And Lincoln was a poster boy for this. And their argument was if the Confederates are able to do this, to break the nation apart just because they don't like who was elected president, then all the work of the founders was for nothing, and this shows that people are not capable of self-government. So we can't allow these slaveholding states to just tear up the country. We've got to keep it together. I mean, that was the bedrock reason that two million men put on uniforms in the United States to prevent this. Fantastic. When Lincoln talked about the last best hope of Earth, That's what he meant. They really believed that small-D democracy might be extinguished if the Confederacy were allowed to be established and flourished. Because in Europe, things were going the wrong way. The revolutions of the 1840s had failed, and unionists said oligarchs and aristocrats and monarchists are getting stronger in Europe, not weaker. They want us to fail, and this would be an exhibition of failure if we allow them to destroy our republic just because they don't like who won the election. Fantastic. Professor Gary W. Gallagher is the John L. Now Professor in the History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. He's one of our nation's leading experts on the Civil War. His latest piece in the conversation is entitled, Think the U.S. is More Polarized Than Ever? You don't know history. He's the author of many, many books, including The Union War, published by Harvard University Press, The War, uh, Becoming Confederates, Paths to a New National Loyalty, and go to the library and get his 48 lectures produced by the teaching company about the Civil War. I don't take any ads. I don't take any corporate underwriting. I don't do paid endorsements. But... I will tell you this, and this is the God's honest truth. I have been a customer of the teaching company for 20 years. I subscribe to their Netflix-style package of lectures on demand. It's called Great Courses Plus, where you can stream hundreds of courses on your TV and your phone. And Professor Gallagher's course on the Civil War contains 48 of the most informative, most entertaining lectures to be found anywhere on any subject, if you enjoyed Ken Burns's documentary on the Civil War, then you will flip over Dr. Gallagher's lectures, <laughs> 48 lectures. Go to the library. It's, I guarantee you they're at your library or buy them through the teaching company. It's a great gift. And I have to say, uh, I've been a little starstruck talking with you. It's an honor to have had you on the show, and I hope I can get you to come back. Oh, I, yeah, I, those are very kind words, and I'd love to come back sometimes. Just let me know, and maybe there's something else we can talk about. Fantastic. Can you stand in line for one quick second? Yes. Please yes. stand in line for one second. Thank you. 
You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor. He's the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He he does a segment called The Debunk Every Week on The Michael Brooks Show. And he is a columnist for Jacobin. And he is leaving for Las Vegas to go knock on doors for Bernie. Also, Alan Minsky, who is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He has written for The Nation magazine. He is the producer of The Nation's podcast, Start Making Sense with John Wiener. Welcome, Ben Burgess and Alan Minsky. Thanks, David. Let's talk about Wednesday's debate that took place in Las Vegas. You're leaving for Las Vegas, Ben Burgess, so you claim, that's what you've told your wife, that you're going, you're going to Vegas to knock on doors or a door. Where are you heading? <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, but I'll I'll go where they tell me to go. But I'm, I'm a little I have to say I'm a little demoralized because you know I really thought Bertie had a good chance, but after um, after Michael Bloomberg knocked it out of the park with that debate performance last night, you know I don't know. Now, Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, we were booking this show yesterday. We were talking about your coming on, and you said something to me about Elizabeth Warren. And tell us what you said about Elizabeth Warren before the debate. You made a prediction. Well, the way I was looking at things at that time was that the media, which is a sort of an establishment echo chamber at this point, uh, was was poised to declare Elizabeth Warren the winner because regardless of how people did on the stage, uh, the person who I felt would create the most barrier and burden to what has been transpiring since Bernie Sanders, uh, they couldn't find a way to not accept that he had won the New Hampshire primary. They couldn't re- re- rework the numbers in a way to keep him from uh, yeah, being declared the, the winner of that. Uh, he has just gone up and up and up in the polls. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elizabeth Warren's been going down and down and down the polls. Well, you know, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, Bloomberg, and Biden, it's pretty clear that they're in sort of a moderate lane and they're competing for votes with each other. Um, the only candidate there who could possibly all Sanders' progress would be Elizabeth Warren. So I said to David yesterday, I am certain that Elizabeth Warren will be declared the winner of the debate. Now, was David, that now, course, is, now she in my eye, she won the debate. I'd like to ask Ben Burgess. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Did she win right, the debate I, I, because there was a gaping hole that she needed to fill that the pundits took advantage of? Or did she actually outperform everybody? No, let me be clear here. I was, of course, predicting um, the very predictable cynicism from the mainstream media. Elizabeth Warren then conspired to uh, make it seem not like a cynical ploy because she, of course, performed spectacularly better than she did in just the last debate, in which she seemed to disappear almost along with Andrew Yang from even being on the stage. Um, ben Burgess, so, philosophy yeah. professor. Ben Burgess on yeah, his way to 
to Nevada to knock on doors for Bernie. Cards on the table, Ben Burgess. Yeah. You're a columnist for Jacobin Magazine. You're a Bernie supporter. Would you vote for Elizabeth Warren? Uh, do you mean would I vote for her if she was a Democratic nominee? Yes. Of course. I would vote for um, I would vote for whoever was the Democratic nominee, unless it's Mike Bloomberg. Okay. And how do you think Elizabeth Warren did during the debate? Did she have the strongest performance? Um, I, I think so. I think that although some of it um, is um, – some of it is what Alan was saying, uh, that uh, part of the reason her performance really blew us all away the way it did is because of the contrast, right? So Bernie Sanders is always going to say the same things, and, uh, and you know, sometimes he's a little higher energy than other times. But, I mean, basically, um, you know, you go to uh, a Leonard Skinner concert, you're going to hear Freebird. You know, you go to a debate with Bernie Sanders in it, you're going to hear – all of the things that he says about you're going to hear free health care instead of free bird. You're going to hear free health care. Exactly. Yeah. Free college tuition. Yeah. And, and free like birds, it. as a matter of fact. That's right. That's right. So, look, I like it all very much, but, you know, it's it's there's a consistency to it. Whereas Elizabeth Warren has been um, really all over the place, uh, really both politically and um, in terms of and rhetorically in terms of her debate performance. Uh, last debate, she was really going after uh, Bernie. Uh, she, you know, it was very obvious that whether or not it was planned, well, whether or not it was planned between them, that in effect she and the moderators were trying together to create this uh, kind of you go girl moment about what the you know women can win, you know, and all this right. stuff, uh, and uh, and. And it was very and it was transparent in a way that didn't do her any favors. This time she was back. Um, she was back to mostly singing some very progressive songs uh, right up until the end when she endorsed a potential superdelegate coup against Bernie. Yeah. Uh, if he came, if he won the most votes, but you know, not enough to win in the first round. Right. Uh, and uh, and she was also doing, you know, and she was also on the attack against. Uh, against Bloomberg in a way that was very satisfying to watch. It's the kind of thing that Warren is good at. It's like watching her grill bankers in the Senate. Right. Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, I think you're breathing into the phone. I, I, I want you to keep breathing, but not into the phone, if, if that's possible. Elizabeth Warren, uh, cards on the table. Progressive Democrats of America, who are they endorsing? We, uh, we are not only endorsing Bernie Sanders, uh, we're the organization that drafted Bernie Sanders to run for president starting in 2013, the first organization to do that. We ran the Run Bernie Run campaign all by our lonesome from about uh, early 2013 or mid-2013 till about the end of 2014, at which point a few organizations joined us. Uh-huh. So, uh, if, if Bernie, if Bernie doesn't yeah. get the nomination, it would go to somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth would- Warren's always had a great relationship with us at PDA. Part of the reason we, unlike all the other organizations, uh, didn't try to draft Elizabeth Warren is our executive director lived in Massachusetts and we started looking for someone else because we believed that she was hesitant to run. She didn't seem to have the fire in the belly and Bernie Sanders would run against Hillary Clinton if that was who the main opponent was going to be. And that's why we started Run Bernie Run. Okay. But, yeah, we, we've always had a great relationship with Warren. 
This is a, a, a splendid opportunity to talk about the word progressive. Earlier mm-hmm. uh, today, we did an interview with the founder of progressivepunch.org, Joshua Goodman, and I asked him about the word progressive and what it means to be progressive because I used to call myself a liberal back when Bill Clinton was president. Then people like me were ashamed to call themselves a liberal. And then we took, you know, I'm a liberal in the tradition of FDR. And then it turns out liberal is actually a word you should be ashamed of because it's been co-opted by Hayek and the Republicans. And it turns out liberal is a bad word and we should be ashamed. And so we started calling ourselves progressives. And Alan Minsky, you are the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Ben Burgess, on the other hand, would you call yourself a progressive, a well, leftist, a socialist, I mean, uh, a Marxist? Yeah, I, what would well, you call yourself? I, I'm fine with any of those labels. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, um, and you know, and and the label I use the most is socialist. But I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not that invested in in fighting about words, you know, I'd, I'd rather fight about um, ideas, about, you know, specific policies. Well, but, you know, as Mayor Bloomberg said during the debate, if you think you're going to be Trump running a socialist... Then you must have read a poll. He, he must have read a poll, or the wrong poll, because, as Bernie pointed <laughs> out, that same poll shows that they don't want a socialist, but they'll vote for Bernie anyway. Tell me yeah. how tell me how Alan, who I don't think is a socialist, Alan, I think you believe in guardrails. Oh, uh, no, no. Actually, you can go right now online uh, and I have an article published today in the Democratic Socialists of America publication Socialist Forum, believe it or not, David uh, Feldman. So it's very opportune that you should ask me this today. It's co-authored with David DeHalde. And, uh, yeah, it's an, I am a, I am a dues paying member of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is probably new for an executive director of PDA, but, uh, the times have changed and I consider myself very much right now currently in my practical day to day politics to be, you know, a democratic socialist, social democrat in, uh, in, in the lineage of Bernie Sanders. So yeah. Would you like three again, homes? I, I also concur. I also concur with what Ben said, uh, that the labels are, you know, not that uh, important at this point. It's really, yeah, I, for, for us, especially I, at PDA, it's about public policy, legislation, uh, the crises in society, uh, how we can make changes. And I think what PDA has come to believe very strongly, and this is why we, you know, there was a condition to us drafting Sanders back in 2013, 14, 15, was that he run as a Democrat, that it's naive not to just accept as, essentially part of the reality of American society, that we currently have a two-party system. We've had a two-party system pretty much since you get past John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in America. There was one time where one party fell out, another one grew up immediately to replace it. Why that is, we're not going to go into the history or try to act like political scientists, even if that's an oxymoronic term. That's a question for Ben. Um, let me let me stop you right reality. there, Alan. Sorry. Let me stop. Let me yeah, stop you I right there. Might, yeah. Go ahead, David. Yeah. yeah. Professor Ben yeah. Burgess, you yeah. teach philosophy at Perimeter College. Is that correct? Yep. Is that That's correct? correct. Have yes. you now or have you ever been a <laughs> member of the Society of Philosophers? The Society of I don't Philosophers. Know. Here's my question. Alan's just said 
that we shouldn't focus on labels. You also said we shouldn't focus on labels. I'm not as smart as you guys. I think labels are really important. You teach philosophy. So when you're teaching Hume, when you're teaching, uh, when you're teaching, you know, Hobbes, Leviathan, and all the, these pillars of philosophy, labels are really important. I mean, you need to, you need to say Adam Smith, capitalism. That's the, you, you know, he, and yes, he believed in guardrails, but labels are important. Especially when you're trying to capture a couple of hundred million voters, right? Labels are labels are necessary uh, to you know as like shorthand sometimes to complain you know convey complex information where you don't have very much time. But uh, but I also think they could be very misleading, especially in the context of American politics. Uh, for one thing, people are very are often very bad at uh, at labeling themselves. And people's self-identification doesn't really have that much to do with their policy preferences. There are lots of people who say they're moderates who are all in favor of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and all right, those things. Right, but you're running, you're going, you're about to catch a plane to Nevada. Yes. You're going to knock on doors. Now, you're yes. not going to knock on doors as philosophy professor Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Thank and you. you're not going to accuse them of straw man theories. You're going to have to talk to to people in Las Vegas and convince them to vote for Bernie. And Mayor Bloomberg says, I, I, I can't believe I'm on I'm debating a socialist who owns three homes and has a million dollars. Alan Minsky, you are now identifying as a socialist. Would you like three homes? Do you think it's okay for us? I happen to believe that socialism is good for capitalism. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think you... Can I jump in on the three homes thing? Yeah. Um, What I always think when I think of the three homes... um, Barb against Sanders. Well, first, I think it's bizarre because, like, they they treat this as such a gotcha. You would think that he was like the co-sponsor of the multiple home ownership prohibition <laughs> act or something. Um, but also, on a more serious level, I grew up in Mid Michigan uh, at a time when it was very common for people like auto workers or unionized school teachers uh, to have a second home. Uh, that you know you'd have you know, you'd have the home that you lived and you'd have like your place up north, and that's less common than it used to be because of you know decades of austerity and union busting and deindustrialization. But to me, it just feels obvious that of course, as leftists, our message should be that we want to we want to restore those state those kinds of like working class standard of living that uh, that you know that we're not uh, we're not telling everybody to be austere and share the same crust of bread. Uh, what we, um, you know, we want a society where it can, it, where this can be very common across the board and for more people, you know, than, uh, than, than it was before. So there's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with owning multiple homes, nor in fact do I, do I recall, uh, Senator Sanders ever saying that, um, that like you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be allowed uh, to make a million dollars, he said that if you know, uh, he said that a billion represents a concentration of wealth that's obscene. But uh, so, I, I think, I think he advocates a higher tax rate for himself. And if he didn't pay that tax rate, then you could start calling him a hypocrite. Uh, Alan but, Minsky, you have recently you've recently identified yourself as a socialist, correct? I have an article in Socialist Forum today. It'd be hard to back out of it. But, but when you know, I first I met you, I don't you, really put. I don't really. 
ten, put much stock in that. Yeah. Ten yeah. years ago, when we first met, mm-hmm. would you have identified mm-hmm. as a socialist, or would you? I, I think I've always thought of myself as being um, a, a democratic socialist, as it's come to mean, and that I, I do believe in as much human liberty as possible. And I do believe that, uh, you know, we should make, I think that housing is a human right, health care is a human right. Uh, I think that people, when they do 40 hours or 35 hours of work a week, they should get uh, compensation that is at a living wage. I also think extreme concentrations of wealth. You know, they, they shouldn't be prevented, but they should be taxed very progressively because obviously the wealth that's being accrued by any one person is really a product of social cooperation. I can't think of a circumstance where that would not be the case. So when Ben and, Burgess uh, is knocking on doors in mm-hmm. Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into any semantic arguments about socialism. You don't have time for that. OK, so. Yeah. But is it fair to say that a democratic socialist loves money just as much as a capitalist? They just are more concerned about where that money ends up when people say to me, oh, the democratic socialist, he's got a million dollars. Democratic socialists are not opposed to money. No, I, I think there's I think. Oh, go ahead, Ben, and I'll, I'll tackle this. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, we want, it, we want it to be distributed more fairly, but uh, but I want, and of course, also the power to be distributed more fairly. I yes. love what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said about um, uh, Jeff Bezos a few weeks ago that um, that you know that we we don't just want his you know we don't just want his uh, his money. We want his power. If he uh, you know we you know we don't just want him to throw some money to charity. If he wouldn't be a really good person, he'd uh, uh, reorganize Amazon. As a worker cooperative, but I really don't want to let go, uh, just cause, just cause I do have to get off in a few minutes, this business about polls, because this is crucial. Um, when, when Michael Bloomberg says, oh, Bernie can't win because he's a socialist, he's ignoring at this point four or five years of polling evidence that, uh, Bernie Sanders would in fact, uh, crush Trump in, uh, in a general election. Uh, and when he says things like he said last night, uh, that when people were talking about, uh, worker representatives on corporate boards and, you know, Bloomberg was saying, oh, wow, I can't, I can't think of a better way to get Donald Trump elected than to say crazy things like this. Um, I don't buy that, right? Like whatever people think of the socialist label, which they're certainly, um, they're certainly willing to vote for Bernie, just, you know, because of it in some cases, maybe despite it in lots of cases, but regardless, uh, I, I don't think that's an unpopular proposal. I, I think that uh, there are a lot more voters who are workers than who are billionaires. Okay. Alan, uh, since Ben has to leave for Vegas, why don't we ask him a couple of questions before he goes? Because he is a philosophy sure. professor. He's the author of <laughs> Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and... I should mention that Alan Minsky is a big fan of Michael Brooks. Ah, nice. Yes. And, mm-hmm. sure. and, and I'm a big fan of Ben Burgess and David Feldman's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> and you can always see the great Ben Burgess on the Michael Brooks show doing the debunk every week. What does Bernie need to do in Vegas and in South Carolina, in terms of building a coalition, did you see a hint, Ben Burgess, when 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 Bernie Sanders attacked Mayor Pete mm-hmm. and accused him of taking money from billionaires? He smiled paternalistically at <laughs> at, at Mayor Pete. Did you pick up on that? And it was kind of, hey, I have to do this. I'm going to punch you here, but you know what? In in about a month, I'm going to be asking you to be 
to be part of this movement. Did you get a sense that Bernie's in almost in coalition building mode? Uh, that's interesting. Not uh, not necessarily. Although I also think that um, that that Bernie Sanders, despite the fact that he uh, exudes more political sincerity than you know ninety five percent of politicians at his level, um, you know he does consistently um, seem to make it less personal than um, than is common. Right? That like if like I, I think that. Like when he when he goes on and on about you know my friend Joe Biden you know Joe Biden is a friend of mine despite all of his crimes and all this stuff I used to kind of find it jarring and think okay come on like you know you know you said Joe Biden is my friend despite and then you just start rattling off this list of atrocities that Joe Biden has committed but uh, watching their performance at the debate stage and stuff yeah I think he's telling the truth I think he kind of likes Joe Biden I think maybe you know he's fine with Pete Buttigieg I think he's you know, I, I think that uh, I don't know if he I don't know if his smile at that moment necessarily meant anything or not. But uh, but I, I don't think he um, I don't think he particularly keeps personal grudges. And, and I, I have no doubt whatsoever that uh, that, you know, that he is going to uh, to, you know, to turn around and uh, and try to bring as many of these people on board as possible. OK, yeah, we have limited time with you. You're the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. You've been complaining about the quality of debate in in politics. Did the Democrats on Wednesday night give us a debate? Uh, yeah, well, some of them certainly more than others, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I've already indicated that I, th- I think Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, did very very well. And, no, what I'm uh, saying is, did they teach the American people and especially the Democratic Party that it's okay to have an ideological food fight in front of the children? But that doesn't mean mommy and daddy are going to get a divorce. That that's part of the process. I think they succeeded in teaching the Democrats that it's okay to to fight it out. It's not a circular firing squad. We're trying to arrive um, at, at policy, and this is the only way you can do it. I, I actually have a bit of a different take on last night. I'd love to get Ben's yeah. thoughts on my thoughts about it, which is that I do think that Elizabeth Warren's campaign is revived because of the performance. I think it was as just just as a level of performance, uh, the sort of most outstanding display of chutzpah we've seen on the debate stage this campaign, and as such, I think it's a, there's a good expectation that, for instance, at least the people who have left her to go support A.B. Klobuchar will now come back, given there's so many candidates in the field, this will create a boost. I'm even worried about her doing so much better in Nevada than expectations that it will puncture this idea of Bernie continuing to rise. I'm wondering if Ben Ben's reflections on what I just said. Uh, yeah, I mean that that is a concern. I think mostly because uh, the standards of media coverage are so much different from this than uh, than they are for for normal primaries. That uh, normally, if if somebody won uh, Iowa, uh, and I guess I'll I'll go ahead and plug. I have a um, uh, you know article a couple a couple back in Jacobin. That's the uh, the most simple-minded argument of anything I've ever written. It's uh, the title of the article is uh, "Bernie got the most votes," which means he won. Um, but if somebody won Iowa and then they won New Hampshire, and then 
you know, one Nevada, who cares who's in second place, you know, then, um, then people would start, you know, the whole narrative would be about inevitability. Um, whereas, uh, the, I think that the media is, is so desperate to find somebody who to be the, um, the one who will stop Bernie that they they don't want to write anybody off that, you know, that sure, if Elizabeth Warren, you know, gets a, you know, gets second place in Nevada, she has strong performance, they'll start talking her up. I mean, I remember I was listening to MSNBC in the car, uh, the, uh, night of, uh, New Hampshire. And I, I remember thinking, my God, if anybody only listened to this segment on MSNBC, they would have thought Amy Klobuchar won New Hampshire. Right. Right. You have a piece yeah. over at Jacobin. Ben Burgess entitled Michael Bloomberg is not a lesser evil. And I have said not on this show, but I've said to friends that if Michael Bloomberg gets the Democratic nomination, I will vote for Trump because it's the end of history. It is literally the end of history. If, well, actually, you can, if I could chime in on this while Ben is still here, too, because I went on a little ramble earlier about the two-party system in the United States of America. But I yeah. think if Michael Bloomberg, especially after last night, ends up still getting the Democratic nomination, there will never have been a moment in, in my lifetime in which a third party would have an opening like a third party would now. Now, if Howie Hawkins is the candidate of the Green Party, you can throw that away. But maybe somebody runs as an independent or maybe the Greens get wise and see the opening and actually uh, recruit and nominate, somehow recruit through a different, whatever their process is, a candidate mm-hmm. who will have an impact. Because that would be quite an opening for a third party yeah, or, no. or, or an alternative candidate. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's funny. You were talking about the two party system earlier. And um, and while, of course, I agree with you um, that. You know, the two-party system is for better, for worse, for reality. You have to work within, you know, given um, current layout of American politics. You know, I mean, normally I think of that as a bad thing. But uh, uh, if Michael Bloomberg is the nominee, like, that really erodes that system in its current form in the worst possible way. Because um, I think people who people who are confident that he would even do things that a normal Democrat would do in terms of Supreme Court appointments and whatnot – uh, they, I don't think, have thought it through, because if Michael Bloomberg manages to buy himself the Democratic nomination, and then um, he could he could entirely self fund his his general election run, right? And if he does that, um, I mean, he he'd barely notice it. Uh, and if he does that, then he would he would have a remarkable freedom of action from the Democratic uh, establishment. Which, in his case, would be a very bad thing because uh, his instincts are, you know, that he normally he supports a variety of Democrats or Republicans, depending on, you know, the how the whims strike him on any particular issue at any particular time. I have no idea what Supreme Court appointments he would make, and I don't think anybody else does either. Um, so I think that uh, if if Michael Bloomberg uh, is, I mean, is the nominee, not only. Is he very Trump-like in lots of ways that, you know, I think we all know and we don't have to rattle off? Uh, but that would really, like, a vote for him wouldn't, not only wouldn't be a vote for a return to the priest-Trump status quo, which is the best you could say about a vote for most centrist Democrats, who I would vote for, but it, it would really be a nail in the coffin of, um, of any kind of system where, uh, where you where the worst instincts of of a president are at least somewhat constrained by the party 
uh, and and it would really you know establish a precedent that yeah after that it's like after the first. Uh, you know, after Sulla marches on Rome, you know, Caesar sees that it's possible, right? Every, every, uh, billionaire, like billionaire plutocrat at his level would think, well, hell, why do I just have to be a donor, right? Why can't I just do this next? Wow. And, uh, and, and, I, and it would be, it would, it would be a disaster, uh, for, for democracy. It wouldn't even be a symbolic repudiation of, of Trump's, you know, racism because Michael Bloomberg is frankly very similar in that regard. Um, and and yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think there would be, and I think Alan was absolutely right. I mean, there, there would be a huge opening uh, for some kind of third party run. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly, uh, you know, if if you could get it. To, if I mean, I think the two big ifs are one, like you said, that uh, that you recruit somebody real to run, and and then two, um, just that you could get it together in time. Right after the um, after the, you know after it was clear that Bloomberg was going to be nominated, just in terms of deadlines and all that, I, I have no idea if that would still be possible. But assuming both of those things, then yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I, I would, um, I mean, you know, I think I think Mayor Pete is like a. Um, uh, I'm not even entirely sure he's uh, he's made of human parts, but I would I would I would hold my, I would hold my nose and vote for him. Uh, for for all sorts of obvious reasons that you know I think probably go without saying in this context or you know uh, Amy Klobuchar who's who's like you know who's like you know uh, Mayor Pete except she's more interesting because she's an abusive boss or you know any of these people but uh, but Mike Bloomberg I absolutely wouldn't vote for it I think a lot of people would feel the same I'm going to let you go Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin his piece there right now is Michael Bloomberg is not a lesser evil. It's unique in the list of complaints that we have about him. There are a lot of things in there that I had not heard or seen before, referring to transgender people as it's. And I didn't know that he wanted to spy on mosques and his. Well, it, he, he didn't just want to. He did. Um, if you uh, if you look into this, the NYPD under his watch uh, really uh, did a some fairly extreme spying on Muslims in New York. Um, I'll, I, I'll, you know, I won't go into it now, but I mean, l- look that up later, right? You'll be surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when he's been, and when he's been asked about it since then, he's, he's been, um, he's been remarkably blase about it, right? Like it's, it's a, I mean, even though honestly, in terms of actual, any sort of like, ge- any sort of legitimate counterterrorism concerns, I think is probably totally counterproductive because it completely destroyed, you know, it confirmed the worst suspicions that New York Muslims, you know, had about the NYPD and, you know, and completely destroyed any sort of uh, relationship there. Um, so that's something he did, right? You know, and it's it, like the racism, it's not idle talk, right? Like stop and frisk, you know, that happened. Like all of the, all of the horrible Trumpy shit that he says, he actually did as mayor of New York. Right. I'm going to let you go. Alan, can you stay on? I sure can. It's been great talking with you, Ben. Uh, it's been great talking ben, to you. Thanks, Ben Alan. Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. You can watch him every Tuesday night on the Michael Brooks Show doing the debunk. And I'll end uh, this segment with Ben by reading what you wrote uh, over at Jacobin, because you are a columnist for Jacobin. If the Democrats nominate some terrible Clintonian like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, I'll probably vote for them. A Bloomberg nomination, however, 
would be too much. No one should vote to replace one Republican oligarch with another. Thank you, Ben Burgess. Thank you, David Feldman. Safe travels. Thanks. He's not going to Vegas. He's not. (laughs) Do you believe him? I believe him. I actually think he's going to Las Vegas. It's a good place to be right now if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter. Well, this, you know, you have a background in radio. You run. I don't I don't want to talk about Pacifica and KPFK and all this stuff you do. But you should also know, though, David, I'm also the, you know, besides being the co-creator of the Nation podcast, I'm the co-creator of the original Jacobin radio podcast, which still is going on. I'm the producer of it. And the executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Which is simply the greatest radio show in the world, next to, of course, the David Feldman show. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. All right, so we talked yesterday setting up this conversation. You told me Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. was going to knock it out of the park, and she, you know, was a grand slam, no question. Yeah, I did. I did also say I did say not only that there would be the cynical motivation to declare her the winner, that she was going to come out swinging because this was her last shot. I mean, getting under ten percent in New Hampshire when most of New Chancellor's Democratic members lived within the Boston media market was an atrocious, uh, horrible um, result for her. Uh, and by all measures, she really should have been dead. But she is the she is the heroine, I suppose, hero of uh, um, uh, I'm dating myself, not knowing which gendered version of hero to use here of, of Emily's List crowd. And so she's still going forward. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy there with Elizabeth Warren because she was castigating all the candidates except her and Amy Klobuchar for having super PACs, which is a bogus claim when it comes to Bernie Sanders. No one has done a million-dollar TV ad buy or any ad buy uh, by super PACs in support of Bernie Sanders. Every ad you see for Bernie comes from his campaign. And she has a million-dollar ad buy from a super PAC in Nevada in the final days. It's called Persist USA, Even though- uh, undisclosed donors. Even though she said she would forswear super PACs, at least in the primaries. And she's claiming, oh, no, not me. I'm still that way because I don't know how this happened. And I I call bullshit on that. Yeah, everybody should. We uh, placed a bet yesterday. I promised. Yes, I think you owe me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. I don't know about that. Hang on. The bet was a... An all-you-can-eat meal at the Arco gas station across the street from the uh, radio station. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you. I'm gonna hold you under that. I'm just gonna load up on like granola bars and stuff and eat <laughs> granola bars until I. You don't. You stop paying attention, which phrase I stuff them in a pocket for a rainy day, which is what one should do with granola bars. They, they have, you can buy at a gas station. They have cinnamon rolls there. I'm going to pass on the cinnamon rolls, the hot dogs, everything, but just go with the packaged granola bars. I think. Yeah. But yeah, you owe me that. I, I don't know. They, 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 it's going to be one billion dollars worth of granola bars. So I, don't think, I don't think if I bought out the whole place, it'd be more than a, probably about eight thousand dollars or something. I bet you it was going to be the end of Michael Bloomberg, that debate. Now, oh, is that what it was? It wasn't. A, so then I owe you all you can eat meal. Yeah, that was. The, let's see, you don't remember? Time, the, time will tell. Time will tell. How cynical is the American? I mean, cynical isn't the word. How easily brainwashed by propaganda is the American? Not the general American public, the American uh, Democratic Party primary participating person people going to be. Because the question now is, okay, the guy's a complete disaster on the debate stage, but he sure makes those warm and fuzzy ads that everybody is having to digest if they're watching television. He's, you know, or if they're looking at Facebook or whatever. 
So what are we looking at with Bloomberg? Because he didn't do well during the debate. I think he didn't expect to be roughed up the way he was by Elizabeth Warren when she asked him about releasing the women from those non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, uh, and don't get me wrong, I think, she, I think she was quite marvelous attacking Bloomberg yesterday. I think it was spectacular, yeah. Does yesterday. it matter? How important is ad buy, is an ad buy versus the debate? How many people watch that debate right. and how many people are going to see his... What is he spending half a billion dollars by Super Tuesday on ad buys? Um, you know, you know, the, the thing here is that I think he's going up against is not how many people watch it versus how many people see his ads, because obviously a lot more people see his ads. It's the spillover effect in the media. And, you know, one of the weird things about American politics, not that many people watch MSNBC or Fox, but in a very still tangible way is the country, um, you know, we're no longer in this sort of modernist unified national, you know, cultures like the United States American culture in the 50s heading into the 60s. You know, thanks to Madison Avenue now, you know, there's different targeting for different groups and it's all diversified and stuff, which is also sort of BS too. I mean, people can talk about this and theorize about it. But one of the things that's still a very shared thing by Americans is that the political class, the top of our, um, you know, set of political characters are the subject of every monologue, or every other monologue maybe, but most monologues, especially in the Trump era, of all the late-night talk shows, it's a standard water-cooler subject for people to have as a shared point of, uh, you know, in common to discuss things, to reflect their characters as they digest it and spit it back out. And so, you know, right now, Michael Bloomberg was humiliated. There's a whole, of course, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and that bled last night. So, you know, I think that's what's going to take him down more than how many people actually saw the debate live. If he spends another $200 million, I think he's buying all the ads in Virginia. I think he's buying up all the ads in the states for Super Tuesday. He's expecting a big win on Super Tuesday. But California, he doesn't stand a chance in California. And isn't California and Texas, aren't they, as they say, the whole enchilada for Super Tuesday? You have to win Texas and New York. The rest of those states... Virginia? I mean, you went, how important is it to win any other states on Super Tuesday besides Texas and California? Well, of course, you know, the guy got into the race, I think, for two reasons. One is because he wants to stop the billionaire tax that Bernie and Warren are, are proposing. He wants to defeat either of them or both of them, depending on who would be left standing when he got into it. And the other was the, the, the fact that Biden wasn't really going to be the able to be the standard bearer. And so, you know, the question is, is you know, how split is the party? Um, how deep into the primary season would um, the moderate wing of the party? Is there really this kind of ideological split or is there something a little less tangible that defines how people vote within Democratic primaries? Been some good articles about that recently. Um, where, you know, people have said there really isn't a moderate wing of the party, uh, because the moderates have sort of been fooling the electorate, mouthing platitudes that sound a lot like what actually Warren and Sanders are sincere about. So, you know, look at the candidates through the years, and they'll, they will have been mouthing the neoliberal candidates, the DLC candidates were mouthing platitudes trying to claim they were for the people, for the little person, for the working class, pro-union, et cetera, right? You know, anti-racist too. 
And uh, so you'd hear them say that. And now you actually have a couple candidates. I'd say Bernie Sanders even more so, but, but Elizabeth Warren, from her record, it's clear also quite sincerely, stands for those things. I think the other four or five candidates that are left don't. Uh, they are from the DLC, Clintonite lineage within the party, and then there's Bloomberg even to the right of that. But Biden, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar, Steyer's sort of still in it. But those three in particular, does anybody really think they can be the Democratic standard bearer in the general election against Donald Trump? And for somewhat obvious reasons, there's a great skepticism. This is the space that Bloomberg walked into with his advice. And I do think if it is, a, if it is an honest ideological split, and I'm not sure that it is. I think there's a chance this might end up being Warren versus Sanders, but we'll have to see if, if Warren actually does get a boost from her performance last mm-hmm. night. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and But if there's an ideological split, um, now is Bloomberg too damaged? Will this lift Biden back up? Is it Buttigieg, Klobuchar? Who knows? Or will that wing of the party just sort of fall out of competition in this um, this year's Democratic primaries? I do think that if you really are an ideological adherent to democratic centrism, it looks pretty bleak right now after Bloomberg's performance last night. Yeah. Bernie bros. It's a serious Mm -hmm. issue. I mean, it has bled into the debates. Mayor Pete was accusing Bernie of leading something short of brown shirts. And then he turned to Amy Klobuchar and exhibited Bernie bro behavior. It was, it was really fascinating to watch Mayor Pete take the high road with Bernie and then act like a Bernie bro with Amy. Did he did he accidentally put put the Bernie bro argument to rest by bringing it up and then behaving like one? Look, occasionally, if you look at the the political temperature of onion political posts, um, I do think they they certainly try to have appeal to a young demographic. I mean, it's been around a while now, so certainly original fans of the Union aren't so young anymore. Um, but if you look at the political temperature, it's you know, been loosely, um, you know, if you, if you interpret the satire to a certain political end, which I think everybody does when they engage with political satire, it's, it's, it's rather uh, left progressive. And, you know, Sanders is, is oftentimes even dealt with uh, he sort of is, is the hero of the post such that, uh, you know, they're making fun of the way that he's belittled because it's so extreme and mm-hmm. so in contrast to the sincere politician that he really is, right? And yet, the thing is, is the onion is a very popular, and all the, all the better parts of the late night talk shows, they're pretty savage. So people post on Facebook, people post on Twitter, they're really inspired by the Bernie Sanders thing. And there are two things going on. First of all, we all know on the Internet, because you're not face-to-face with a person, and you're somewhat anonymous often, you often have quirky little tags and quirky names, you can just be savage. Mm-hmm. And you see that all over in every part of the Internet. Bernie's spoken about that the past few days. But I think there's this other thing, which is that, you know, the whole the whole popular uh, way that people talk about politics is a lot of comedies thrown in, a lot of sharp-edged comedies thrown in. So people put posts up. They want to be liked, and they often are very savage towards the opponents. Um, sometimes, you know, more or less. Sometimes much less. I mean, sometimes more so mean spirited way. So it's not surprising that there's kind of things going on with a with a young base that's inspired by a politician. That there's some rough edges to the post. But the idea that that anybody should have their feelings hurt beyond having to face an oppositional political argument, 
you know, strikes me as a bunch of, you know, crap. I, you know, people, people know what the internet's like. They know what the discourse is. If they're so thin skinned, I mean, who really is getting offended by this stuff? So there's that too. But, um, you know, do Bernie bros engage in actual Bernie supporters and stuff that is like virulently, you know, hateful, uh, violent language, racist, sexist, et cetera. I almost never see that. Almost never. And I consume a load of Bernie Sanders supporting media. Yeah. Really. I mean, it is, it is in less than 1% that actually crosses much, much less than 1%. I think Bernie's right at 99.9. Very rarely do I see a post from a Bernie Sanders supporter that I think is a sincere Bernie Sanders supporter that is in any way over the line. You, you have to overinterpret it with the thinnest of skin to take any kind of meaningful issue with it. And that's what I think they're doing. They're exploiting that. Um, I heard there's a term nutscaping. It's a propaganda term where you take the worst of a certain type of group's behavior and you propel it up into being the majority type of behavior. Say that again. Say that again. That. I, I want to say nutscaping or nut scraping. Look it up. Uh, I saw it posted, of course, online right. by some Bernie Sanders supporter. And it's a propaganda term. So maybe I'm getting it wrong. Where, and, where you, uh, you take know, gonna... the nuts from some movement. You take the worst, the worst possible behavior of a group of people and you elevate it up to be the majoritarian type of behavior. And it went too far with and it's a, Trump. And that is a propaganda technique, yeah. And Trump. So Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, a.k.a. AMLO. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. he the Bernie Sanders of Mexico in many respects. Yeah. The Bernie Sanders of Mexico. He got elected running as a National Regeneration Movement Party leader. He's been the, he's been the leading sort of uh, standard bearer of the left of the center, left, left of the center left politics in Mexico now for the past 15 years. He ran and was defeated in a very controversial election uh, about a decade plus ago. Then he went away for one election cycle and he came back and won. The, and, uh, the the notion yeah. that Amy Klobuchar didn't know who he was. She said she had a brain fart, that she had been traveling and she couldn't remember. Do you think she knew? I don't think she really knew. Who yeah, I the, agree with you. I don't think I don't think it's a brain fart. I think uh, I think his significance. I mean, one of the things that's happened is, first of all, it is a it, he is a very interesting um, president of Mexico because, of course. Very sadly, he runs counter to Mexico, our neighboring country, so important in all of our political discourse nationally in the United States. And our relationship with that country is so significant to the whole of uh, American politics in so many ways uh, over the past few decades. Um, runs counter to this tendency towards the rise of right and far right political leaders across the world. Uh, it's one of the few examples in recent years that runs counter to that. Uh, Mexico was a country when there was the pink tide across Latin America of left and center left or, you know, almost all left of center left and some far left, relatively far left uh, heads of state across Latin America. You go back about 15 years ago and almost uh, the entirety of Latin America was turning uh, left with the pink tide. Mm-hmm. At the time, Mexico did not. Then when the pink tide started to be reversed, um, and there has been in most of the countries, though not, not yet all, um, the Mexico runs counter to it and elects somebody who would have fit in with the pink tide perfectly by a, by a landslide. AMLO won like yeah. uh, by like a, more than thirty percentage points. But I think look, I, one of the things, and this maybe I wish Ben was here for this too. Is 
you know, okay, yeah, I'm the head of the Progressive Democrats of America, and I think I am right in the heart of where left progressive politics are in the United States. Having said that, like a lot of people who are drawn into contemporary left um, progressive politics, I'm I'm pretty well versed in my Karl Marx literature and stuff like that. Marx made an argument. One of the most controversial facts of 20th century communism was whether Marx argued that a revolution, a socialist revolution, needed to take place in the country with the most advanced industrial production. Germany. You know, there was a kind of like, yeah, with Germany or England, right? Yeah. But it happened in Russia, which had never had its sort of bourgeois democratic phase. It went straight from the czar within uh, an eight-month transition or a six-month transition to the Bolsheviks, right? And this was a big issue because it was an underdeveloped country. And, and the logic of that, now let's sort of leave Marx aside, just the logic of that argument, I think does is relevant to the significance and possibility of success of, of a center-less gover- government to transform things in the United States as opposed to having a center-left government in Brazil or other countries, significant countries, but on the periphery of the sort of global power structure. So you're because saying, are, you know, as, as yeah, I understand it, Sanders, Sanders can break, what I'm saying basically is Sanders, a Sanders presidency and maybe even potentially a Warren presidency could break the logic of capitalism that we've right. lived in since Reagan and Thatcher, this 40, 45-year trajectory of neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. Those other countries never had a chance to do that because they're, in a sense, living under the yoke of the Washington Washington's power, the West's power. And so those countries didn't really succeed to do the transformations they wanted in their countries. They stayed within the global system, and there was very little they could do to really – I mean, there was some success in some countries, but ultimately people didn't see them being as transformative as they had hoped they would be. I think that's different here. So I think if we do see – yeah, I do. we do see the real rise – of, of of a Sanders-esque politics in America, I, I think will change the world for the better. Yeah, so you're in you're saying, world. just so it's clear, because it's really important, mm-hmm. that you're going to see a, a peasant's revolt more likely in an advanced capitalist country like America than you will in, say, no, Colum- no, we've seen No, no, we've seen it in other countries, but it'll have the... A desired impact potentially here, but it's going to be a battle. I mean, the people who run the world and own the world are not going to give up their power or their economic control readily. Um, can you, now, can you, you know, I just I think, want to, I, I, I'm not interrupting you. I just want to slow this mm-hmm. down because it's really important. Mm-hmm. And then put a pin in that thought. But what you're saying is that Marx, I just want to review what you said and repeat what you said. And i got said. about seven minutes left. Yeah, so I, but I want to repeat what you said so it sinks in. <clears throat> Marx said that in order for a, a, an economy to become communist, it has to come out of a hyper-industrialized capitalist yeah. Society. The simple language is the most advanced uh, economic economy of the time. So, the one that it had its full industrial revolution had gone through the phase of, and this is Marxism. I don't know that I agree with it, but basically what it is is the Maoists and the Stalinists would say, oh, no, he never really said that. And there was a big debate among communists around the world as to whether Marx felt that way or not, because obviously the Maoists in China and the, the Soviets believed that they were the great communist states. And of course, they were nothing like what Marx would have wanted. They obviously were madly totalitarian, without liberty. Marx believed he was advocating for 
a society with, with maximum liberty, as, of course, was what I would certainly want. That's one thing. Again, not to align myself with Marx here fully, but at least that's one thing I do think Karl Marx believed. And, 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 that, um, and that politically, communism mm-hmm. would seem appealing to a highly industrialized culture because they would they would see capitalism collapsing upon itself. Uh, he, he's pretty materialistic, Marx. I think he really saw that the equitable distribution of resources uh, would produce an incredible amount of economic prosperity, you know, even more than capitalism did. So, you know, he's, he's a pretty materialist thinker along those lines. I, I think a, a lot of us probably now think we're not really worried about the rate of industrial production being essential to, I mean, of course, it's important, and we get this in Andrew Yang with the, with the universal basic income. I mean, he's, he's sort of touching upon the dream of us being to allow the technology to work so that we all take an income, we don't have to work, and we have great freedom. And it's a great vision. I, I happen to support, you know, actually a federal jobs guarantee, but on the other end of a federal jobs guarantee, I do think the amount of labor we all do can be much more restricted so that we can have a living wage working 30 hours a week, 25 hours a week as the technology improves. The reason I'm for it is because I think there is a ton of work to be done in our society that currently needs to be done for social betterment, not the least of which is in, you know, health care. I mean, the kind of uh, support that people need as they grow older is not attended to properly, but also we look at something like education and, of course, infrastructure build-outs and so on. There's, there's enough work to be done to go with a federal job guarantee. Uh, and also that just cuts into the right wing's arguments, which have never been built up because UBI hasn't been a serious the prospect. But, you know, believe me, the right wing will go against just giving people money for nothing. OK, I'll so, end this conversation with the question I asked Ralph Nader on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide on Pacifica. Uh, I maintain that Wall Street is made up of ignoramus, ignorami. People, you know, Lloyd Blank, mm-hmm. Fine, Jamie Dimon, they're not bright men, and they don't quite understand that Bernie is actually good for the stock market. He's good for people who want to make a killing. Um, does Bernie lose his base the minute he forms a coalition with the bankers? Because he's going to form a coalition with some of the neoliberals, isn't he? I mean, he's got to calm the markets. He's got to, right? He's, if he's president or. I, 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 I don't know how that works. We haven't gotten there yet. And, you know, there's the, there's the issue of Bernie Sanders and there's the issue of a movement. There's the issue of the people who he would have in his administration who would oversee the branches of, of that administration that directly relate to those facets of the American economy and society. And I, 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 yeah, I mean, I agree that I would expect in time, if we get to a Bernie Sanders presidency, we would have people in those positions within the administration who are, um, you know, not going to have, you know, just a, a straight up class warfare posture towards the people in those industries. I mean, they're significant, massively important components of how our society functions more so than maybe we would want them to be because, but it is the reality. I mean, financialized capitalism is the system that we all live inside of currently. And uh, so we have to contend with that. We, I don't think Bernie Sanders is seeking anything like a um, Bolshevik type, you know, disruption in the way the society operates. Not at all. This is going to be a peaceful transition where there are going to be adjustments that are 
intended to be ameliorations of the system we live in, but we're going to operate inside the system that we've been living in. Um, and that's certainly, I would not advocate for anything more than that right now because uh, I don't think the public is, is open to it, and I don't think it would be a good idea. There's no, there's no operative institutions in place to replace those mechanisms for how the society functions, so it'll be building off of that foundation in which right now financialized capital is a huge, huge component of it. So, yeah, yeah in some way there's going to be some peace made with that sector. Yeah, we're going to see the uh, the eclipse of the Federal Reserve and the rise of fiscal policy coming out of Congress and and Bernie, and we're going to hear about. No, I, th- I think I think a Sanders and a Warren will 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 have look for people who could run the Federal Reserve in harmony with the restrengthening of hopefully, yeah, obviously you need Congress for it, uh, for a, a much more uh, socially progressive fiscal policy. Um, but clearly, you know, the, the instruments the Federal Reserve has can can harmonize with that uh, transformation very readily. Right, and and when we print money, it'll go towards jobs and the ninety nine percent instead of into the the into banks and then creating more debt, and, unnecessary debt, and we'll hear about the multiplier effect. That will be the. And I think. Right. We'll right. hear a lot Absolutely. about the multiplier effect. Alan Minsky. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk. So to at, the, at the end of the day, we say Elizabeth Warren did great, and we'll see how it turns out in the polls and in Nevada after it. But boy, that was a, I love the conversation, David, and I love talking to Ben as well. Yeah, Alan Minsky so is the executive director. Of, let me let yeah. me sign off here. Alan Minsky is the executive uh, director of the Progressive Democrats of America, and he joined us today from Los Angeles. Thank you, Alan. Stand the line for one quick second. Sure. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. We're talking with Joshua Grossman. He's the founder of Progressive Punch. Is your senator or congressperson progressive? And if so, how progressive? You may want to turn to progressivepunch.org. It's a nonpartisan, searchable database of congressional voting records from a progressive perspective. Joshua Grossman is the founder of Progressive Punch, and he joins us today from Bend, Oregon. Thank you, Joshua, for taking time to be with us. My pleasure. So we had Howie Klein, the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, on Tuesday's show, and we were going over progressive punch scores that you put out over at progressivepunch.org. And there were a couple of names, senators who got higher rankings than Bernie Sanders. I always think, well, Bernie is the most progressive. He's not even progressive. He's a leftist. Why wouldn't 
you know, why would Kamala Harris get a higher progressive punch score than Bernie Sanders and how he tried to explain it. And he says there's an algorithm. And once he said algorithm, my eyes glazed over and he said, you better talk to Joshua Grossman. And then when we were getting started, I explained, yeah, I'm not really good at math. I'm a comedian. I'm a comedy writer. And Joshua took exception and said, well, I I've tried stand up. I'm pretty funny. What's wrong with uh, math and humor? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's a mathematics to to comedy and uh, certainly politics. So let's start with the word algorithm. We hear that used all the time. And I hate that word because it's how it's just a fancy word for formula. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's ripping me off if they say we have an algorithm. That's what Cambridge Analytica had. And. So I'm ripping, I'm ripping you off. <laughs> no, not you. But, you know, hedge funds have algorithms. And so give us your money or, you know, we, we have an algorithm that will help your campaign to find potential voters. So it's just a formula, right? That's all it is? Yep. Okay. And, and you're a math whiz and you're also, I understand you, as early as 13 years old, you could memorize not only the name of every single congressperson and senator, but you could tell us how they voted? Yeah, and the political demography of their districts. I was uh, sort of an idiot savant, maybe more idiot than savant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hang on for a second, because I have a friend, Larry Brown, who's a comedian, uh, who lives in San Francisco, and he could, I can tell him the flight number, and he can tell me the plane crash and how many people perished and the date. Can I tell you any well, Congress? My, I, my pastime, my pastime is less morbid than <laughs> Well, not not with this current Congress, or at least the Senate. So, how far back does your memory go? Do you remember every Congress person since you were born and their the makeup of their constituents and their voting record? I mean, what what are we talking about inside your brain? Well, I, I part of the motivation for Progressive Punch was to download the contents of my brain and to make <laughs> uh, uh, to make it make it available to the general public. So that's uh -huh. what it is. Anybody can. And, and also, of course, politicians are very fond of uh, dissembling, shall we say, to the public about their voting records. And so this was a this was an effort to uh, quantify and measure how progressive people, members of Congress really are. And, you know, as people can see, as they peruse the voting records on the site, uh, Republicans don't vary much at all amongst themselves, but there's a wide spectrum of voting records among Democrats from people who were just exemplary and fantastic to people who were, you know, pretty bad. Right. So um, we try to lay, to lay that out for people and, you know, try to simplify it for people who are not particularly enamored of numbers on both the Senate select by score page and the House select by score page. We also offer letter grades, you know, from A to an F, Mm -hmm. which is something that basically everybody's familiar with. And that is an effort not just to um, put a letter to the numbers, but also 
to grade on a curve a little bit, like physics for poets in college, you know, where they, they go a little easier on the poets in the physics class. We go easier on members of Congress from swing districts or from leaning Republican districts or states, let's say, than, than we do on the people from strong Democratic districts. But if people don't want to grade on a curve and they just want to look at absolute grades, that's there too. So they can sort the information any way they want to sort it. So everybody should go to progressivepunch.org and root around, look for your congressperson or senator, and you will get a, a score. They'll get an A or an F and with percentages. For example, I'm on the page that ranks United States senators in order of their progressiveness. Topping the list is Ed Markey. I believe he's the Democratic senator from Massachusetts. One of the Kennedys is going to be challenging him. And he tops the list. He gets a, a, a grade of an A. He has a lifetime score of 98.67 on crucial votes. He has a lifetime score of 99.04 on uh, overall votes. And then you factor in the state tilt. It's strongly Democratic. And you take so you take into account how difficult it is for him to cast certain votes. Is that factored into the algorithm? Yeah, that's the that's the last column that that doesn't um, affect the basic scores in the columns that you were referring to at first. But on the on the far right hand column, um, there is a, a score versus the state tilt or versus the district tilt, which is the physics for poets score the grading on the curve score okay this is fascinating so again people can people can either look at it you know in in terms of where they come from or they can look on it on an absolute basis okay this is really fascinating so let's go down to somebody you have your choice i'm sorry i said you have your choice you can either judge people on an absolute basis or on a relative basis right uh, Kamala Harris is the second most progressive senator, uh, according to your list. Let's go across this and, and explain it uh, because. Right. Well, let me let me um, talk about why, as you mentioned at the beginning, you were a little surprised about Sanders not being the you know listed as the most progressive, and that's because this is based on an algorithm not my personal preferences. And so occasionally I disagree with my own algorithm, but the algorithm triumphs and I don't, I don't sort of crook the scores, you know, to reflect my personal views on any votes before Congress. And one of the things that we, one of the uh, subtle, but I think important things that we do, and it's described in great detail on the, what is a progressive score page, which is there's a link in the, on the lower left-hand corner of the website to that page, and I encourage people to read it, even though it's a little dense and intricate. Um, and one of the things that we do is that we treat absences on votes in a more nuanced fashion than any other scorecard I've ever seen anywhere. Most scorecards either just don't count absent votes at all, or they count it against the member of Congress, one or the other. What we do is we count 
absent votes as a bad vote if it was a close vote. And if it was not a close vote, then we don't count it against the member of Congress. So Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and, you know, some other members missed a bunch of votes when they were campaigning this year, and that dinged their scores. Um, Sanders has also... Uh, in his, because he's been around for a long time, he, he did cast some bad votes on gun control. And, uh, there's also a very, very, very occasionally, um, our algorithm fails to pick up. There's just no way an algorithm can do this. It fails to pick up a vote where somebody votes with the Republicans from the left. So, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, does not have a hundred score um, because she's, you know, she's protested a couple of times and voted with the Republicans against the vast majority of progressive Democrats. So there's just no way to, to you know. Right. So let's say something like that in the scores. You know. Right. Right. So on Wednesday's debate, they talked about Bernie voting against the new trade deal and his voting against uh, an immigration bill that. Teddy Kennedy wanted about 10 or 12 years ago. So does he get dinged for voting against the immigration deal? Does he get dinged well, for voting? We're, we're getting into the, we're getting into the basic function of the algorithm. Again, it's, it's pretty intricate and I encourage people to read the description for themselves. But basically what we've done is identify a group of hardcore progressives it's about a dozen in the Senate and about 37 or so in the House. And the votes that qualify for the database are any vote in which a majority of them vote against the majority of Republicans. So it's like the good guys and good women versus the bad guys and bad women. Um, and, and basically what happens as new people are elected to Congress, for example, Raul Grijalva from Arizona, um, he was not part of this original group, but we added him, and now he's one of the most progressive members of the House. We added him because his voting record was uh, in harmony with the strong progressives already in there. So now people basically, you know, they get they get incorporated into this list of progressives, and the only way they get off the list is either if they leave Congress, they retire, they die, they run for other office, or um, if occasionally we excommunicate people because their voting records have become more conservative and we remove them from the progressive cohort. And if people are curious, on the, on the bottom of what is a progressive score page that I keep urging people to uh, click on, um, there is a list of who the members of the progressive cohort are, both in the Senate and in the House. And we're not talking about the Progressive Caucus. No, we're not. Um, our group is more exclusive. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has complained, uh, in my opinion, quite justifiably, that there are now a lot of members of the Progressive Caucus who are not all that progressive. I mm -hmm. mean, it's too, it's too loose. I mean, it's about a third of, the, of all the Democrats in the House of Representatives are, are members, and, and a lot of them just aren't that progressive. So the, our, our list is more exclusive. It's more the people who you would really think, like the Elizabeth Warrens, the Bernie Sanders, and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, the Barbara Lees. Those are the people who are in our group. They have to be, you have to have a very progressive voting record and prove it over time. So 
Um, you know, there was a lot of hype around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I thought she was fantastic myself, but we did not initially add her to the progressive cohort until she'd been in Congress for a year, and we looked at her voting record, and we had over 50 crucial votes that she cast, and they were overwhelmingly progressive. And she, we said, okay, it's not just hype. You know, she she has the voting record to match, and so we'll add her to this progressive cohort. Yeah. When did you set up this site? Oh, it's been around for about a decade. Yeah. The word progressive has been on a journey. It's been on a 10-year journey. So most Democrats like to call themselves liberals. I used to call myself a liberal. And then we became ashamed of calling ourselves a liberal. And you were no longer allowed to call yourself a liberal. About 10 years ago, we started calling ourselves progressives. And as soon as we started calling ourselves progressives, we found out, well, we should be ashamed of calling ourselves liberal because the word liberal has been co-opted by the right wing, neoliberal, freedom, it's now a libertarian, it's a pro-business, it's pro-globalization. So the word liberal is completely tainted now. Now you now it's been taken by the right wing. Now the right wing can lay claim to the, the name liberal or the Clintons or the Obamas can call themselves liberals because in, in the 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 agreed definition now they are liberals. Bernie's not a liberal; he's a leftist. Right. Well, so, you're 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 sort of above my pay grade on all this because I you know I'm an expert on congressional voting records so you could ask me any question you want about that but, but I, progressive I, progressive I, was the the term used for democrats who no longer wanted to call themselves liberals because liberal had a negative connotation yeah, I, think, I think that's mostly true but maybe not a hundred percent true but it's yeah it's, we'll, we'll 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 take it as a given. What 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 else can I uh, yeah assist you and your listeners with? Yeah. So and now leftist seems more important than progressive. I mean, there seems to be uh, a whole new wing in the Democratic Party, and it's I think AOC is more of a leftist than a progressive, right? Um. You know, it, 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 it's, it's hard, it's a hard, it's an interesting question, but it's a hard, it's a difficult question to answer. And that is because, um, Nancy Pelosi in her, in her role as Speaker of the House cares, you know, very deeply and passionately about perpetuating Democratic Party control of the House of Representatives more than anything else, more than any particular piece of legislation. And that's why she was so reluctant for so long to to approve impeachment proceedings against Trump, because mm -hmm. she was afraid that it would negatively impact on Democrats from swing districts. And so that's relevant to the question that you asked me, because there are very few votes, roll call votes, that that actually come up on the floor of the House of Representatives, never mind the Senate, where Mitch McConnell has his 
you know, iron grip on it and everything that could be called leftist. So mm-hmm. when you're there, there are a few amendments sometimes that they can sort of sneak in where, you know, maybe to lower the military budget or something like that. But the vast majority of, of actual votes, which is what we base our database on, because again, it's not one man's opinion. It's just, it's a record based on the actual voting records of members of Congress. We're, we're at the mercy of the votes that they allow to be to be held right and so there just aren't that many you know what i would consider certainly leftist votes that are you know or are votes on leftist legislation that actually come to the floor of the house of representatives or the senate in the senate that doesn't happen because mcconnell doesn't allow anything that he doesn't like to come to the floor of the senate and in terms of the house of representatives um it doesn't come because uh, Pelosi is deathly afraid of uh, Democrats from swing districts who tend to be much more moderate or even conservative. Uh, she doesn't want them to take what she considers to be risky votes. Right. And they don't want to take what they consider to be risky votes. And so um, so this is a long-winded way of saying that, that your question about Ocasio-Cortez, is she a leftist, you'd really have to judge her on her rhetoric because we don't have enough right. of a you know, voting record to tell, and I will leave that judgment for other people. Again, right. that's something where your listener's judgment is just as good as mine. Right. I'm an expert on actual voting records. Fascinating. Fascinating. So can, you, can you fact check a statement that I keep making over and over again? Do you mind? When I say in response to Bernie's legislative record, I think Hillary said he's accomplished nothing in the Senate. Which isn't true. He's the he was when in the House. He was the Amendment King. But one of the things I say is nobody's accomplished anything in the Senate. That when you look at the past twenty years of the legislative branch, the only major bills that get passed are appropriations, uh, war authorizations, and new post offices has there been any major legislation other than obamacare uh, well, medicare part d now i don't i don't know that that goes back 20 years i think um you know I, I i don't think it's a complete answer to your question but a partial answer to your question is that actually stopping bad stuff is an achievement mm-hmm. and if you're on the left end of the remember you know sanders caucuses with Democrats in the Senate, but he's not actually a Democrat. So if you're if you're at the left end of the Senate in terms of your views, by definition, you're not going to be the one, you know, sort of playing smoochy face with the Republicans and, you know, promoting watered down pablum legislation that really doesn't have that much meaning. You're going to be advocating for stuff that is you know, ahead of its time, maybe, like Medicare for all, um, it was and perhaps still is, uh, and, and you know, trying to stop really bad things. And I, I think he's, you know, he, he, he's a bit of a loner temperamentally in his, in his personality, but most of his colleagues don't dislike him. He's courteous enough with them, and, uh, you know, he's able to work with other people, but it, his legislative interests are not the same as Republicans and that he has less in common with them 
than let's say an Amy Klobuchar would, and that's just the reality of the situation. Well, I guess what I was asking you is that's interesting. Uh, there was a time when there'd be like the Humphrey Hawkins bill has been passed, guaranteeing full employment for all Americans. Graham Rudman, uh, the Boland Amendment, uh, the Hatch Act. Do we see that where people get bills passed with their names on them and their significant pieces of legislation well, that not, memorialize not a, a specific? Yeah, not not much. I mean, there, there was the so-called Hastert rule, you know, named after the famous pedophile, uh, former Republican Speaker of the House, where he said, you know, they won't he won't allow anything that doesn't have a majority of the majority supporting it to come to the floor. So as long as the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives, they ju- they just wouldn't let anything you know, be voted on um, if, if and as long as a majority of Republicans would support it, not a majority of the House of Representatives, but a majority, but rather a majority of the Republicans in the House of Representatives. And they've become increasingly conservative uh, and uniform in their ideology over time, as you could see on Progressive Punch. And uh, so the stuff just doesn't isn't allowed to be voted on in the floor. And now Mitch McConnell and the Senate has aped that and is, you know, basically the, the Senate has turned into a place where right wing judges are appointed and, and voted on and not much else happens. That's yeah. Hastert became speak. Well, let's see. The impeachment was what? 1999 ended in 90. They lost. Well, he, he succeeded Gingrich when Gingrich right. was, you know, resigned. Livingston had to step down. Livingston yeah. was going to replace Gingrich, but then he was cheating on his wife. Yeah. And then Hastert. So we're, we're looking at 20 years of a legislative branch that has accomplished Obamacare, some war authorizations, the Patriot Act. Well, they also accomplished lots of tax cuts for rich people and corporations. So don't forget that. They, they accomplished negative things, but not yeah. much in terms of, you know, what, what the needs of, you know, average Americans are. So that's interesting. Well, uh, before you go, let me just go across. So to help people, I don't want to say play with progressivepunch.org, but it is, there is something playful they're, about it. They're, they're invited to play with it as much as they want. I, would um, share with people that they I, I mentioned uh, earlier in our chat that um, you can you can judge people members of Congress on either a um, an absolute basis or a relative basis and the way you do that is you just click the little arrow at the top of uh, uh, at the top of any one of the columns and if you if if you want to see more kind of morbidly uh, who the worst members are you just click an arrow at a second time and then it'll sort from worst to best instead of best to worst. So you can, it it is something for people to play with. Yeah. Before you go, let's go with number seven, Sherwood Brown, who I find problematic. And I'll go across and just show people his scores and, and how to read his scores properly. And I am fascinated by Sherwood Brown because this is the senator from Ohio, a champion of the working man. He's from a swing state. Uh, he's married to uh, a self-righteous 
columnist from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, who's a liberal in the classical sense of the word. So uh, he's against Medicare for all, Sherrod Brown. He was running. He was testing the waters as a possible candidate in 2020, and he opposes Medicare for all. So he immediately went on my my list as somebody uh, not yeah, to not tra- to split hairs, but I don't know if Sherrod Brown actually opposes Medicare for all in his heart. I, but I think that you, but he doesn't think it's practical to pass, and he's you know as opposed to Bernie, who's a more offensive puncher, you know maybe because he's from Ohio, which is a more conservative state, or for whatever reason, maybe it's just temperament. He he punches more from a defensive crouch, if we were to put it in boxing terms. And uh, so he, because of the vulnerability of Obamacare and everything, he's he's chosen to focus more on defending that rather than advocating for Medicare for all. I agree with you, by the way. I'm I'm a big supporter of Medicare for all, but I just thought I would try to give some insight into can I, thinking. Can I give some insight into that, if you don't mind? Sure. Sure. Think of the the culinary union in Nevada and their opposition to Medicare for all. Sherrod Brown, Sherrod Brown is a big union guy. It's Ohio. He speaks for the union man. And uh, unions are worth discovering are as opposed to Medicare for all as corporations are, because we're discovering that health insurance is a form of control. If you're working the carving station at the Tropicana on the Las Vegas Strip and you're a member of the culinary union, you like your you like your health insurance. So you're not leaving that union. You're going to pay your dues. You're going to get in line. You're going to keep your mouth shut and do as you're told. And that's in the best interest of the union. That 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 is basically all the union has to get you is your health insurance. They don't necessarily have to get you a bigger salary. They can negotiate your benefits, and you're beholden and trapped in a job and in a union. That's both in the best interest of the Tropicana and the union. And I suspect Sherrod Brown really doesn't want Medicare for all because the unions don't want, or a lot of them. Well... Yeah, I, 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 as somebody who myself is tangled with labor unions, as I, in addition to Progressive Punch, I also ran a progressive super PAC called Progressive Kick and got involved in Democratic Party primaries, always on the side of more progressive candidates. And, um, you know, sometimes the unions were on the other side in a primary. Sometimes they were on my side, sometimes they weren't. Um, but I, it is, I mean, it needs to be noted that, you know, it's, it's, there's still millions of labor union members in the United States and many unions and they're not all in accord on Medicare for all or for, for other things as well. And some unions have endorsed Bernie Sanders, like the teachers in Las Vegas. And so it, it's really a case by case basis. And I think we, we need to, you know, keep that in mind. Right. Um, and, and all bureaucracies are self perpetuating. They have only yeah. their best interests in mind at first. I mean, if you if you're a teamster, yeah. if you run the teamsters, you care about the truckers. That's it. What's best for my right. truckers? It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to disagree with that. Uh, of course, what you're saying is is true about very true about bureaucracies being you know self perpetuating. 
Um, but when you talk about Sherrod Brown, what you're talking about his motivations and one of the strengths of progressive punch is that we don't get into people's motivations at all. We don't uh-huh. try to discern why people do what they do. We just look at the bottom line, which is their voting record. Right. You know, did you vote with progressives or not? Yeah. Right. Okay, so let's just go across and then we'll wrap this up. And thank you so much sure. for for do, for doing this. It's, it's a fascinating website. It's progressivepunch.org. Everybody should go there, type in your zip code, type in your senator or congressperson, and find out how progressive they are. Number seven, Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio. So let, let's go across his scores. And, and so he has... Sure. A lifetime record of 95.84% on crucial votes mm-hmm. and 92.8% uh, for 2019-2020 on crucial votes. Just a refresher, a crucial vote is... Um, a crucial vote, um, and again, we explain this in excruciating detail on the, the, what is a progressive score page. But for people who, who, you know, bought the crib notes in college and don't want to go into that level of detail, it's, uh, votes that were, that conform to our overall algorithm. In other words, it's progressives versus conservatives. There's a real ideological fight on that vote. Okay, so that's that's the overall votes. All votes that are that are counted in our database fit that criteria. So our, our algorithm automatically rejects votes like renaming courthouses or the two hundredth anniversary of the Girl Scouts, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's only ideologically polarized votes to begin with. But then the crucial votes are a subset of those overall votes. And the crucial votes are only votes which it was close. And we define close by a margin of six or less in the Senate or 20 or fewer in the House of Representatives. So it's close votes or votes in which so where there are lots uh, a of very defection. strong majority of so really a better name than together. crucial so votes would be where were you when we needed you I see and does a vote include yeah. say a confirmation of a judge or an up or down up or down on an article of impeachment and it's it's any vote again it's not Joshua Grossman it's not me it's the algorithm deciding which votes fall as long as they're ideologically polarized so in the Senate, as long as a majority of those 12 progressives in the cohort, so that would be if everybody was present voting, seven of the 12, as long as seven of those 12 people vote against the majority of Republicans, that vote falls in the database. It doesn't matter what it's about. I see. I see. And then going yeah, across- we tried to We tried to cut out individual preferences in this and make it as dispassionate as possible. Okay. And then the next column is overall percentage, uh, that would be a lifetime of overall would be for him 96.48. And then for 2019, 2020, it would be 89.5. So overall is a little, uh, not a subset. It would just be. No, it's a, it's a looser right. criteria where it's still the good guys and good women versus bad guys and bad women. You know, it's still ideologically polarized votes, but they're not necessarily close votes or not necessarily votes where there were a lot of Democratic defections. Right. So it's a much larger number of votes. And 
probably Brown's score dipped this year. I'm just going to guess because, you know, there's a, they, they've had a bunch of votes on judges and, you know, appointees and some, some senators will vote for the Trump, some of the Trump appointees because they feel like, you know, Trump has the right, any president has the right to appoint who he wants to stuff. So that's, okay. that's probably what damaged his score a little bit. Right. And he represents, so then the next column is state tilt. He represents Ohio and you have that as leaning Republican because Trump took Ohio. Yeah, we, we, there, there's actually, we, we borrowed from, um, progressive kick, the, the super PAC that I, Founded and which is sort of, uh, moribund right now, not active, but we, we have a lot of access to a lot of really detailed analysis about how Democratic or Republican states and districts are and also, uh, you know, how conservative or, or liberal they are. And we, we had a formula that we used to, that is based, um, mostly on the Trump percentage, but not exclusively. It also looks at demo- demographic change over time and um, a number of other factors, percentage of college-educated people in the state, et cetera. So that's how we come oh, up really? with state and district tilts, yeah. By co- I mean, I, w- I would think you would just add up all the Republican votes for the House of Representatives or all the ha- Republican Well, it's meant to be the, those state and there's district tilts. So on the House page, each of the 435 Congressional districts has a strong Dem, leaning Dem, swing, leaning Republican, or strong Republican tilt, and um, we, you know, we—it's meant to be somewhat forward-looking as mm-hmm. well. So it's based on past performance, but it's also, you know, changing demographics I over see. time. I see. And finally, this is, and then I'll let you go. He has a progressive score versus the state tilt of. Plus 22.51. Let me see if I understand this. Let me see if I can figure this out. So he gets a plus 22.51. And so somebody like Ed Markey, who's number one, he's in Massachusetts. That's a strong Democratic state. He gets a state tilt of plus 15 because it's easier for him, easier for Ed Markey to vote progressive then it Absolutely is. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. The last two columns on the right, on the, both the Senate page and the House page are what I like to call the physics for poets columns where we're grading on a curve and we compensate. It's not a steep curve, but there is a slight curve. And for those again who are, you know, really into the gory details, they can go to the bottom of those pages. And there's an explanation of the curve and how the curve works and all of that. It's all very transparent if somebody really wants to take the time to dig into it. Um, but yes, the short, the short version is that, um, Brown has a harder road to hoe when justifying progressive votes in a leaning Republican state like Ohio than Ed Markey or for that matter, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would in their states. Okay. Before you go, I'm just curious about your memory. You you can do you mind if I ask you about your memory? No, you can ask me whatever you want. Okay, so you can remember every congressperson and their punch card. 
Is that fair? Their score on progressive punch. I mean, I know people's approximate scores on progressive punch. I mean, remember the, the, this site, our, our site, both the Senate and House pages, the select by score pages are updated every night when Congress is in session with new votes, you know, every 24 hours. And so, um, you know, it wouldn't make any sense to memorize the exact score. But, yes, I, I, I know the names of all 535 members of Congress off the top of my head and the, um, you know, their approximate scores on progressive punch. Yeah. And with Congress people, can you remember their districts? Can you remember the gerrymandering that has gone on in the past 50 15- Oh yeah, really? Oh, yeah. yeah, really. How? Well, and how I, I still, even though I'm, even though I'm not running my super PAC anymore, I still advise a few wealthy progressive donors on which races to donate to around the United States. And you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm generally, I, I'm, I'm steep like a tea bag in this world. Well, I mean, do you mind if I just? I, I hate to put you on the spot. I'm just curious. Do you mind if I put you on the spot? Well, I'm not sure what you're trying to do. Well, like Alan Grayson. I, if I don't know anything, I'll, uh, if I don't know something, I'll, I'll certainly be honest about it. And okay. I, you and your listeners can laugh at me after I was bragging. No, know? no, no. You're like somebody like Congressman Alan Grayson. Could you tell me what he went through as a congressman? Sure. Um, so I, so I'm an acquaintance of Alan. Me so too. I should yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, um, but, um, you know, Alan, you know, it was an interesting, uh, conflation that a lot of, uh, news media did, including even, I think, progressive media with, um, how lefty or how progressive somebody is and how mouthy they are. And Alan, was willing, you know, on a, on a really good day, you know, he would speak truth to power in a way that very few people, including, you know, extremely progressive members would on a, on a bad day, you know, he was just kind of a mouthy person who didn't have good sort of control over what he would say. And so there, those are, those are sort of like two, two flip sides of the same, of the same coin. But his voting record was was never all that, you know, hardcore progressive, and he was never added to the progressive cohort while he was in the House of Representatives. And again, I don't there, – there, there's perhaps a tiny bit of human judgment that is involved in choosing whether to add somebody to the progressive cohort, but it's, you know, it's about 98 or 99 percent based on their voting record, you know, their actual votes they took. So it's like 99 percent science – and 1% art. And, um, you know, by the science, you know, Alan never came close even to being added to the progressive cohort. He just wasn't all that progressive. Right. But he I, was I, very I, outspoken. You know? Right. I, I'm curious, with your mind, do you know about the gerrymandering and the, the separate congressional districts that he ran in? I mean, how, how deep does that drawer go, drawer in your brain go? Deep. Like you could tell me what what happened, what which districts he ran in. Well, he his original district was, um, you know, uh, I mean, he, the the way I mean, Alan would say it probably, and I did ask him about this once, is that you know his his district wasn't all that progressive, and um, 
you know, he, he wasn't completely wrong about that. I mean, his, the district that he was certainly, that he was first elected from, um, was a lot more Republican than the vast majority of districts that are represented by hardcore progressives. Uh, so, so he, so he, he was, you know, correct in that self-defense. That said, uh, a lot of members of Congress or, or, and for that matter, state legislatures and other levels are, are sort of very quick to make, you know, that excuse for votes that they take, um, when they're pressed on it by a progressive, you know, they, 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 all, they always say, well, my district is more Republican and then, and, you know, so I have to do X, Y, or Z. But then when you really look at it, you say, well, you know, for example, I, and I'm not, this isn't a, a, a vote that Alan took, but this just as an example, you know, you, you, you voted to defend payday lenders. Do, do, do Republicans, average Republican people in your district really love payday lenders? So it's a lot of, a lot of the stuff kind of breaks down when you really put it yeah. under a microscope. And I think Alan could have had a more progressive voting record than he actually did. Um, but there's no doubt that he was outspoken about the things that he did care about and his, um, excoriation of the Republican health plan is urging people to when they get sick to die quickly i think will be right. remembered in the annals of great political rhetoric the 198 the 1989 starting lineup for the Oakland A's <laughs> now you're out of my you're out of my range <laughs> i i said congress i didn't say baseball <laughs> okay is your senator or congressperson progressive if so how progressive you need to go to progressivepunch.org to find out how your senator or congressperson is voting. Joshua Grossman is the founder of progressivepunch.org, and he joined us today from Bend, Oregon. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure, and I hope that people find it of use. I, As much as I knew about Congress myself, having followed it since I was 13 years old, I, I wanted to make this information available to other people. And I also, you know, even had trouble myself trying to see through the rhetoric. So this, this entire effort is a, is a way for people to see where the rubber meets the road and see how members of Congress are behaving. And I hope people will use it. It's been a labor of love. I certainly haven't made any money from this. It's something that I make available free to the public and we don't charge any we don't have any advertising, so um, I hope people use it. And can donate, too. Yeah. And stand-up comedy. <laughs> we we when, did you, to... when did you try stand-up comedy? Oh, just a little bit off and on over where? the years. In I, San uh, Francisco? In, yeah, in Berkeley, where I lived. I, I, I have some unusual performance things that I do that are not necessarily comedy, but I've done a little, tiny bit of that. I do some vocal impressions and things like that that are not per se comedy that's i've done more of that but it's not it's never something i've tried to make a living off of let's well, put it that way you haven't purchased my comedy algorithm <laughs> maybe i need to do that <laughs> say it's very simple the, the comedy algorithm is very simple i'm a teacher comedy okay and then i'll let you go so do you remember let's see i'm just trying to think of a joke that I came up with today. Okay. Do you remember the television show Good Times? Sure. F from you're, you're a little too young. Jimmy Walker. No, I remember it. Okay. I remember Jimmy, it. Jimmy Walker played. 
JJ. Kiddo Dynamite. Oh, well, hang on. Yes. Yeah, so his, his, this is, this is a joke I wrote today. Just jotted it down over coffee. He, he was JJ, but nobody knows about his sister, the JJ, whose catchphrase was gyno might. Okay. Now, this is the algorithm. Not funny, not clever, annoying, right? Like you're rolling your eyes and think, I can't believe I'm talking to this idiot. Now, here's where the algorithm kicks in. J.J. Walker played J.J. Turns out he had a sister named J.J. <laughs> whose catchphrase was gynomite. The algorithm is, if you repeat it five times, it's so annoying, it gets funny. That's the secret to comedy. I just gave you a $20 million algorithm, open source. It's free. Run with it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) See why it's funny? You see, like, you're just totally disgusted with me right now, and I'm going to end the interview with this, and it'll be funny. I'm not not disgusted. Maybe slightly mystified, Uh but not disgusted. Hey, you... This interview was gyno might. You're listening to the David Feldman show. You happy, self-actualized humps. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Did I get that right? I'm choking. You, you've been. <laughs> now you got this right so many weeks in a row. I, I feel like I should send you a blue ribbon. Well, thank you. Thank you. So we have a, a, a segment on the show with Dr. Barry Lynn, Religious Nut of the Week. And let's. Uh, each week, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, who is also the official pastor for the David Feldman show. He comes up with the craziest religious person for us and take it away, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm sorry? I can talk over the noise. No... My choice this week is former Trump advisor Frank Amedia, who is also a devout uh, right-wing Christian. Uh He was recently on a uh, television program in which he was discussing the coronavirus, which he says has killed tens of thousands more people in China than the Chinese government has admitted. But then he went on to say it was created in a laboratory in Wuhan, China, which, of course, is the epicenter of the uh, infection. But 
there's more. He doesn't just say it was created in a laboratory. He said it's not necessarily a bad thing because there's a bright side to the coronavirus, and that is that the precise location of Wuhan, China, is in the 1040 window. Now, perhaps uh, the Church of Feldman does not believe in the concept of the 1040 window, so let me explain it. It's the theory that between the 10th parallel north of the equator and the 40th parallel north of the equator is where the unsaved people live. Now, he says, the virus is getting so serious that it is driving the heathens to go into the home churches in China and also to get supernatural healing for the coronavirus and other ailments. So he thinks it's not that bad because after all it's going to be an impact that will lead people to go to the Christian churches uh, and be supernaturally healed. And that is nutty as a fruitcake. So how many Christians are there in China? Well, there are a lot of Christians in China, and um, they're not treated very well. And many of them go to what are called home churches, which is they'll go to someone's house and have a, a worship service on a Sunday that might take 45 minutes or an hour, and then they leave. And sometimes the Chinese government uh, beats people up on their way to the home churches. And I once, uh, in a debate... Talk about separation of church and state. Now we're we're talking. We're talking about it. (laughs) I once made the mistake uh, in a debate at the National Association of Broadcasters, Religious Broadcasters, which is kind of a right-wing group, uh, that um, I said, you know... I was debating some somebody at some college who was complaining that they had forced some Christian right group to meet off the campus. And I said, look, you can complain about this, but we're not exactly, this is not exactly China, where if you go to church at all, the government might come and beat you up. So naturally, then the right-wing religious news press the next day says lynn says not as it has to be as bad as china before we can see any damage to religious freedom for christians in america do they didn't they They complain isn't it easier to be a christian now in china than it was it is but i mean it's it's still i think safe to say it's uh it can become a very unpleasant experience and yeah, so that's okay very interesting well the coronavirus you know the coronavirus uh, i hate to sound like a doctor but there's two other developments in the coronavirus thing which i think might be worth a mention right now one is that uh, on monday 14 people arrived from japan on that airplane that was bringing people from the cruise ship uh, to the United States. And there were 238 people. And they found 
right before it left that 14 of those 238 people were in fact infected by the coronavirus. So then there became a debate between the Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, the Trump administration, political people who said, well, let them on the plane. And the CDC people said, wait a minute, they're, they're infected. They could infect everyone on the plane. And the Trump people said, well, maybe we could just put them in a small part of the plane and kind of uh, block it off with some, uh, uh, some sheets of plastic. And that's apparently what they did. But it's very dangerous. This is a very, very contagious disease. And to think that a bunch of politicos were going to be able to supplant the view of the Centers for Disease Control, which is truly a non-political entity, one of the great uh, bureaucracies in Washington, um, is outrageous. Okay. Do you think perhaps they're overreacting to the coronavirus? We had a reporter on the show last week from China Global Television, an American, and he says, you know, the flu is killing more people per capita in America than the coronavirus is killing people in China. Well, that's probably technically true, but of course the flu has been around a long time, and now we find out that uh, this year's flu vaccine, although it's slightly better for children than for adults, is not terribly effective. I mean, obviously you should still get it, usually because it's free. One of the few things in the medical profession that's free is your free flu shot. But um, I, I think this is much easier to spread and we don't know much about how it spreads and that's why it's even more dangerous but this idea that you can would you want to sit next to uh it's, it's kind of like the days of smoking on airplanes where they'd say uh well um yeah well from one to six you you can't uh, but row seven uh, you can smoke and then if you're in row six you go wait a minute but the smoke will come up into row six i'm I don't want to sit there. A no sneezing section. The no sneeze. There should be a no taking off your shoes section. There should be the no putting your uh, leaning your chair back section. Clipping that your toenails. A, the toenail thing. The having your your dog on the plane. I'm highly allergic to most dogs. I, I mean, I understand people they want a comfort animal, and then they they have restricted. Uh, they don't allow comfort goats anymore. Comfort lizards. People mm-hmm. used to bring on. You know what I bring? Do that. What do you bring? I have an emotional support gut fauna that I keep in a mason jar. <laughs> It comes with that gut fauna. That's great. Yeah. That's great. That's what you should. I, uh, I have one more thing about the coronavirus. I, I did not know this. I, I, our friends, Louis Black and John Fugel saying and several other people, uh, were at a, a thing on Long Island on Friday night to, to celebrate, uh, Valentine's Day. So Joanne and I went to see that. And, uh, during the conversation they were having, uh, somebody said, you know, people actually thought the coronavirus was linked to drinking Corona beer. I had never right. heard that. Yeah. But, but, so, <laughs> just. Well, remember just AIDS not, diet candy? AIDS <laughs> diet candy. Remember AIDS diet candy? Yes, yes. 
Yeah. I I hope Corona doesn't go the same way as AIDS diet candy. That's absolutely right. And that we never call something a bud virus either. Yeah. 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 So should we do our debate talk or should we do Bernie Burn? The, what is the new segment we have? It's burning questions for Bernie. These are the, as you know, uh, I have become a, a substantial, not 100% behind Bernie, but a substantial supporter of him and sending money. And I, uh, we have, I, we have I, a sound I, effect to introduce this segment. The sound effect. Go ahead. Burning questions for Bernie. I'm sorry. These are the questions I have for you. These are the things that are disturbing that I want some explanation for uh, before I send another check to Bernie. Okay, these are the burning uh, questions. And the first one has to do with one of his principal spokespeople, and that would be uh, Miss. Uh, <laughs> Let me make sure I, I can pronounce this correct. Uh, Brianna Joy Gray. Okay. You know yes, I know what so, she said. Well, she said two things that were just flat out wrong. One, she, she actually said there were 64 sexual assault claims against Michael Bloomberg. And that's, that's just not true. And secondly, she said that Bloomberg had had several heart attacks also not true. Now, I think that she also, I'm, I'm, I'm told, actually has said that she voted for Jill Stein in the 2016 election. Why is she still a principal spokesperson for Bernie Sanders when she makes stuff up about important issues and she was a Jill Stein supporter? Do you well, this. Uh, you want me to address that? I would love you to address it. Uh, we don't really know how many sexual assault allegations have been leveled against Michael Bloomberg. There are these NDAs, and I believe Elizabeth Warren went over that during Wednesday's debate. So, you know, the idea that she came up with this number of 64 and was just pulling it out of her hat, it may be more. Well, there may be none. But, well, oh, no, no, hang on, hang on. During the debate, he admitted you know, that there were NDAs, right? Yes, but he said none of them involved sexual harassment by himself, but aside from what he referred to as some people didn't like my jokes. Now, is that that is not exactly the sexual harassment. That's not good, but it's not the sexual harassment of which... Uh, for which Donald Trump has been accused by at least uh, 40 women. Oh, I know, I know, but I'm just asking you, did did the, the spokesman, did Brianna Joy Gray say that he was accused of sexual assault or s sexual harassment? I believe sexual assault was the phrase she used, and that's not true. There have been 64 no. sexual assault allegations leveraged against Michael Blue. Okay, that that that's a that's How okay. About that bad. You're right. You're right. Bad. Yeah. Bloomberg has had several heart attacks. She said that is also not true. He has two stents. 
is two stents, but that was in 2012, I think. Lots of people have stents. It is not connected to a heart attack. If you want my two, may I offer my two cents? You two stents or cents? My two stents, may I offer my two stents? Please. Uh, You know, uh, Bernie had two stents put in. Yep. And he didn't, you know, wasn't too keen on people knowing that he had a heart attack. Right. Uh, did Michael Bloomberg have a heart attack? Would we really know? We wouldn't necessarily know, but for her to say he had several heart attacks, that's false. I mean, this isn't just twisting the evidence a little bit. This is just making up your own evidence. And I think that Bernie needs to be above that and, frankly, needs to say to Brianna Joy Gray, maybe three strikes and you're out. You know, she's not as effective as some of his other spokespeople on television. And I think you can't just make stuff Okay. My response to this is this is a sick and diseased country uh, and we have to fix it. And it's hard to find good employees uh, and people are going to make mistakes. I want Medicare for all. I want free college, I want free tuition. I want the global, the, uh, the, the Green New Deal. If yep. one of Bernie's spokesmen is playing fast and loose with Michael Bloomberg's record, yeah, get rid of her. Don't get rid of her. They're playing fast and loose with Bernie's position on health care for union employees. Right. So uh, it doesn't concern me. It, okay. It, but I understand your concern if you're looking for reasons to be upset with Bernie, you can find them. Right, but I'm all I'm trying to do in this segment, which I hope we can continue in in future well, weeks. I already paid for is, this. Yeah, is to just make sure Bernie is to just make sure that uh, these questions are addressed because one of the many things we learned last night in the that excruciating ninth democratic debate was that if you are not prepared to answer questions or if you fib you're going to be somebody's going to catch up with you and that should not happen in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Okay, are there any other burning Bernie questions? Yes, there is. Okay. There is, but breaking news. Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay, breaking news. This has an effect on both Bernie and on Elizabeth Warren. As you know, I had a, a flirtation uh, with support for Elizabeth Warren many, many months ago, and I, it's been souring over the last many months. But then this afternoon, she announced that since everyone else does it, she is now going to accept the support from a super PAC called Persist PAC, which is prepared to spend $1.7 million on television ads in Nevada and South Carolina over the next 10 days. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I wasn't going to do this, but everybody else is accepting the money, so I will not repudiate that money now 
that's a, that's a troubling thing to me. You know, it's, it's like the Bernie thing that we talked about last week before we even had a segment called Burning Questions for Bernie. Uh, once you say, I'm, I'm happy to release my medical records. Then you have a heart attack. Then all of a sudden, well, I'm not going to release them. Mm-hmm. It's it's troublesome because we have to talk about transparency and we have to mean it. But this accepting of a, a super PAC by Elizabeth Warren um, is very disappointing to me. I've just been in conversation with someone on her staff uh, prior to coming on this uh, podcast, and uh, he was attempting to explain that she uh, she didn't want to have to do this, but you know everyone else has to do that. But the idea that everybody else does something that is corrupt, and, and therefore uh, I'm going to jump on board also, is not uh, within my sense of what is ethical right. for politicians. Let me, let me just address this for a second, because Alex Koch from Sludge does our show, and he wrote a piece about the accusations that Bernie Sanders is using a super PAC. He did create our revolution. Correct. And, and that is putting out email campaigns. I don't know about television ads. It's a 501c4 nonprofit not a super PAC. What is a 501c4 nonprofit? A a C4 uh, has, uh, if you're a C3, a general um, tax-exempt organization, you're not supposed to engage in any political activity whatsoever. You can take positions on issues, but you can't uh, specifically support candidates. If you create something else, a 501c4, you can communicate with your own supporters, uh, within reason to the, to specific candidates or political parties. Okay. And, you know, both of these were set up back in the glory years of the 70s and 80s as ways to clean up politics. And in my judgment, PACs, and to a slightly lesser extent, C4s, and then there's this other creation called 529s, are cancers on the idea of cleaning up the electoral system. Right. They're just, they're, they've been totally corrupted. And I do know a lot of the people with, with our, our revolution, and I, uh, and I think that because they're a C4 and because they're communicating only with their own supporters, this is not a super PAC. That's an unfair criticism. And but the other Bernie's, criticism is that Bernie's getting support from the National Nurses Union. I think they're based on the West Coast. And they've correct. spent, you know, close to $100,000 on uh, swag for Bernie. Yep. But... That's a union. That's not a super PAC, and that's not a million dollars on, you know, TV ads. No, but it is a pack, and and he does accept support. You remember, there's not supposed to be coordination between a pack that's supporting a candidate and the actual candidate, or and her or his a committee. There's a group called Dream Defenders that has uh, managed to spend about twenty two thousand uh, dollars in support of Bernie. The Sunrise Movement, mm-hmm. close to fifty thousand dollars, and. I think it would be a good thing for Bernie to say, I'm disappointed that Elizabeth Warren is now accepting super PAC money. I do appreciate 
the sentiments of these great people, the Dream Defenders, Sunrise Movement, are all predominantly young people interested in immigration reform, interested in uh, in uh, environmental justice. I like what they do, but I wish they wouldn't give money. But isn't isn't this what uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy had in mind when he wrote the majority opinion for Citizens United, that you really can't infringe on the First Amendment rights of individual groups who decide to endorse a candidate. Well, but I mean, there's a difference between nurses, a nurses union and the nurses on the West Coast have been very supportive of Medicare for all. Of course. And it only follows that they would be all in on Bernie. Aren't they entitled? It's certainly that's what the Citizens United decision said, is that a union should have the right to spend whatever kind of money they want on issue advertising that benefits them. It's been perverted by the Koch brothers. It's been perverted by corporations who have unlimited money, unlimited dark money. Uh, Isn't that what Citizen United had in mind to the the kind of people who are endorsing? No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think that's what they had in mind. And and I I want to point out one other. I went through some financial records this afternoon. There are Democratic candidates who won in 2018 who said we're not taking any money from any PACs whatsoever, including union PACs. Dean Phillips. He was a Democrat in Minnesota's 3rd District. He won in 2018, beat a terrible Republican, took no, not only no corporate PAC money, no labor PAC money. And in some of the records, it looks like maybe some interest group PACs managed to send, send him a, a few thousand dollars. But it can be done. You can win elections without taking PAC money of any kind. And the difference between the good guy PACs and the terrible evil PACs, uh, in my judgment, it's uh, they're both cancerous, and they shouldn't be there in the first place. They are creatures of Congress. In other words, people had to invent ways and then create rules for the political action committees. This idea of not coordinating with a candidate, of course, is is absurd. If you watch what was going on in the 2016 election, uh, there's no coordination between, uh, you know, the, the super PACs for Hillary and her campaign staff, but they all watch television. So if Somebody, uh, if somebody from one of the super PACs is on TV saying something, they don't have to f- pick up the phone and, and say to the campaign, hey, this is what we're saying today. Hope you join us. They see it on CNN. They see it on MSNBC. So this idea of no coordination, which is still part of the law, is toothless, really. Michael Bloomberg's going to spend half a billion dollars by the time Super Tuesday's over. Yep. It's all on what? Television advertising? Well, most of it is. I mean, maybe you could get a better debate coach. 
Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd spend a little money on that. But I do yeah. think I think Bloomberg to say his performance last night was lackluster is a, really an understatement. I'm being very kind about that. But I do understand why this probably happened. When you work for a politician, uh, the politician wants your input, but doesn't really want you to be very harsh on what he starts with or she starts with. And the staff working for politicians are very reticent about being honest and being forthright and being tough on their boss for fear that maybe they won't be as popular uh, after they do the briefing. And I, I want to give you a specific example of this. When Senator Bob Packwood, one of the last uh, actual uh, uh, Republican progressives in, from Oregon, and before he ran into his own sexual harassment problems, um, he was very good on any First Amendment issue, and I didn't really know him terribly well, but I got a call from his chief of staff one afternoon and said, uh, Bob's going on uh, Phil Donahue uh, tomorrow against uh, some right-wing loon in Alabama in the Senate, and uh, could you come over and participate in our a briefing and ask him some questions. And I said, well, 15 minutes away. And they said, well, we can wait. So they waited and I came over there. I never met him personally. They introduced me and I listened to a couple of questions from the staff and they were just softball questions. I thought this, this is not what he's going to be asked from the other side. He's going to be asked hard questions. So I said, uh, Senator, uh, you don't even believe in God, do you? And there were gasps. The staff were like, <gasps> that I would dare to ask that right. because I don't know if he did or didn't, but he, he, he was listed as a Unitarian. So some of those folks do and some don't. Hmm. But I mean, it was so shocking a question, but you know, having never met him before that every time i saw him for years afterwards in the hall or some he'd go barry thanks hey thanks for doing that help with my debate he he remembered it because it was what he needed whether he knew it or not and something that his staff would not give him and and to be accused of uh, sexual misconduct which name is worse Anthony Weiner or Bob Packwood? <laughs> yeah, I'm going with Anthony Weiner. I think you're right. I think yeah. you're right. Well, I want to ask you about the debates. Sure. Uh, you know, we can we can play the tape of you last week saying that you're giving money to Bernie, but you yeah. do think that Mr. Bloomberg makes the most sense. You were saying with a lot of hand wringing well-intentioned Democrats are, are thinking, and that is, you know, let's just, Trump is such a threat to the Republic. We need, uh, you know, the Roman Republic had uh, temporary dictators that they yep. would put in, and, com, you know, Cincinnatus, we talked about Cincinnatus Correct. with a another guest last week that he went in and calmed the storm and then went back to his farm. And that George Washington kind of modeled himself after Cincinnatus. And I think you, to some degree, view Bloomberg, or did last week as a Cincinnatus figure, who will come in, 
write the write the ship, and then when things settle down and we return to the glory days of 2015, we can start turning left again. That's what you were thinking. Do you still think that? I think that uh, the performance last night was so terrible that uh, it's hard for me. There are very few polls that I've seen today about what's happening, but um, there are better answers than he gave on some of the most important questions. And let me let me suggest a couple of answers. He should have known and should have been prepared and should have memorized answers to questions about stop and frisk, about the non-disclosure agreements and the underlying uh, terrible comments he's made about women. But try this out as an answer. I'm just making this up as I go along. He's criticized, of course, for being a billionaire. But he did say in what I thought was the best line, although it seemed like a throw away line he said well i'm a billionaire but i'm giving my money away why wasn't he more specific for example on stop and frisk he he said i apologized for that he should have said but you know that is not enough and in keeping with the fact that yes i am a billionaire i'm going to pledge today i'm going to give 75 million dollars to the campaign of any person of color who wins the Democratic primary and is working to defeat an incumbent Republican. Now, there are a lot of these primaries haven't happened yet, but so maybe he doesn't want to mention people's names like Jamie Harrison, who I've given money to in South Carolina to try to, to take out uh, Lindsey Graham. He could have done that also on the women question. He could have said, Look, I said some terrible things, and I apologize for that, but that is not enough. Because I know that in my early days in business, I sat at tables where people made rude remarks, sexist remarks, and I didn't say, that's inappropriate. In other words, pile on his own infirmities. And then make the same plea and say, but there are so many women, because I have a lot of money, and I want to give $75 million pledged to the support of any woman who is running against an incumbent Republican because we have to change the shape of the Senate. And that means Sarah Gideon in Maine. And we have to save Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Those states are a little bit clearer about what's happening before or during the primaries. But why doesn't he take on the money issue and say, look, I have a lot of money, I'm giving a lot of it away, and I specifically want to give it to persons of color and women who are running for the Senate to take out these god-awful people who are there now. Are you a reverend? Yes. Are you a lawyer? Yes. Are you a political animal? Yes. So you're suggesting a political solution to his problems, but are they moral solutions? Is there, is that moral yes. for somebody to say, I've done some horrible things, here's some money? I mean, in many ways, yes, that's, that's almost an NDA. It's a non-disclosure act. Here, let's make this go away. Here's some money. 
Well, you have to assume, I think you have to assume, as I do, that there is a core of decency in Michael Bloomberg. And that if you say, I'm sorry, that is not enough. And he should know that it's not enough. And he should acknowledge it. And then he should go pivot to the other major criticism. He is a billionaire. And say, not just some vague, I'm giving the money away. He should have made a pledge last night on the specific things to do. African Americans running, women running, and then come up with a third pledge, a $100 million to get people bust, if necessary, to the voting booths on Election Day. That would be substantive. It it could be viewed as a bribe, I guess. An but indulgence, perhaps? An indulgence. But what's what's morally wrong with saying, I screwed up, and in fact, I'm going to admit, I, I probably screwed up even more than what you know about. I'm going to acknowledge that I overlooked things I shouldn't have overlooked, but I have a lot of money, and I'm planning to use it for the best purposes so that we all can get together, defeat Trump, and flip the Senate. That well, is not an immoral position, I, in my view. Well, I think it reinforces the notion that there's a two-tier justice system in this country, especially when it comes to the court of public opinion. Suppose you don't have $55 billion. Suppose you do something wrong, you make a mistake, you say something wrong, and you don't have $20 million to throw at the aggrieved party. It, oh. it, it, you know, it's still there's something unseemly, especially in the Democratic Party. I mean, I don't mind it in the Republican Party. I expect that. But in the in the party of the working people, the 99 percent, when you have an oligarch, which he is you now, people object to the use of the word oligarch. Mm-hmm. He is an oligarch for him to be thrown around money. For forgiveness. The other issue I have is. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not throwing it around for forgiveness. It's throwing around as, as a kind of political reparation for past misconduct. Right. Because do, do you know who Amy McGrath is? She's She's running running for the Senate. Senate against McConnell. McConnell and Maggie Hassan. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at the names of the contribution requests I've gotten just since I came back from Boston. Barbara Bollier running in Kansas might be able to defeat uh, Chris Kobach if he gets. He's an anti-immigration nut. Um, Anti-voting nut. And anti-voting, he's a bit terrible at that too. So you've got, those are just three uh, women that really need help. And one of the things we learn, and I don't think this is, I'm not happy about this, is that money for television advertising really does work. We wouldn't spend so damn much money if it didn't work. And these people are raising money. They might raise enough to put up a good show, but... uh they could use that kind of support. Again, okay. it can't go directly to them. But I don't think there's anything immoral about getting spending money to get rid of Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell or uh, Klobach 
if if he's the nominee in Kansas. There's right. nothing immoral about giving money. Why do these people send me money, these things send me fifty dollars? Because if they didn't know that money mattered. Well, two things. One is I I I'm not so sure the money matters as much as we think it does. And I'm not so sure television advertising and Facebook advertising is as effective as we think it is. That's the first thing. You know, right now, Bloomberg is doing very well uh, looking at Super Tuesday where he's making his ad buys. Those are the primaries he's focusing on. That's polling. Let's see if that translates into actual numbers. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, it's not up to Michael Bloomberg to decide what the reparation is. When you commit a sin, you don't get to decide how you're going to repair it. Most people, especially when they go before the court of public opinion, they don't get to decide uh, what the right solution is. And it's the same thing with philanthropy, which I happen to be opposed to. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that you're worth $56 billion and you're going to give it away, how about the people decide how you're going to give it away? How about that goes to the government and there's transparency and elected officials, because I believe in democracy, the people decide sure. where that $56 billion is going to go away. That's the height of arrogance to assume that you know better. I'm Bill Gates. I can amass my own group of consultants, and we can figure out how to end world hunger. Yeah. When, or, you know, I, I think there are people in our government who have been studying world hunger for, for decades. I'd rather have the U.N. and the United States government ending world hunger than than Bill Gates. And when you tell me that somebody yeah. like Michael Bloomberg ran a successful business so he knows how to spend his money and efficiently and get things done, look at every town USA. He's poured a couple hundred million dollars into every town USA since Newtown. Yep. How's that working for you? How's the how's the gun show loophole? How's universal background checks? Not no, but I mean, but yeah, but just in uh, in Virginia, I think since we last spoke, uh, they one house has already passed, the other one is very likely to pass uh, an assault weapons ban in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He, Bloomberg gives a lot of money to that so local. What about group. the Parkland? They case. ask him. What What about Hyde? The Park and Emma Gonzalez. I mean, it's not just Bloomberg, and it may not be the money that comes from Bloomberg. It may be the emotional capital that's spent by those Parkland kids. It's possible, but, you know, I've met some of them, and I I mean, they're wonderful people, and they inspire me, and it's great to see this happening. But they do need financial support. And let me go back one step. I don't believe that, it, you know, if you asked Barbara Bollier or Maggie Hassan or Amy McGrath, um, what do you think about getting uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, to spend on ads? They're not going to say, and remember, they're the person running. They're not going to say, well, um, let me think about it. They're going right. to be happy to get it. 
They're going to be happy to get it because they see this as, to use a word, overused and misused last night, an existential threat to the republic to think that Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Klovak, and whoever is going to end up running against Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, that they are not at such a fundamental detriment to the country and to the people who live here. And like everything else, people without money don't, they always get screwed the hardest. There's no question about that. You flip the Senate, you get rid of these reprehensible characters like Mitch McConnell. You are going to make America better for every person. And if it takes a little extra money to do it, I don't think you should have a plebiscite among your supporters of Amy McGrath who go, um, should we, should we think about looking for money or should we not? That's not a fair question. Well, as you know, on this show, we come up with solutions. Exactly. And here's my solution. Are you ready? I'm, <laughs> yes, I'm ready. All right. Did you watch Mad Men? No, I never watched Mad Men. Okay. In one of the episodes, it took place in the Kennedy-Nixon election, this episode, 1960. Okay. And they, okay. Don Draper worked in an advertising agency. And one of the things Nixon did, which was quite brilliant, is he bought up all this airtime on local stations. And they decided to, I think the episode was they were going to then run advertisements for something, not Nixon, but they just wanted to make right. sure that Kennedy couldn't buy up the time. So okay. how about this for a solution? I have $400 million to spend. I have a billion dollars to spend. What is killing? What is killing our politics? It's the money. And why do people need the money for television advertising? What if I, Michael Bloomberg, decide to get the money out of politics by buying up all the advertising and for, you know, life alert, Every, you know, ah, that woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. I, I, I immediately thought I was actually talking to the woman from life alert. Yeah, just that. And, and, and every t and so instead of. A commercial for Trump or a commercial for Pete Buttigieg. Ah, ah, and they can't buy advertising. The, the television stations are going to be happy. But they, there's no room on the schedule for, for TV advertising. Yep. Do that for one election cycle, Michael Bloomberg. Spend a billion dollars. Jam the airwaves with life alert commercials. There, you've solved the problem. Can't argue with well, that, Reverend. No, but what what's the difference between your solution and my solution if it's all about flooding airwaves with things that are not the advertisements of Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and Chris Klovak and all the other skunks Including, well, you're I know putting she's on the my, show, but my, she's drunk. my idea is putting the political consultants out of business. Well, I, 
No. Yeah, yeah. No, if, if, no, if, if you no, buy up all the things. advertising, then there are no more political ads on TV. That's better. No, no. yes, that might be better. How do people learn about candidates? Why is it that during... Hang on for one second. It's happening. When you are home alone, an emergency can become a tragedy. However, with any of Life Alert's three emergency systems, help can be summoned immediately, whether in the bathroom... I've fallen in the shower. At home... Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. And on the go. Help, I've fallen in the park and I can't get up. Don't worry, help is on the way. Life Alert saves a life every 11 minutes. Unfortunately, it's the same (laughs) old bat who keeps falling down every 11 minutes. Yeah, Yeah, well, but that'll... Uh, you have to advertise a lot. You know, if t- people don't notice. That's why on the local news here in Washington, you'll see an ad for a car dealership, and then it, there'll be an ad for something else, and then the same ad for the car dealership will appear a second time. It's because the repetition of these ads is the only way people, in gen- statistically, are going to understand, oh, yeah, what's that? What, where should I buy my car? Yeah. But your, your issue with the consumption, Consultants, we live in a in a world where people watch television, where they listen to the radio, although not as much as usual, where they're constantly on their cell phones, they're constantly on social media. If you don't advertise, what do you expect people to do, particularly people who need child care? They don't go to town halls. They don't go to speeches. You know, Jack London was a socialist, and he ran for mayor in San Francisco, and he used to get huge crowds, thousands and thousands of people, and he figured, I'm a shoe-in, I'm going to win. He didn't win. He never became the mayor of San Francisco. But that idea that people are going to come and listen to you because you're a great orator, because you have great ideas, it is not consistent with the 21st century. You have to advertise. You have to... We don't even have local newspapers anymore. You have to advertise in USA Today. You have to advertise. The political consultants are necessary to help you shape shape a message or you end up doing what Michael Bloomberg did last night, which is not to have an answer for the most obvious questions that are going to be posed to you. How do you communicate with people? They don't read. People don't read anymore. Elderly people don't even have bus service to go to the center of a town to attend a public meeting with a candidate to hear what she or he has to say. You know, every bomb you drop costs about a million dollars. When when Donald Trump sends in those missiles, they're, you know, a million each. What if we were to fund a BBC-type operation locally? Every city had a, a real public radio station that covered the uh, the government covered that would be wonderful yeah it would be absolutely wonderful but but in in this climate who's going to support that do you, you know the new budget that uh, trump has come out with literally uh, zeros out all support for pbs and for national public radio because he hates them 
So do I. And, well, they're bloated. They don't need that kind of money. I mean, if you go to the National Public Radio offices here in Washington um, on one of their, you know, main shows, and they have seven people standing around uh, producing the show, of course that's bloated. Yeah. And, of course, they're not non-commercial because increasingly National Public Radio and PBS is brought to you by, and then they do, it's not an advertisement, but it's a kind of mini infomercial for some energy company or some other product producer. Mm-hmm. But but you're going to say, well, wait a minute, we, we, <laughs> we're not going to, we're going to start over and we're going to have every city hamlet town and village is going to have a public station to cover politics and the issues you ought to care about. Well, they already Where do. Where is that going to come from? Well, they already do. Every well, every college, <laughs> every public college has a radio station and they've all been taken yes, they over do. and they've all been taken over by NPR. They run National Public Radio and they have Almost no local programming. That's right. right. That's right. But are you going to tell, in order to break out of that phenomenon, you have to have people who can produce, who have the time, and you have to pay them. You can't expect people at college radio stations, having worked at one, you can't expect people to do a huge amount of work for nothing. It's it's, it's Well, the idea behind a college radio station is you would have your journalism professor running the newsroom, and the kids, I think that was the original idea for college radio is instead of uh you know instead of begging for a job at your college radio station and they go we need professionals because yeah. you have students and the best students sure. get their own shows and they you know they you have a newsroom that's run by the professors the teachers and the students and that would be a legitimate news source. This is this is a, a very interesting idea, but it is so far removed from what could happen in, uh, shall we say, the lifetime of the two of us that I think my idea of letting somebody get in there and even if she or he, there were very few she billionaires in this country, if he is willing to do this kind of advertising for these quality candidates who could be really reprehensible people in the Senate who are responsible. They're not just theoretically bad people. They have real-life impact, and you know that and I know that, that when when they start talking about cutting food stamps again, this is, this is life-or-death decisions being made by this turtle-like clown, Mitch McConnell. But why Kentucky. do you have faith in a billionaire? Why, why do you think... Because he's got the money. But I mean, it's like why people, why do people climb mountains? Because they're there. He, yeah. He, but- we want, I want him to give up that money and I want him to give it up for things that are going to make a difference. 
And I think giving money to these candidates and pledging to do so on national television so that everybody's aware of it and he can be held accountable for it is exactly the easiest way to make a change because he's got the money. How about we just take the money? And I'm being serious. How about we just decide, and I know you're thinking I'm being pie in the sky. No, no. But, you know, it's pie in the sky to assume that a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg is going to give away money without any ideological strings attached. The same, you know, uh, Bill Gates isn't giving that money away without any ideological strings attached. It's always private public partnerships with him. Of course. And Monsanto has to be in on it. How about we have a, a Democratic Party that throws the money changers out of the temple and says, you know what? You're not welcome here. No billionaires allowed. Mm-hmm. How about that? Well, um, uh, okay. I don't think what you're saying is is pie in the sky, but it's kind of a a red velvet cupcake in the sky because we have to do this very quickly. We have to do this in this election cycle in order to survive as a country. You know, when people were talking about environmental degradation, environmental justice, I mean, I was talking about that and working with colleagues on that in 1975, Mm -hmm. that look at where they're putting the Superfund sites. Look at where they're putting the polluting plants. They're all in the poorest sections of either rural America or inner cities, disproportionately affecting everything, including the health of black and brown people. We've been talking about this forever. Now it's time to do something because we are running out of time to do it. This this is an echo of what... Of Pete Buttigieg. This is what Pete Buttigieg said Wednesday night. He said, this is our moment. The time is now, not 2050. Climate change. We're running out of time. This is our moment. This is our time. And Americans have a choice between revolution and me, who will build consensus with the other side and bring in businesses and public partner. Really, In other, he's saying this is our. It's, it sounds good. This is the moment. This is the time. Uh, we're on the cliff. We're about to fall over. So let's ask Exxon Mobil to help us. That's what Pete Buttigieg well, is saying. Yeah, but no, he's a lost cause. He is not. He and Amy Klobuchar are both just quit right now. Because those answers, those more than centrist answers that don't come with anything in addition, like a pledge to raise money to make sure that we have a Congress that isn't completely corrupt, a Senate that's not completely vindictive. You, you don't, I don't care what, I don't understand what Mayor Pete thinks he's going to do. He, he sounds, um, his interchanges with Andy Klobuchar last night in the debate, <laughs> We're a disgrace to both of them. Well, it was why I didn't know the name of the the president of Mexico. Are you calling me stupid? That's 
this is this is what makes these debates. This is the ninth debate, and I got to tell you, I don't think it was any better, even though it had fewer people, than the first and second debates. They covered the same damn issues over and over again, the same kind of platitudes. At some point in the last couple of nights watching Amy Klobuchar, she seemed to be channeling Marianne Williamson with these, we want to be good to people. That's not going to win anything. That's If you look at Amy Klobuchar's plans on her web page, they're sparse, shall we say. Sparse. It could be put on a post. She is not the future. Mayor Pete is not a post. No, and she's not even funny. I know. I know. You know the people. Oh, she's funny. Well, she's funny in the same way that uh, people think uh, Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy are great comedians. She ain't. She ain't funny, and she looks. Joe Biden did better last night. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, he did. He did better. And um, he's going to get a little bit of a bump from that. Elizabeth Warren's going to get a lot of bumps for that. But before we we have to leave, I do want to say one thing, another unpleasant thing, I think, about Elizabeth Warren, if you don't mind. Anything unpleasant about Elizabeth Um, Warren is pleasant with me. Go ahead. (laughs) Remember a few weeks ago, of course, she claimed that Bernie had told her that a woman could not beat Trump. And uh, I'm sure that that was a a mythological statement that she promoted. Then last night, going after Bloomberg, she says the following. I'd like to talk about who we are running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horsey-faced lesbians. And I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. The first thing I thought with that, uh, everybody think, oh, it's so great. She's really putting it to him. That's going to become a major piece in the unlikely event that Bloomberg is the nominee, that's what all of the pro-Trump PACs are going to say about him. They're going to quote Elizabeth. They're going to use that clip from that debate. Good. And she ought to know better in both of these cases. She ought to know better than to give the other side ammunition against Bernie who looks like he's going to be the nominee, or Bloomberg, who doesn't look like he's going to be the nominee. You don't do that. You don't give the enemy of everything good, Donald Trump, those clips that are going to be used against him. I, I remind people all the time that it wasn't the Republicans who came up with the Michael Bloomberg story about Willie Horton. Oh, the Michael Dukakis. Democratic opponents. Michael Dukakis. What did I say? Uh, Michael Bloomberg. Michael Dukakis. Yeah. Uh, It's Michael Bloomberg. Well, you hire me. Hey, the Um, uh, steel. No, but I mean, the the steel memo was Ted Cruz. The steel memo was Ted Cruz originally. Of course it was. Of course it was. And, um, but. The you, you don't you don't do this. You don't. I, I know Elizabeth Warren thought it's all or nothing last night. Like if I don't do really well, I'm completely out of this. I'm sinking so fast that I'll never recover. And so I'm sure one of her handlers said, "You have to get tough. You have to find a way to be tough 
with the one guy that's rising and taking some of your votes, Michael Bloomberg. So she comes out with this statement. That's the first thing out of the out of the uh, gate, and it's just it's just going to be used. It, it, it's pointless. I mean, I know she's raised a huge amount of money in the 24 hours since the debate, but if that's all it's about, just raising money, making sure you have enough money for the ad buys, um, then you're no different than anybody else except Bernie, who's not doing that, although he would like to raise hundreds of millions of dollars also. Let's face it. Yeah, the the problem is a corrupt system. It's a very corrupt system. And it's really unseemly that Michael Bloomberg thinks he can buy a home inside the Democratic Party. And I'll tell you this right now, Reverend. I'll tell you this right now. I would vote for anybody the Democrats nominate. However, Michael Bloomberg, if he gets the nomination... It's the end of history. Remember, Francis Fukuyama talked about of the course. end of history when sure. the Cold War, because there was no more dialectic yeah. going on. And yeah. once Bloomberg becomes the nominee, it's the end of American history. There's no longer a choice. And, you know, the Republican Party showed its true colors four years ago. And, yeah. if, Blo- and if Bloomberg. If Bloomberg becomes the nominee, that is the culmination of 20-some-odd years of Clinton neoliberal erosion. And I got to tell you, it would take, uh, you know, I'll probably vote for him. But in the primary season, I see nothing wrong with somebody like me saying, I'll, I'll vote for Trump over Bloomberg because in the end, I hear uh, he doesn't belong in the Democratic Party. It's a disgrace. And, he, and you know, for you to say that he has, you know, I, Thomas Friedman says he has a heart of gold. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, I, I would not. I would not say that. I'm just saying, is there the profound evil? See, I do believe in the concept of evil. Well, you're and talking I do to believe evil. that Donald you're on, Trump. You're on the show with I'm, evil. I'm, I'm talking. <laughs> I'm talking about real evil. I'm talking about real evil. I'm talking about the kinds of things. Uh, just before uh, we began uh, chatting tonight, of course, uh, Trump was in Colorado, where he, in his most junior high school mode insults Amy Klobuchar, not because of her policies, which I think are worth insulting, but because but her appearance and the fact that she's she seems to be nervous. And then he refers to Mayor Pete as Alfred E. Newman. And uh, to the extent that, you know, his many of his voters actually read Mag, Mad Magazine, they might know who Alfred E. Newman is. But I mean, for to think that the president of the United States, who has just learned today that uh, his national security uh, international intelligence guy had testified last week to the House and Senate intelligence committees that Russia is already actively engaged in what? Efforts to get him reelected. Uh, he, he gave a little a statement a few hours ago where he said, uh, uh, this is going to be used by my Democratic opponents like Adam Shifty Schiff, uh, 
and they're going to use it to smear me and hope that they can cause my re-election uh, to fail. He doesn't even want to hear that. That is evil. If he doesn't care, I mean, let's face it, Putin wants Dan, uh, Donald Trump to be president. Why? Well, it's a trifecta of reasons, because he's easily manipulated, he's dumb as a rock, and he's so arrogant that he can be melded into doing what Putin wants. This is evil. Okay, let me ask you a question. Mayor Bloomberg is evil? No. He's not, he doesn't have a heart of gold. He's just a heart of lead, but it's not venal. It's not poisoning the water supply. Okay, I, I don't want to discuss whether or not Bloomberg is evil, but we have to wrap it up. I want to ask you about the movie The Assistant and Ferry to, uh, David Ferry, Joe Pesci. Question. <laughs> in a second, in a second. You're sure. a reverend. Yes. Do you believe that we should take care of the least among us? Of course we should. Should that be our top priority? Uh, yes, I think it should be our top priority. And ending world hunger? Well, yeah, because that's the least among us. These are people starving to death in many of the continents we don't even travel to. Okay. We don't know anything about them. Or in but this of country. Of course we should be. In this country. In this country. You know, when Michael Harrington wrote The Other America about going to West Virginia and seeing the extreme poverty there, 30 years later somebody did the same trip and basically found out that nothing had changed. That, that poverty, the excruciating poverty, was the same as it had been the day Michael Harrington wrote The Other America. How many years after? That's pathetic. How many years after? I think he wrote, uh, I think the guy who did the t- uh, trip was uh, about 30 years after Harrington's original book. Well, that would have been about 10 years after Reagan came into office. The fact is that the war on poverty was a tremendous success. That it lifted of course it millions of people out of poverty. Then Reagan got elected. Uh, so I'm and not people so sh- went back into poverty. I'm sorry. The people went back into poverty because of Reagan's goofy economic policies. Okay, but so at least, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so do you do you believe in Medicare for all? I, I believe in Medicare. Medical treatment is a human right, and I I think that Medicare for all needs to be improved a bit. But yes, fundamentally, that's that's what we need. We should not have, as Bernie always says, this should be a matter of right and not of privilege. Do you believe that health care is preferable to health insurance? That there should be no such thing as affordable health care. There should be free health care in this country. Yes, I do. Okay. Absolutely. Do you believe in free tuition at all public universities? Uh, yes, I. Yeah, I'm a little less completely convinced that that's the best way to go. But okay, and we should test it. We. Should, I mean, look, it's it's the way education occurs in a lot of democratic socialist countries, and we ought to try it here because it'll work just as well here as it does in Norway or Sweden. Okay, I'm moving towards a larger point, Reverend. Okay, uh, you have some money. 
Who have you given mm-hmm. it to? Who have you given your money to in, the, in this campaign? I've given money to Amy McGrath. I've given money to Maggie Hassan. I've given money to John Hickenlooper in Colorado. I've given money to Bernie, and uh, I've given money to voter turnout organizations okay, so also. You've given, you've given money to Bernie. Yeah. Amy McGrath yeah. and Hickenlooper, I don't believe, are of the same cloth as Bernie. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Okay. They're not. No, they're, Amy McGrath is, you know, Mayor Pete, basically. True, yeah. but she ain't running for president. She's running against Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this has been an interesting conversation. I'm going to make a larger point by reading you some poll numbers. And All right. I'm going to say that you sound like... So many Democrats who have lost faith in in politics, the American people, our government, and what we're capable of doing. And that while you want Bernie, you would prefer, I would assume, somebody like Bernie defeating Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, not Amy McGrath. Is that a fair statement? Correct. That's certainly a fair statement. So it's you're being practical. By giving her money, right? Yes. You're, you're 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 saying, ah, listen, we no, got. I be- am, I am. Okay, and, yes. and and because you've spent decades in Washington D.C. and you're hyper educated, you kind of know the way the way things are. Okay, and you and you. Ex- I think that's fair. Yeah, and you kind of accepted that the American people are a certain way and the system is a certain way and you have to be practical and realistic. Right. Okay. Bernie, what if I told you, let me just go over some poll numbers here. Of course. That, that may surprise our listeners. I'm going to assume, you know, these numbers, but I'd like to go over these numbers every show. So my audience. Sure. Uh, A month ago, Joe Biden was in the lead. According to the real clear politics averages, as of today, Bernie Sanders leads the pack by 11 percent. That's the ABC News, Washington Post poll, Emerson, Economist, NBC News, NPR. If you average out all the polls, Bernie is leading his nearest competitor by 11 points. And that nearest competitor would be Joe Biden. Okay. (laughs) So Bernie is leading nationally, and that becomes an important number nationally because we're approaching Super Tuesday, and Super Tuesday is kind of, you get an indication how Super Tuesday is going to turn out by looking at the national polls. Let us now turn to Nevada. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sanders is leading by 14 points. That's the spread, 14 points. Biden, I mean, it's double digits. Sanders leads sure. 30% to Biden, 16%, Buttigieg, 14%. Okay, Nevada, you think, okay, that's, you know, that, that shouldn't surprise me. Now let's go to South Carolina. Uh, well, I saw different polls, but Biden is leading by 3.7%. Uh, 
I thought I saw something. I thought I saw good news for Bernie in South Carolina. I'm surprised. All right, so you know about Super Tuesday. California, sure. Bernie leads by 11%. Yep. Are you sitting down? I am. Texas. Who do you think's leading in Texas? I think Bernie's leading in Texas. You are correct, sir. A month yep. ago, did you ever think of all places that Bernie would be leading in Texas? Did you ever think Bernie Sanders would be leading in Texas? Well, Texas has a very rich liberal tradition. Um, it's on the... It, remember, it is a place that... Uh, once had a governor named Ann Richards. So it's declined, but it, that, that core of people in El Paso, in Austin, there's a hell of a lot of very progressive people in Texas. So it, it doesn't shock me. Are what you going to talk about do? California? Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. California, what? No, but, but California, Bernie's way ahead, and Bloomberg, who has spent an incredible amount of money, I was in California a couple of weeks ago, you, you, you virtually, you thought it was somebody had bought the Life Alert uh, advertisement. There's so many advertisements for Bloomberg, and he's not doing well yeah. in the poll in California. Not do, doing well at all. And on Super Tuesday, Texas and California are basically the whole enchilada. Yes. You can win everything else on Super Tuesday. You win... California and Texas, you become the presumptive nominee. So let me ask ye of little faith. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do if you wake up on March 4th and yeah. Bernie is the presumptive nominee? What do you do? Do you still give money to Amy McGrath? Or do of you course. start or or? Or do you start thinking, wait a second, maybe conventional wisdom is wrong and the way to beat McConnell and Lindsey Graham is by nominating somebody who speaks to the 100 million Americans who can vote but don't? Uh, I've been waiting for those people to vote for a very long time. And you have to. Well, what am I going to, how do you go, the Amy McGrath has, uh, I, I wrote a thing about Amy McGrath on so, uh, social media a couple days ago and somebody said, she wants to have clean coal, I'll never vote for her. Well, so does Mitch McConnell. Amy McGrath, if she's in, is not going to have any power to stop legislation. She is not going to be voting for every creep right-wing judicial nominee like even Amy Klobuchar has done. So she's going to be better. I'm going to continue to give her money and um, because I'm not going to wait for somebody else to come out of the woodwork. Why do you think... I know we're out of time, but... No, no why did AOC, you can go... What, I'll go as long as you Why did AOC... Well, why did AOC say of Medicare for All a few days ago, well, that's the way we start, but if it ends up that we just end up with a public option, that's not the end of the world. Why did she say that? 
I don't know that she said that. I'm not happy. Yeah, she did say that. Okay, well, uh, if it, what she's saying, and I think Howie Klein has echoed this, and I think Ben Burgess has said this on the show, and I've said this on the show, and I'm about to say it on the show. All right. It's the primaries. Why would you push the public option? The public option is Bernie addressing the United States people, prime time, explaining and apologizing the way Jack Kennedy apologized for the Bay of Pigs. I take responsibility for this. I yep. believe in, in Medicare for all. And I just don't have the votes. And I, as your president, I have an obligation to improve this. So we're going to do a public option, but I will continue to fight for Medicare for all. The public option is anything but Medicare for all. It's not even a cousin of Medicare for all. It's, it's insurance. The public option of course is, it is. Yeah. God forbid, by the way, MSNBC and their three hour lead up to the debate for, <laughs> could spare two minutes to, to, you know, just take a little vacation from the horse race and explain <laughs> the difference between a public option and Medicare for all. God forbid they have a, a, a package prepared, a video package that they run explaining yep. what this all means. No. Yes, that's because, as you know, during the debate, I mean, I got a, a note today from somebody saying, why in the world were they running Bloomberg ads during the debate? And I said, that was a mistake. But the bigger mistake is all the damn pharmaceutical company ads about uh, surprise billing and all the solutions, all of which are big corporate solutions or big pharmaceutical interests. Why are they being run one right after the other during the debate, which was watched by the, the highest number of people that ever watched a debate? I think it's 18 million people watched last night. Oh, really? All subjected. Yes. Yeah, oh, that, huge, those are those are biggest, huge numbers. That's good. They're a huge number. That's they're good. huge numbers. But and, and we know why they took the money from the pharmaceutical companies. But in the middle of a debate where this was an issue that should come up, it, it did. I mean, nobody. When you talk about health care, nobody even talks about the surprise billing things and the other issues. And Trump says, well, I, I ended surprise billing, and it, he didn't do it. He, it's That's a complete fabrication. But why don't they fix it? Why don't they run ads for something else? Why don't they add, run ads for hunger groups? Why do they have to make money? And the answer is... 18 million people. Yeah. And that's it, a corruption. That's yeah. a total corruption of what should happen. Record ratings. Is that because of Bloomberg? I don't know. I mean, I, I would speculate that it probably is, but I haven't seen any evidence of that. Yeah, I'm looking at the story right now. Close to 20 million viewers for the two-hour mm -hmm. telecast. Yeah. Um, the previous mark was set in June of 2019. Yep. Interesting. Very interesting. Yep. Well, uh, dream big. Well, I'm dreaming big, but I do want to, I don't want to forget. Let's talk that, about the assistant. Um, 
the assistant uh, of all the movies out about the me too movement um this is a this is the best one this is um this is a, a little indie film i think uh, Produced by Bleecker Street, that new company that puts out movies. And it's about a young woman who gets out of college and then immediately gets a job, high pressure job as an assistant to a Harvey Weinstein type entertainment mogul in New York. Mm -hmm. And although she is not sexually harassed, but she finds out, and, and it's done in a very clever way where you 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 can't quite hear what people are saying and at first i thought it was my ears and my hearing was going but it's all a part of this marvelous director's approach to put you in her place she knows a little bit about what's going on in the company but never enough and there's a kind of an iconic little section She's in a, an elevator with three Japanese businessmen and they, they're not harassing her. They, you don't know what they're saying. They're speaking in Japanese. She doesn't understand Japanese. Neither do you as a viewer. But it, it the point is that this movie says she discovers things by implication. She starts to notice the harassment that's going on of other people. She attempts to do something about it, and there's nobody in the company willing to help her, and she gives up. Hmm. That's the story of sexual harassment and the status of women in big corporations, and it's done vastly better than in a bombshell or, or other movies that have big big stars in it and I, I heartily recommend it julia garner is the name of the woman who plays it and kitty green is the director and uh, it's just a marvelous little movie and a lot of people aren't going to see it because they never heard of it right and it doesn't have charlie's Theron in it yes yes well, last week I quizzed you because you like movies, and I, yep. and I said that in The Irishman, Joe Pesci plays a character named McGee, or Russell Buffalino, his nickname is McGee, and he sends yep. the Robert De Niro character down south to participate in the lead-up to the previously mentioned Bay of Pigs operation. Correct. And he says... Pesci says, you're going to meet a fairy named Fairy. And I asked you why that was an inside joke. And you didn't know. I didn't know. And I asked my listeners to write in. And the, answer, right. and the, the correct answer is, do you want to tell people? Well, in uh, in the movie JFK uh, that has uh, Kevin Costner playing this Jim Garrison DA character in New Orleans, who was obsessed with the Kennedy assassination, uh, Joe Pesci plays Fairy, Mister Fairy, a fairy who is gay character, and he's named Fairy. Right. I can't tell you how many people have written. Just to me, and I'm assuming more people wrote to you, clarifying where it comes from. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know it. 
I'm embarrassed that I don't know how many listeners we had. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people that apparently watch movies. So I, I, there, yeah, there were a lot of people who wrote to me via the contact page. So moving forward, the Reverend. Yes. I, I, I'm just thinking out loud. If you want to contact me, there are three ways. You can call the hotline number. And that number is, no, I don't have it in front of me. We have a hotline number. And where is it? Oh, come on. All right. There's a hotline number. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. The hotline number's there. You can leave a message. If it's clean, we'll play it on the air. The other way to contact me is uh, under Ask Me Anything. And there's a personal contact that you can hit, and then you can write me a personal note, and I'll respond to it. And then there are listener questions. And just so we go over the ground rules, if you write a personal note to me, I'm not going to read it on the show. Under uh, listener questions, then eventually we'll get to it and read it on the show. And in the future, when we give off, give off, emit, when we ask a question like this, I, there's a part of me that feels I should have collected all the names and read them yeah. on the show. But yeah. we have to have a system in place because I was stunned by we got, I got about 20 people who contacted yeah. me. And how many people That's contacted right. you? Oh, I'd say a dozen people. Uh, I, but I don't have a, a page that you can. I mean, I, I, they contacted me through Facebook, Twitter. Interesting. The things I, you know, am old enough to hardly know how to use. So we should think of a a a question, a trivia question that you can't Google. Yep. Like a puzzle. Right. Right. And maybe we'll have a a box on my website where people can, you know, put, put the answer yeah. in. Uh, d- Let me just uh, make one suggestion. When I used to do uh, radio with Oliver North, um, great man, have great man, great man. <laughs> if you look at his, uh, the fact that he's opposed to the death penalty, yes, a good man. Now, uh, we used to have contests, and uh, we would give out personal items, and uh, I would give ties from the back of my closet. I don't have as many ties he would now give, because uh, I don't really wear them anymore. He would give missiles. He would give missiles. He would give, no, he would give, he would give, he would sell you missiles. Right, that's right. But, um, but no, but that's, it. perhaps it's part of the corruption of money in the economy, but it did increase dramatically the number of people who would enter contests or answer questions if there was a reward at the end. Just think about it. Just think about it. Well, there there was a guy. I'm doing my email. I'm answering emails (laughs) this week, and then at the end of the week, I thank people who've donated to the show. And one guy, one guy got the answer correct. And then sent me money. <laughs> and the letter that I'm going to write to him is, 
this is the greatest contest in the world. If you get it right, you have to send me money. Absolutely. It's, that's, it's, I think that's the way to do it is to ask some, you know, offer up some puzzle. If you get it right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get a bill from me. <laughs> I invoice you. Yeah, would you give me 10%? Yeah. That's a tie. Yeah. That's we'll a tie. Yeah. The 10%. Well, this is fantastic. Right. Oh. But we have to wrap right. up. Let me give you, uh, okay. Let me give out your Twitter handle. It's at Barry W. Lynn, two R's, two N's. Yeah. Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is an ordained minister in the United Church. 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 Church of Christ. You've got it. And I didn't even show it this time. I, I, I screwed up the sound. I had... Ah, oh, hang on. <laughs> stay, stay on the line for one quick okay. second. Hang on. All right. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Joining us from Los Angeles, it's Liam McEnany. His comedy album is Working Class Fancy. His comedy CD is Tell Your Friends. He'll be at Vitello's, I believe, tonight. Tuesday. 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 He'll be at Vitello's in, in, in the Valley of Los in Angeles. In the Valley, Studio City. And also... I'm happy to announce I'm doing another Tell Your Friends live show at the Hollywood Improv in the Lab, which is their small space, March 10th, which is a Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. It's prime time. Fantastic. 202-670-2752 is the number. Leave a message. Liam and I will play it. 202-670-2752. It's the I can't end. promise we'll respect it, but we'll play it. We will play it. It's the end of the week. Liam comes on the show once a week to mm -hmm. answer listener questions. We've got a ton of them, and we have limited time. Liam Before we get to it, David, I just want to say condolences, first and foremost, uh, on the death of Cy Sperling, president of Hair Club for Men. I know this is probably a really dark time for you, and I'm, I'm glad that you're able to take some time. I actually met Cy Sperling. Did he pass away? He passed away. And I know what you're going to say. Not not all of your listeners, a lot of your listeners are like, not my president of Hair Club for Men. I didn't vote for him. I get that. But it's still sad to see a great statesman pass away. He was, he was the president. Duly elected. <laughs> Is his son the hair apparent? Oh, my God. God. I met uh, him when I was getting hair transplants. <laughs> I'm serious. I had to get fitted uh, for something to cover up the scabs on top of my head. Um, so, uh, yes, I met him years that's ago. That's why you should always hire Union, David. Scabs. Yes, they put. Yes, they put. Yes. Very funny. Hey, uh, a <laughs> lot of questions from our listeners and a lot of voicemails. Let's just get right to them. Okay, Let's Liam. Get right to it, buddy. Let's and, do it. And, and you're going to be nice, right? Yeah, of course. I'm always nice. Okay. I'm always nice to your listeners when they deserve it. 
202-670-2752 is the number. If you're in your car and can't write it down, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We have an Ask Me Anything button, and there you will find our hotline number, 202-670-2752. And our contact page, you can ask us questions by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. Did I say dot com? That, uh, well, I know you definitely felt it. Okay, here we go. First voicemail. Hello, David Feldman. Uh, you can call me Daya. I am calling from Denmark, and I am a member of your show because I really enjoy it. But I have a couple things I'd like to say. Um, I-, I, I think I know this person. Uh, she is a listener. Uh-huh. She has contributed, and she is an mm-hmm. expat living in Denmark, which I believe is okay. Bernie's Valhalla. I think Bernie refers to Denmark as uh, an example of what we can achieve here in the United States. Did you watch the debate? If we're, if we're a nation of 55,000 in a <laughs> in the country the size of a postage stamp, yeah. Upward that mobility. Was- Mayor Pete cited Denmark as an example of where the American dream now exists. Well, that guy is a genius. So definitely, uh, yeah, I watched it. I watched the debate. It was, uh, probably the best political debate I've ever seen in my life, just in terms of sheer spectacle. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Let's go on. Let's listen to her comment. I've been listening long enough to remember that you used to say that when we used your link to buy crap on Amazon to let you know and you would thank us. Well, I stopped letting you know because you never thanked me. But never mind, you're a busy man. Well, I I would thank you. I answer all my emails. I answer all my emails. So I I don't know if I got your email, Diab. So why don't you send me another email? And I will thank you for doing all your Amazon shopping via the Is this your aunt? No. She's she's nagging you like an older female relative. Be, ni- be nice to the I'm listener. I'm saying she sounds like an older Jewish lady who's who's holding a grudge for no good reason. This That's is all. a Dane. A dame who's a Dane. I'm sorry. I would never. I apologize. I, I didn't mean to compare her to a Jew. <laughs> what? A Jew. <laughs> I know how they feel about that there. Victor Borga was uh, Jewish and Danish. Did you, you know that? Uh, no. Right. In fact, uh, hang on. What's the joke I had? Bernie loves uh, Denmark. And you know who really loves the Danish? Chris Christie. <laughs> All right, let's go back to. Um, I became a member right after your discussion with Joe DeVito and about his grooming habits. Um, and I'm kind of disappointed that um, you guys haven't talked about it again. Um, and speaking of memberships, um, I have a new credit card, uh, which means you aren't getting my money anymore. And when I went on your website to change the credit card number to the new one, I did not find a place to do that, uh, which makes me think that maybe you don't need my money anymore because you've gotten so successful. I- Boy, why am I hard? Why am I hard right now? <laughs> I think it's going to be uh, ex-Mrs. Feldman number four on the line right there. 
I think the way it works is <laughs> I think you just have to sign up again. I, I don't know. I think what you do is you, I think the payments get suspended if you're a monthly contributor and then you just re up with the brand new credit card. You have to sign up again. I don't think we have that kind of membership where you can alter your credit card unless you do it through PayPal. I don't know. But my suggestion to you is if your credit card is expired, they will stop billing it. So just rejoin. It takes two seconds. You have to go to the donate link on your website and then click on monthly donation. Right. And, uh, and I'll thank you. Apparently not. All right, Apparently on. David Feldman is not a man of the people. Or of his word. Or of his word. Right. David Feldman is not a citizen. Okay. He's not a man of the polis. But, but Denmark, not Poland. <laughs> no, pol- politician. Polis means people. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and you're yeah. a man of the people, right? I am I am a man of the people. You, you trust like someone saying... In the shape I'm in right now, I'm one and a half men of the people right now. <laughs> you trust the American people, don't you? You know what? I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't trust the American people as far as I could throw them. Are I you, love the American people, but I wouldn't let them drive my car, that's for sure. Are you rooting for the American people? You really want to get into an argument about politics. All right, let's, okay. let's finish this. No, no, part. no. You want, you want me to fight you about Bernie. It's okay. No, it's you had okay. a great showing. He had a great showing in the debate the other night. It was it was it was uh, wonderful. It was really good. When uh, when Bloomberg made that uh, unfair crack about how he's a millionaire with three houses, mm-hmm. and he came back by just sputtering angrily and and kind of <laughs> like almost literally exploding. It was really impressive. Do you think it's hypocritical for Bernie to be worth maybe one million, maybe million and a half? I think. If that's gonna have him have an almost total meltdown on the debate stage, wait until he faces Donald Trump, who doesn't, who like isn't on his side at all, who doesn't have a million dollars. <laughs> he really doesn't. Although now his kids have about you know a hundred million. Uh, we don't know. It's mafia money. Mafia. Oh no no no! It's Chinese mafia money now and Russian mafia. Yeah. So. On paper, you could be worth money, but you don't know who has access to those accounts and what they owe. You don't know what Jared Kushner owes the mafia. I think uh, Kushner, <laughs> you know, you know who Jared Kushner reminds me of is uh, uh, Maury from Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. I want the my money. Like, I want my money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but like, the, I'm thinking of the scene where he's like, kind of like on the phone and he's placing bets and De Niro's trying to collect his money mm-hmm. and then uh, De Niro's watching a commercial on TV and he's getting angrier and angrier and he just starts beating him over the head with the phone going, you have got money to buy commercials but you don't got money to pay me? Until, and he uh, was like a Cy Sperling type, wasn't he? He was a Cy Sperling type. It all ties in. Yes. So uh, what? what's your first name? What? what? What, sir? You you own the hair club for men. You're the president. Oh, right. right. C. And, and what's your name? Sai. And, and 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 if you have a you have a sister. C. What's your name? 
Sue. Sue? C. Tell me, Sai, when people's uh, toupees fall off in the wind, what do they do? Sew. They, oh, they sew the toupee back on? D. I see. And and who sews the toupee back on? Sue. Your sister, Sue? D. And if the toupee falls off in the wind and they can't catch it and it goes down a, a sewer grate, what do they do to your company? Sue. Sue? C. But, but your money is all tied up uh, in... in it's been given over to a member of your family, so they can't really sue you. Is that correct? See. Who gets all your money? Sue. Your, sue? See. Your sister Sue. See. So if somebody wants to sue you, they have to sue. Sue. Sue, sue? See, see. <laughs> I think that Mexican ac- accent's going to get me canceled one day. Yeah. Yeah, that would be Mel Blanc and Jack Benny, one of the yeah. a classic from one one of the greats. Yes. A variation on that. Let's get back to Denmark. I don't know, but uh yeah, you need to have something on your website so those of us that have new credit cards that we are able to change them. Uh, Sam Cedar has that on his website, FYI. Why don't you marry Sam Cedar then? <laughs> How come Sam all you do is talk about Sam Cedar. Sam Cedar this, Sam Cedar that. Well, listen, lady. All right, David's show isn't as good as Sam's show, and that's yeah. why his website isn't as good as Sam's website. That's right. I thought you loved me unconditionally. Now you're comparing me to Sam Cedar. Next she's going to bring Michael Brooks into the mix. <sighs> Nothing's ever good enough for these women. There we go. Um, and on a completely different note, I'm a Bernie bro also, even though I live in Denmark, so he's fighting for the things that we enjoy here. And I just want to say to you, although you probably know this, but a personal experience, when I was pregnant with my child and the company I was working for went bankrupt one month before I gave birth, it didn't matter as far as health care and a hospital stay and giving birth even though it turned out to be a difficult birth with an emergency C-section. No paperwork, no nothing. I bet her credit card expired after her water <laughs> broke. <laughs> That's, I bet that was the problem. <laughs> Let's find out. Back to Denmark. Everything was covered, um, including after child care, where they send a midwife home to you and help you out with, you uh-huh. know, getting a new... Now that... Does... Hang on for one second. How, how about that? Your wife has just given birth, right? Uh-huh. And she's, you know, she's not into the husband, right? Mm-hmm. So they send a midwife. That's that's what a midwife right. is, right? They give a mid blowjob. Oh, I... I... Liam, I don't know what goes on in Denmark. I just know that if I were running for office, that's what a midwife would do. The mm-hmm. midwife would, she's like a temporary stopgap from the right. time she- the woman gives birth to when she can start getting <laughs> impregnated again. You need a midwife. That's why they're called midwives. They come in and they're, you know, temp. 
temporary wives. I guess that's what a midwife right. does to keep the husband happy. Right. They halfway nag you all, all <laughs> half the day. <laughs> Am I right, fellas? Come on now. Well, why aren't they called mid-bombs? <laughs> if they're supposed to help the child, they should be called mid-bombs. Or a nanny. That's or a another nanny. word for it. Is a midwife is for the husband. Obviously. Let's continue. Back to Denmark. Routine. How do you nurse? How do you do this thing, this, that, and the other? Didn't matter that I didn't have a job. That all still happened for me. And when I changed jobs, uh, later on, when my child was older, um, I just got a new job, and my child had what turned out to be a benign tumor. And in that case, same thing. We went to the doctor. We went to the hospital. My child had tests. And everything turned out okay. Um, but the point is, is that even though I had changed jobs, I didn't have to worry that we would not be cared for. That all happens here. Um, mm. So, yeah, great show. Um, love all your guests especially Howie Klein. Keep up the good work, David. And, she you know, my name, if you don't okay. want my money anymore, then don't respond to the email I sent you. Damn. If only your wife's attorney was that reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> she mispronounced your name, you say? Yeah, she said Howie Klein instead of Liam McEnany, but that's okay. You want to be loved on this show? Support Bernie. That's all you have to do, Liam. Support Bernie. And then you get the love of my listeners. Don't you want to be loved I, by my listeners? I got to say, after that debate, I sent money to Elizabeth Warren. Well, Big Elizabeth Warren fan. I have to say that after that debate, I thought she would make a great vice president for Bernie. Right, because a woman has to be subordinate, right? Anyway, why are you? Hey, hey, let's are, look at the uh, iTunes reviews. Oh, hang on. What, why are you? What are you doing to the microphone? Uh, nothing. I hear a thumping sound. Oh, that's because I'm eating lunch. I just came from spin class, David. I'm fucking hungry as shit. What, are you like learning how to convince us that Mike Bloomberg did well in the debate? <laughs> Is that the spin class you went to? Hey, listen, the expectations for Mike were so low going in, he had to clear the bar, and he did. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> he should stop and frisk his debate prep team. I saw that tweet. Oh, I was pretending that was off the top of my head. <laughs> kind of like one of Cy Sperling's products. Am I right, folks? Hey, uh, you know, the thing is, David, I'm going to spin this now so you can understand how good Bloomberg did. Yeah. Uh, some people would say a fish, a fish faced lizard person wouldn't even do well communicating in human language, and yet he fucking convincingly conveyed emotion three times over the course of two hours. Very good. Very good. Very good. You got a five-star review from Connor Bone, but he's a little confused because the headline says Zach Ford is a loser, but the body says Zach Fox needs to go spend time in the gulag. Yeah. Is that what you're reading my iTunes reviews? Your iTunes reviews. All right, hang on for one second. Listen, That's from Connor Bond. Now, these iTunes reviews affect <laughs> what they call the algorithm, which I don't know what that means. But we don't want to mess with iTunes. So what? how many stars do they give us? Five. But he trashed Zach Ford. But he trashed, or Zach Fox, depending on. 
Okay. Which part of the review you were? And what is the name of this person? Connor Bone. Connor Bone? B-O-H-N. Bone. Yeah. Okay, so... You know, I mean, I know his sister, Ivana. <laughs> and, um... Yeah. And his aunt, Unita. <laughs> Thanks. Um, see, here's the thing. Zach Ford is an ally. Uh-huh. And he's going to vote for Bernie. Uh-huh. He's just raising questions and doubts. And a lot of people who listen to him on my show are snowflakes. Uh, well, they're, and, and so what he called Zach, a, <laughs> he called Zach a loser. He, he said he, he, he said he deserves to spend some time in the gulag. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric. We, we have to dial that back a little. I think he was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic about the. I don't gulag. think he was being sarcastic about that. No, he was being funny because I've been tempted to say things like that to go over the top. Right. But we have to be careful because if you watch the debate Wednesday night, you can see that now is the time for coalition building. That Bernie now has to reach across. The aisle with other Democrats, with other Democrats. Now that he's reached the ceiling of his support nationwide, now he needs to desperately claw in other candidates' support. You don't think he's going to get the nomination? Uh, It doesn't look like it right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? (laughs) Because he says things like the workers need to sit in on the corporate boards. Right. What's wrong with that? So Americans don't like that kind of talk. They hate that kind of talk. Germany, even if even Ger- if they agree with it, they they don't like it. G- Germany has mm-hmm. a law that all their corporations must have a forty percent labor representation on their board of directors. Forty percent. Hey, I'm not saying good or bad because I haven't looked into it. I'm just saying. Americans have a very specific mentality that even if they're laborers, they're going to be management one day, and they want that division between labor and management. But what's wrong? Okay, you're you're again, you're trying to sound practical and reasonable. No, I'm I'm saying as someone who's worked a lot of shitty jobs and talked to a lot of people, <laughs> that's just the mentality, American mentality. Okay. So, uh, every American thinks they're like like a snap of the fingers away from being a millionaire. Not anymore. Not anymore. You don't think so? Yeah, maybe ten years ago. That lie has been revealed. Uh-huh. See, the problem with Democrats like you right. is instead of telling us what you believe in and what you want, uh-huh. you wring your hands and tell us why we have to expect less from life. Right. Right. No, that's that's exactly what I do. It's it's a problem with the Democratic Party. Right. And some so get of out of the Democratic Party. I'm sorry? So get out of the Democratic no, Party. No, you go, get out of the Democratic Party. Go campaign with the Greens. No, no, you get out of the Democratic Party. No, 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 Party. you get out of the you Democratic Party. You get out Party. and go no, be a Republican. David, you get out and you go join the Green Party. No, no. Do you think... No, no, you get out. No, you get out. No, you get out. Leave my party. You're not. 
Do it's you, my party. It's, you're a Republican. Do you believe in unions? Yes. Do you believe in unions? Yes, I believe in unions. Do you believe that a corporation should be forced to pay higher wages? Absolutely. To union members? I think corporations should be forced to pay higher wages to everybody, and that's okay. why I support a higher minimum wage feder- federally. But also, if a union gets together and its members demand higher wages, absolutely they should be paid more. And do you think unions should have the power to shut down an industry if that industry is exploiting labor and there's a vote among union membership and they decide to shut down the industry? Do you think unions should have the power to shut down an industry? That's correct. You do believe that? I do believe that. And don't you think a a an industry, a corporation, would uh, be more responsive to the needs of their workers if at least 30 to 40 percent of the board of directors were labor representatives? I'm not saying labor representatives shouldn't be on uh, sitting in on meetings. I'm saying no board of direct uh, on the board of directors. I'm saying if Bernie Sanders goes on TV and says the workers should have a, should be sitting in on corporate board meetings, a lot of Americans have a problem with that. 20% ownership belonging to the workers. Do you think that would be bad for the business? Do you think if, let's say, Apple, if 20% of the stock was owned by the workers, do you think that would affect the stock price? Do you think that would affect the efficiency of the the company? Do you but think it would be a bad Apple, idea if Apple doesn't have a functional union, and they they no, but they have workers. Their, uh, hang on, hang on. All their manufacturing work to non-union sweatshops overseas. But Bernie's talking about twenty percent ownership by the workers. And mm. if you are an employee of Apple, right? You the, the 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 when they buy back stock, and when they issue stock or when they pay out pensions, that it's issued in Apple stock, and that 20% of that stock, 20% of the corporation is owned by the workers or retired workers or people who once worked for Apple. Uh-huh. Do you I believe that's a good market, thing or a bad thing? For, for, I think not the just stock for, market is a fool's game, first of all. Do you think that's a good thing for stability for the company? You know, I don't know, David. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you. I'm just telling you it's a message that needs to be threaded very carefully if you want, uh, like, Americans across the country to buy it. Okay, and what if they do buy it? What if you're hand-wringing, which belies ignorance? Uh, first of all, I'm not hand-wringing. I'm you're, you're, this is a way for people who don't know anything to act like they know right. something. Oh, right, of course. I don't know anything. you don't understand... You really don't understand right. stock I really buyback. don't understand. Yeah, no, I mean, how could I understand? So you know, it's like uh, you need an expert in, in economics, like a guy who writes for a puppet dog, to really understand. What I'm saying is people uh-huh. think they sound a lot smarter than See, they I are when they shoot down ideas. Today. When you I shoot down... You. Huh? I should, I should fucking get a medal for calling this at the top of the show. You absolutely wanted to pick a fight today. No. Yeah. I called it at the top of the show. No, you, because you're, you're... You needled me and needled me until I took the bait. No, you... Did oh, I bring up Bernie? No. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did. I, I You are gainsaying all of Bernie's uh-huh. suggestions. And, like, in a writing room, there are two uh-huh. types of writers. Mm-hmm. The ones who are just pitching jokes. Right. And then the ones who are shooting those ideas down. Right. So are you pitching jokes? Now, I have a great I, joke. I wrote a great joke. You ready? Your joke. Okay. Yeah. Who did Jimmy Walker play? I don't like it. I don't like it. Who did Jimmy Walker play on no, Good, on good Times? On Good Times. Who did Jimmy Walker play? He played J.J. Evans. Right. And did you know he had a sister? <laughs> yes. And her name was J.J. <laughs> and her catchphrase was gyno might gyno might what do you right, think now, guys is that a good one now i want to hear the great joke i <laughs> see see this is what goes on in a writing room i pitched right. this is like medicare for all right okay i'm at the meeting i show right. up i'm present right. okay i and pitch i pitch an idea yes right. you know maybe it's flawed you know mm-hmm. Maybe it's a reference to a sitcom that hasn't been on for 40 years. (laughs) Maybe it's a a vagina joke. But my heart's in the right place. JJ has a sister named VJJ, and her catchphrase is gynomite. It's a play on dynomite. That's like Medicare for all, right? I'm in the arena. I'm getting knocked down. I'm dusting myself off and getting back up. And you're sitting there. what What happens in a writer's room when someone pitches a joke like that? And they're told no, and then they spend 20 minutes explaining why everyone else in the room is an asshole. That's what I do. I say, hey, at least, at least I'm pit- at least I'm doing something. I'm not at least I'm fucking pitching the dynamite joke. Guys. Uh-huh. What are we doing here? Uh huh. You're just sitting here waiting for lunch to come. That's right, and that's who you are. You're the guys right. off in the corner, right, 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 who don't have a a joke. Right. That's better than gyno mine. <laughs> you goddamn right I'm picking a fight. <laughs> 202-670-2752. I don't think any of your listeners would have any thoughts about what we just discussed. I can't imagine they have any opinions right now. <laughs> hey, Bernie is out there. Pitching the 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 JJ joke. Listen, I don't support him now, but if he's the candidate come November, I will vote for him. And do you support Medicare for all? Uh, I don't want to go down this road. We have like uh, 15 minutes left in the segment, David. Okay. People can just listen to. Do you have an alternative to gynomite? Do you have an alternative to gynomite? Do I have an alternative to gynomite? Yeah. Can yeah. you come? It's a brilliant joke. Dynomite. That was great. It's brilliant. Gyno right. is, you know, gynecologist, right? right. Gynomite. Gynomite, because it sounds meta- like dynamite. It sounds like dynamite. Dynamite. Can, can you top that? If you can't <laughs> top that, then we got to go with Medicare for all. So you're saying, just for the record, yeah. that Medicare for all is the gynomite of policy initiatives. It, unless you can come up with something better than VJJ and gynomite. We're going I just with- voted for Buttigieg. <laughs> All right, let's 202-670-2750. I just won this argument. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I just no, did. We, we have 13 minutes left in the segment. Okay. 
we're not going to be able to get to comments. I have to plow through the uh, voicemail. 202-670-2752. Here's our next call. Hey, David. This is Manuel Antonio from Los Angeles, California. Uh, I wanted to call in about uh, your comments. How dare you? How dare you? Sorry. Ah. <laughs> uh. In all fairness to Liam, we did do a, a Jack Benny routine. So I, I understand why. I'm going to give you. A, to me, this this might be my next door neighbors. Better be nice. Okay, I'm going to give you a pass on that because we were doing the Jack Benny Mel Blanc routine. Okay. I'm in a I'm in a very Gilbert Gottfried mood right okay. now. You get a pass. You get a pass. Let's continue. Comment this week about getting rid of the filibuster and about your. Guess hesitance to get rid of it. I, I, I'm with you, Feldman. I think we need to, first of all, I think we need to get rid of a lot of these billionaire, millionaire people in the Democratic Party. Either they need to go or we working people need to go. But the tent, I think, is not big enough for both. Mm-hmm. And as to your filibuster remark, I don't, this is the thing that frustrates me. I'm 26 years old, so I'm, I'm a young, I'm a young voter, but the thing that frustrates me about Democratic, the Democratic Party is that they're a bunch of and I hate to use this word, they're a bunch of pussies. Yep. They can't ever see themselves stepping out of the norms or they don't want to do things because it hasn't been done before. Well, when are these guys going to wake up? I mean, the fucking Republican Party has been doing this shit for the last, you know, 12 years, 12, 20, 12 to 20 years. I mean, have you guys forgotten what they did to Obama? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is ridiculous. Now they're scared to get rid of the filibuster. I mean, they, for God's sakes, they blocked Merrick Garland from taking a seat on the bench, and we Democrats are worried about getting, you know, changing the rules. Come on. We can't be that fucking scared. Right. This is what happens when you're afraid to to do stuff, when you're in power, when you're afraid to be called uh, too far of a leftist. Guess what? They already think we're socialists. We need right. to go straight ahead and tackle these Republicans and get rid of all these billionaire and millionaire Democrats from the party. Amen. The Democratic Party needs to go, or we workers need to go. But the, the tent is not big enough. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. Get the F out of my party. If you're a billionaire, get the F out of my party. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say that, you know, be, whether or not you're a billionaire, I'm not going to do a value judgment on that mm-hmm. right now. But if you're a billionaire... You do not belong in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is the party of workers. And there needs to so be you're a saying you're saying if Warren Buffett buys a hundred million dollars in ads for Bernie Sanders, you want him to return that money? I'm saying if you're a billionaire and you're in the Democratic Party, keep your effing mouth shut. <laughs> and, and and Warren Buffett did support Obama, but that uh-huh. uh, Buffett's a corporatist and so is Obama. And, you know, he's in the insurance business. And Obamacare was a love letter to the insurance industry, like Geico. You know, Warren uh-huh. Buffett owns a lot of nasty businesses. A lot. Uh-huh. He's a master at branding. So so if uh, Bloomberg gets behind Bernie as the candidate and spends $100 million in ads, you're like, get the fuck out of my party, Bloomberg. Uh, get out of the leadership, at least. You don't get a say. You don't get a seat at the table of the Democratic Party if you're a billionaire. You can give money. 
hopefully we'll get to a point where you can't give money, that it's all publicly financed the way it right. used to be. But no, there's no room at the table in the Democratic Party for billionaires. This is not the party of management. <laughs> Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I'm sorry. I just got a very annoying email. Uh, right, let's move on. We're short on time. We're short on time. we got to get through these voicemails. Okay. Hey, David, Tom in Portland again. Hi. <laughs> hey, it's your friend. Tom. Oh, Tom. Tom in Portland. My new Bernie Ho. Okay, here we go. Hey, Liam. Special hi to you, Liam. Hey, listen, hey, I man. How you doing? The whole concept of the heel. Um, I get it. And, David, thank you so much for your kind words. Um, really appreciate it. I thought it was a good story. For a story second. I wanted, I wanted to. He was. He. Could you, could you just explain to the listeners that before the show, you tell me specifically to go after you and to be aggressive? What are you talking about? Well, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. You're, I'm talking about the lecture I got in being a heel last week and how I have to be nicer. And then I hung up and I was like, wait a second. David fucking specifically has me on to be an asshole. Oh, wait a second. So it's my fault you took the acid be because I said to <laughs> try this acid? I'm just saying you, you gave a very long and beautiful explanation of how you learned you needed to not be... The heel anymore? Yeah. And meanwhile, that's the only reason I'm on every week. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, then I apologize. <laughs> I don't know what you're Liam, I, I have never said to you. Uh-huh. I've never said to you, be rude to my listeners. No, 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 but, but you know what you, all right, fine. Maybe I have said to you, go after my No, listeners. you have, actually, no, you never said be rude I think to I have, actually, I think I You have, have. told I me have. a couple but you know I what? Said, I was going to let it go because I was like, well, you got to be the good guy because you're the host. Uh -huh. You have, to have a good relationship with them. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, come on. I'll be honest. I've said to Liam, this will only work if you. You have to have a contrarian stance with my listeners. It's got to right. be antagonistic. It's funny that way. I mean, I wouldn't vote for Bernie anyway, but it's just, uh, let's just be, let's just be real. <laughs> no, well, here's the thing, folks. I don't really know. I don't know what Liam believes, but I do like him. I'm very honest about it. I, I don't know what you believe. All I know is I don't want this show to be an echo chamber. and I can't have conservatives <laughs> on the show. And, you know, I, and I also don't want to suck up to my listeners because, you know, I do love my listeners, but it's not funny to suck up to your listeners. But I don't have the balls to be that kind of guy who just shits on his listeners. So I need Liam to do this for me. He's kind of like my surrogate. I'm like your I'm like your your proto Howard Stern on the show. Yeah, I, I can't attack the listeners. But uh, but you do piss me off when you play the heel. I mean that is that is authentic. You are getting to me. I know. <laughs> you really do get me pissed off, and you get the listeners pissed off, and you're pretty good at it. And it begs right. the question: Are you serious? Because I have a feeling you are. What? I I would never vote for Trump, but I also would never vote for Bernie. Okay, that's pissing me off. <laughs> is that I real see. or is that you? Because I asked you to be an asshole, but are you that big an asshole in real life? 
Look, I would vote for Bernie in the general election. I would never primary him. Okay. All right. So let's continue. <laughs> so this was Tom from Portland making nice with Liam, right? Yeah, it's it's good to hear from you, Tom. Okay, let's let's hear. Tom, Tom is a union man whose father died in World War II. No, his father didn't die in World War II. His father saw somebody being sent oh, into right. those gears, right, and, and getting. Killed at a Ford factory. Ford factory, but he served. No, his father served in World War II. Yes, and then worked at the Ford factory. Okay, uh, it's not going to be fun if he melts you. Okay, Liam, stand your ground. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember. That was well, a very that was a two part voicemail. Uh huh. But it's not going to be good. There if, was a lot of there was a lot of filler in that story. I need you to attack him. Otherwise, this I'm is not, not going to be entertaining. I'm not, believe me. It's, it's, Put on your game face. No, no, I'm just trying to remember who the fuck Tom from Portland was. What Tom, his deal you with. accuse him of being an alcoholic? Well, because he called you drunk and did an Al Gore impression. That okay. made no sense. Okay, good. Are you, are you, you have your game face back on? Are you ready? I'm, this is me. All right, you need to rip him a new asshole. Okay. For no other reason than he's Tom from Oregon. Portland. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Or it could be Portland, Maine. We don't know. But it was Oregon. Right. Okay. Are you going to be nice? No, I'm going to be a jerk. Okay, then we'll continue. Sharon, I have a political agenda, and I wanted to share that. Oh, Um, that's great, man. I can't wait to hear it. Let the man talk. He's one of my listeners. Be polite. I'm just saying I can't wait to hear his political thoughts. Stop Stop with your sarcasm. No, I'm playing nice. I mean, I'm all right. I'll be, I'll be mean now. Sundays, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings too much. Um, oh no, don't. The worry, idea I thought that I needed the show really needed a partner to Bernie Ho Baby Cat. Like I'm seeing my my role is occasionally to come in, you know, a few with a few drinks under my belt and just hit Liam with a folding chair uh-huh. as Bernie Ho Baby Cat taunts him, you know, yes. from uh, from another direction. Yes. So I get it. Good show. It's just, David, you do the heel so much better than Liam, really. I mean, your heel on Sam Cedar's show is just makes the show every time. It's fantastic. Keep it up. Go Bernie. Liam, turn away from the dark side and accept Bernie as your Lord and Savior. (laughs) Good night. All right. All right. He's so, a Bernie, this is a Bernie supporter. Hits hits you with a, uh amateur wrestling uh analogy. And then uh admits to being a problem drinker and then uh says go Bernie. Yeah. What do you think of people from Oregon? You know, I've never been to Oregon. But just, um, you know, make a sweeping make a sweeping generalization. Do you know okay. why? Do you know why? No, I, I mean I can tell you. I, I'll give you a sweeping generalization. It's a uh, it's meth country with uh, pockets of hipsters sewn right in. You, you want to know my uh, theory about why the people from Oregon are so ugly? Why everybody? Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> I have I have a theory about why, why everybody. This uh, this is Liam. Talking, right. not David Feldman, because I'm nice to my listeners, Tom. Right. <laughs> but this is what Liam once told me after he had a couple of drinks. 
Liam says every man and woman, every baby, every child <laughs> in Oregon is hideous because right. because all you have to do is watch the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Did you ever see that musical? Uh, yeah, with the lumberjacks. Right, it was lumberjacks living in Oregon, correct? Correct. And and they needed brides. So what did they do? They sent away for them. They sent away for brides who came across on, on Conestoga wagons on that on the Oregon Trail, right? And they used a very early version of Groupon. And they used it. So what kind of woman is going to travel three thousand miles? Fighting off Native Americans, dysentery, the the elements, an Aconista, Conestaga wagon, taking a dump in a bucket, using cactus for a tampon. How ugly a human being, what kind of homunculus would get on a wagon train to marry a lumberjack in in Oregon? Only the hideous of the hideous. So these people in Oregon, they are genetically predisposed to to being ugly and hideous. It's in their genes. Just watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Now, Liam, you can't talk that way. We have <laughs> listeners in Oregon. And this is an example of of uh, of, of the kind of eugenics right. theorizing <laughs> that, that Liam is guilty of. And it's I will not put up with that. On my show. I will not wow. allow you to talk that way about the people of Oregon. You must be a scream when you're pitching in the writer's room. <laughs> that is Jesus, something you get that... to a punchline, land on it. <laughs> Liam gave me his theory about the people of Oregon, their, their facial you know what features. I think? Yeah. I think Tom from, I think Tom from Portland just called and I think being boring might be contagious. <laughs> I think he's got the coronavirus of being boring. Holy crap, was that? <laughs> While you were talking, I like thought about three other things. Oh, yeah, but just, you know, I, I don't want to, <laughs> don't traffic in eugenics and phrenology and skull shapes <laughs> on my show, Liam. I only told you. Wow, you're really committing to this terrible bit. Yes, I am. Next call. The phone number is 202 670 Which policy initiative is that equivalent to? <laughs> 202-670-2752 is the number. Let's go to our next call. What is the no child left behind? Hi, Feldman. Hey, uh, now that the New Hampshire primary is over, uh, I was just thinking Citizen Bacon uh, could probably go from speaking to you to the, the very elderly uh, uh, Secretary of State of New Hampshire, now we just need to find increasingly incoherent old men for him to speak to. Uh, my vote is for Tom from Portland. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> are turning on each other. This is so great. This is so, this is exactly the kind of show I want to do. I don't want to talk about Michael Bloomberg and Bernie. I just want to referee 
<laughs> my listeners fighting with one another. <laughs> that was so great. Dude, Tom's holding a full Tom's holding a folding chair. That guy just came with a fist wrapped oh. full of barbed wire. Let's let's finish this. Let's finish this. <laughs> Hold my beer. Let's finish this. Uh to be to be the next uh, recipient of the uh the citizen bacon uh half hour of incoherence treatment. <laughs> great he's <laughs> shitting on citizen bacon too. This is great. That would be that would be my vote. Uh, this is Christopher from Oregon uh, wishing you wow. a happy day. Bye-bye. Christopher from Oregon. That was Christopher from Oregon. We have Tom from Oregon and Christopher from Oregon now. Wow. Brother against brother. It's yeah. like the Civil War. Yeah. All right. 202-670-2752 is the number. Let's go to another call. Hello? Hello? Yo, chaps. It's uh, Citizen Bacon here. CB, dropping an anchor in the uh, Stephen Brothers part of the podcast. Deep, deep in the bowels of the show. Five, maybe six hours in on a Friday. Listeners, hope your week was good. Please enjoy yourself this weekend before you're back again. Listening on Tuesday. Okay, comment, question, letter one. This one is for... Uh, They're turning on me now. They're turning on everybody. This is great. Hang on. Hang on. Let's finish this up. 202-670-2752. you got to bring the volume up a little, but... Yeah. It's okay if we use it. You can be both powerful and positive. Check out Madame Gandhi, past MIA drummer, now on her own, making global resistant beats. What is going on? This is an example of the... He wants me to get dinged by YouTube and my syndicator. Hang on, he's on to something. Quiet. He says I need to have a beef with somebody.
folks don't know that I'm alive, and I fear I'm going to die of lonesomeness. Of course, not too fast. Gee, I wish I had a girl like the other fellas had. Someone to make a fuss over me, to cheer me up when I feel sad. On Wednesday night, I'm all alone when I ought to be up at some sweetheart's home, and I'm lonesome, awful lonesome. All right. I get his uh, point. A little more hostility on this show. I feel like I just sat through the Jimmy Dore show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, 202-670-2752. In all honesty, I don't want to have people crapping on the show. No, no, no. It's, it's When they're crapping on me, that's when it's funny. Guys, yeah, keep but, your... Keep your anger focused toward me. No, let's let's have reasonable discourse. That's not what I, I don't need. Listeners, yes, I do. If you <laughs> whatever, just two hundred two six seven. We heard you laughing, David. You know, we know how you feel. All right, here we go. Next call. Is this the same one? Yeah, that's the same. Okay, here's yeah. the next call. Morning, Bacon. It's Citizen Sausage calling from the Windy City. <laughs> we have a new... We heard from Citizen Sausage last week. Here we go. <laughs> I was just in the coffee shop. And I overheard three conversations. People are really excited about this idea you had on the podcast to go and cover local New Hampshire politics in the small towns. That is really great. Wow. Hey, one thing, uh, Bacon, I love that you got a heart of gold and you are trying to help out these senior citizens that outlive their usefulness in the workforce. But you got to get rid of this boomer you got as an AV intern. This guy doesn't know how to do anything. He had a segment last week with William that should have been 20 minutes. It went on for over two hours because the guy doesn't know how to work a freaking answering machine. Get a millennial for that, not a boomer. <laughs> oh, that was great. That In your was, defense, you're technically Gen X. Yeah, I, we had some problems last <laughs> week. And I think we have our last call, 202-670-2752. I think this is the last call. Feldo, we got to talk about your audience. You know what I mean? These wackos are calling and say things like, you shouldn't have Liam on. <laughs> Crazy. Just because he supports Warren. Look. These people are on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> they want to live in a bubble where Bernie's already president and uh, they could just go to the doctor every day and smoke dope. That's not how you get battle tested. Yeah, that's not how you thank win. you. That's not how that's you get exactly vetted. We have to get vetted, David. That's what everyone's saying. Yeah. You have to get into the perspective of the right this wing of the party. Listener if you want to get vetted. And I think that's why it's important to see other perspectives. I love that you had that uh, Christ fellow on last Friday. I mean, here's a guy that studies morality. He's obviously very intelligent. Very lame. But you can see how they go down, they veer down the wrong path. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> this guy, he showed you, they veer down the wrong path just because they're trying to save a couple bucks. I mean, here's a nice guy 
He's ready to uh, sell his soul to the devil. Of those clearly people. rehearsed. Because he doesn't want to donate when the Bernie people call anymore. Luckily, you set him straight. And with Liam, it's so obvious. Uh-huh. He's afraid right. to support Bernie because he's afraid to dream big. I mean, what? Warren supporters love to say, I support Warren, she'll get things done. Right. Oh, yeah? What post office is she ever renamed? <laughs> he's right. You're afraid of dreaming big, Liam. I am afraid of dreaming big. Okay, I think that is... You know, I have to... I I shit on your listeners, but I really have to hand it to them. They've really been stepping it up the last couple weeks. Like, like the first couple weeks, it was dreadful. It was torture. But for the most part, this is a good batch. This was a good batch. 202-670-2752. I think we're building something that's... Really? God, only I could dream bigger, though. Yeah, you need to dream bigger. But I think you I and I are. Dream big, man. I think you and I are building something that yeah. is going nowhere. <laughs> it's good. I, <laughs> I have a, I have another thing in comedy that that I'm that's paying me nothing. Uh huh. Two zero two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two. Now here's the thing: if you want Liam and me to answer questions. Uh, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and fill out the contact form for listener questions. Some of you have been contacting me through the contact page. So when you do that, I assume you don't want me to read that comment on the right. show. So if you want to contact David, do not click on the link that says contact because that's ridiculous. No, contact is for personal correspondence. Right. Listener questions is for Liam and I to humiliate you. Right. Now, uh, uh, one of our listeners wants <laughs> to organize a a subreddit. Okay. Would you Sounds have good. you ever done a subreddit? I I have never been in charge of one, but I do follow a few. There's there's a guy. It would be like a chat, like we would announce that Liam and I are going to go on Reddit and right, talk and then to, and then it's going to be nobody. Well, we would I. Well, let me know because uh, we've tried to do. Separate- oh no, no, no! You know, what? I want to be the good guy in the writers' room. That sounds like a great idea, and it's going to work great. So let's just do it. Okay, if I'm in, okay. I'm 100 percent in. Let's just do it. Okay, as you know, as one of our callers said, I'm a boomer, and right. if you listen to last week's segment, you could pretty much tell that I wouldn't know how to run a a Reddit chat or whatever it's called. But one of our listeners. <laughs> has volunteered to moderate. What? Keep in mind, last time we tried to do this, I ended up going to Las Vegas, and David ended up sounding like he was broadcasting from inside a toilet bowl. Yes, yes. But I want to do a thing where Liam and I... I want to do a thing where Liam and I take on the listeners. I would do that. Yeah, separate from the show. Like, you know... where we do it on YouTube or, or Twitch or Reddit. Now, just out of curiosity. Something we can really apologize for. Right. So let me know if you're, if you're listening right now, if you know what Reddit is, if you would participate, if I announced that Liam and I were going on Reddit, would there be an audience for us to do a live chat on Reddit? If there's enough of an audience, then I'll ask this listener to moderate it. 
Liam McEnany, we have a backlog of listener questions. So I, I don't know what Can we, like, schedule a time where we could just go through all of them? Yeah, because uh, because every week, every week the segment's now getting hijacked by voicemails, which is great, but it just doesn't leave time for us to answer emails. So I feel like we just need to schedule a separate segment that's just going through that backlog. I agree with you. So let's do Tuesday's show. It'll be okay. eight hours. We'll do an eight-hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know this is. You know right. that this is what's. Because you also need time for Barry Lank. So Barry Lank. You mean Jim Earl? Oh, I thought you had. I thought you said you had Barry Lank on the show. No, Barry Lynn, the Reverend Barry. Oh, Lynn. Barry Lynn. But I should oh, have. Okay. Bar- I should have Barry Lank. Um, okay, so I'm trying to keep these shows under 15 hours. <laughs> so we're going to do listener questions. We're going to we're going to plow through all listener questions for Tuesday's show. We'll play voicemails 202-670-2752 for Friday's show. Liam McEnany will be at Vitello's two shot minimum this Tuesday night. Bring the woman <laughs> you shot. hate. Right. <laughs> if you want a permanent breakup. If you want a permanent breakup. Uh, you'll be at Vitello's with Chris Titus, Jimmy Pardo, and the the brilliant Wendy Liebman. Tell your friends. And Marty Ross. And who? Marty Ross. Marty Ross. Marty Ross. Do I know him? I have no idea. Okay. He just seems like one of those guys that's been doing comedy in L.A. for a while. I thought you might know him. Marty Ross sounds like he was a bit player on Car 54, Where Are You? I honestly thought the first time I, I saw him listed on a show that Marty Rossi was performing in oh. L.A., and I got really excited. Right. Hello, dear. <laughs> Hello, dear. And what is the name of your album? It's called Working Class. Working Class Fancy, and uh, I have a podcast called Tell Your Friends History's Greatest Podcast. And uh, tell your friends at the Hollywood Improv in the Lab, March 10th. 7.30 p.m. It's a primetime show, and I'm trying to show the improv that I can draw a decent crowd at a good time uh, so that they keep they give me a recurring spot. So and, if you're in L.A. and, and you want to please do. And isn't there a, a a woman, a guy with a wife who lives near San Diego, Carlsbad? Oh, yeah. God, Dave? Yeah, didn't you say you were going to leave some meat on a rope outside the club to lure his wife? I said I was going to drive an ice cream truck all the way from Carlsbad, <laughs> just slow enough that she could chase after him. And when are you in Vegas? Uh, you know what? I had to postpone that trip because I got like some stuff to do this weekend. Sure. You're afraid. Uh, you know what? You're afraid of closing with Bernie. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if she's calling in. She doesn't call in. She doesn't call in. I think I, I think there's something wrong with her. I think she's probably like one of those people that's severely handicapped. Oh, stop it! Be nice. I'm serious. I'm, I am being nice. We have to wrap it up. Like Doris from Rego Park. We have. I have to go watch MeTV. Do you get MeTV and Antenna TV? I do. I love. I love watching old. Are you going to watch Carson? No, I'm going to watch this episode of Good Times where <laughs> JJ. Discovers that he has a sister named Vijayjay. I like it so far. Yeah. What's her What's her catchphrase? Gynomite. That could be funnier. 
stay on the line. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Madbury, New Hampshire, where David Citizen Bacon is standing by. He is David Feldman Show's official, official citizen journalist, and he reports to us from Dover, New Hampshire. We just built a new bureau for him in Dover, New Hampshire. A lot to talk about. I understand Summersworth has a new fire chief. Oh, um, I'm not aware of that. No, I don't know. Well, what are you doing all day? Well, I met their mayor before, but that was a while ago. That was when Klobuchar was there, I think, some time ago. Summersworth, New Hampshire? It's a big story. George Kramlinger. George Kramlinger's been named uh, fire chief of Summersworth, and he was uh, a firefighter over at Dover. You don't don't know that? Yeah, you seem to be uh, up on this uh, way more than I have. Yeah, I, I, I'm lapsed lapse in my duties, I guess. I would think that the head of our Dover, New Hampshire bureau would know that somebody from Dover got a job as fire chief over at Summersworth. Hey, how about Trape Academy girls basketball? Huh? A what academy? Trape Academy, their girls basketball team. Today, uh, I'm not even, I don't even know the academy. I don't know. I don't even know which uh, what you're talking about. Oh, they lost to Booth Bay, forty six to thirty two, and that that's an end for their season. It's that's, too bad. That's, that's a really low scoring basketball game. Well, wait, are you saying girls basketball isn't as good as men's basketball? That's kind of sexist, if you ask me. No, I think uh, what was it? U- the UConn uh, women UConn was way better than the men's UConn. I think for years, weren't they like the top of their game? Yeah. Well, you better be careful so, because seven Republican members of the New Hampshire State House have been reprimanded for failing to attend mandatory sexual harassment training. The oh well. Yeah. Yeah, I think a couple of times they've uh, like they've dropped. I think two members, again, I don't know which party, but in the state capitol building, they've like, the, their gun, because you can have your, I guess they can carry their guns in the building. Like they've fallen out of their, off their, like, laps or whatever and fallen out of the ground. They haven't gone off, but I, I know that's occurred, I think, twice. Well, there are yeah. 400 members of the New Hampshire State House, largest state house yes. in America. Yes. And that of those true. 400 members, uh, eight have failed. Seven Republicans have failed to attend their sexual harassment training. Did you attend? You opened up our bureau in Dover, New Hampshire. Did you, did you schedule a, a sexual harassment training for the coworkers? I did not schedule one yet. Um, I, I, I think there was some woman who was supposed to do that. That's kind of sexist. This this is going to expose me to a lawsuit. I, no, 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 
know. I, I, they, I think that's. I, I, I just thought how that was. That's how that was run. All right. But, yeah. I think that's, that's what's happening. Okay. And are you going to cover uh, the fire department of Rochester offering uh, those free smoke detector installations? Um, I could use a new like carbon monoxide. Uh, uh, detector. I think my old one just went out, but smoke detectors, I think I'm all good. I, I'm asking you as bureau chief of our Dover Bureau. Yes. If you're going to cover the Rochester City Fire Department teaming up with the American Red Cross to offer free smoke detectors and installation. Rochester for- is not Dover, so I don't know. That seems like that would be outside of my jurisdiction. Wouldn't that be your... Uh, Rochester Bureau? They had to shut that down. Oh. Health, well, co- health I, code violations. Uh, you're, and so you're doubling yeah, So it's just, that's more work on me then. I got to cover multiple towns. What about the parking commission? Did you go to that meeting like I asked you? I believe it was canceled. I'm going to look that up right now. And if it wasn't canceled. <laughs> I, I believe it was canceled. You believe? Let's see. I believe it was canceled. Uh, no. That's what someone else in the office, the same person who was supposed to set up that uh, sexual uh, training thing, uh, told me it was maybe canceled. Well, a lot of my listeners really got excited <laughs> with the idea of you getting abused and humiliated, uh, you covering the city of Dover, New yeah. Hampshire, for our show. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, you know, it was kind of like a, uh, it's almost like a fluke that I was able to cover, you know, what I have done so far. Um, but that, you know, that's not a sustainable... Uh, Business model? You know. So you're saying it's not exactly. sustainable? It's well, sustainable yeah, for yeah. me. It works for me. <laughs> right, but it doesn't, that, you know, it's, that, it's, it was very, very time-consuming. Where's, your, willing, cool where's your willingness to get exploited? For my amusement. Oh, uh, well, that, uh, you know, my, my wife and kids, get, you know, have enough of that. All right. Uh, yeah. All right, Bacon. Well, what about ice? Are you going to cover ice for us? Well, we're going to get, we're, 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 I have to finish up with what I've already accomplished before we move on to the next step. You're only as good but, as your last interview on the David Feldman show. You understand me, Bacon? Exactly. You're nothing but a dollar sign to me, kiddo. Yes. You know who said that? Um, I don't know. Probably a lot of people. Dean Martin said that's a Jerry Lewis, right? Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis was crying. They had a, I think they had a, their final performance, I think was at the Copa. And Jerry was uh, crying at the end. And Dean said to him, yeah, nothing but a, dollar sign to me, Pally, and walked away. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And well, they had a, you know, a rough and tumble relationship, I guess, at the end. Kind of like uh, us. Kind of a, like us. They were a little bit more successful. What are you, what are you implying? What are you implying? I, I mean, what, weren't they, like, at the top of their game? I mean, or weren't they, like, you know? And what, what are you saying about my show? What are you trying to say? Uh, well, you, 
you were mentioning they, you said they're kind of like us, and I was just saying that they were clearly more popular than you know. Oh, oh, so this show now isn't big enough for Bacon to try to steal? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. You have you you have your you set your sights on a more popular podcast. You can't be you can't you can't be bothered to try to steal this show from me anymore, right? Well, I think you, you're 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 uh, changing, moving my words around a little bit, but um, All right. I, I, I I understand what you're saying. In all seriousness, what about coming on once a week and reporting on ice? Yeah, that totally sounds like something that would be cool. Because um, I don't think there is an ice correspondent anywhere in America, and it would be great to have somebody who's just giving us a weekly update on ice, and would be really great is if you got detained by them, like you went undercover. Like, I've seen movies like this where you, like, uh-huh. we, 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 we take away your citizenship temporarily and give you new papers so you can go undercover and expose what these detention camps are really like. And as you're deep in the bowels of the private detention system, I step forward with your actual citizenship papers, and we reveal what's really going on. But, as you know, I'm betting your wife, right? You don't know right, that. Sure. You don't know that. And we decide to leave oh. you. We decide to leave you in that detention center. Right, right. What do you right. think of that well, idea? Uh, well, it doesn't seem to end very well. For me, it does. From, from, well, again, but, you know, you're asking my opinion. Well, um, it's a win-win. Well, I get your wife, well, I get your wife, and your marriage and life falls apart. That's a win-win-win for me. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think that one sounds that cool. To you, know? you it, to you, it doesn't. Yeah, plus, I don't know, like, I, I'm, I'm awfully white. So, you know, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. Oh, you don't think you'd don't fit, fit in? in? You don't think you'd fit in, in in the detention center? No, no, no. no. I don't think I'd a profile where the, the people are going to be detaining me. Well, you know if, I mean? if your papers aren't there, if we, if we oh. come up with other papers that suggest otherwise. Yeah. You know, the crazy thing is because of that, like hundred mile, um, you know, there's like, they have, they have a special, you know, within a hundred miles of the border is where they, the, the ice people have their like rain. It's a hundred miles from the border. So the entire state of New Hampshire is within that hundred miles from the border. Hmm. You know, which is kind of crazy. So like, you know, theoretically, you know, ice agents could stop people, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, I, anywhere within the state, within the state. In all seriousness, I do need a correspondent coming on this show. For example, ICE in Northern California ignored California sanctuary laws and arrested two people inside a Northern California courthouse. Right, right. And that goes against California law. Right. Yeah, the, the, uh, I think the, uh, um, the, the New Hampshire, or just, I guess it's just the ACLU. Uh, I think they're suing, um, uh, ICE or something to get some information uh, in in the state of New Hampshire because of the way that they 
they haven't been filing things correctly or doing something correctly or, you know, mm-hmm. there's some kind of stuff about that. Um, there's a story in the yeah. New York Times today about a private prison company trying to open an immigration detention center in McFarland, California. Unfortunately for this private prison company, the town is home to thousands of undocumented farm workers. And now there is uh, some some protests going on. This is the kind of story that needs to be reported right. week after yeah, week. There is a big detention center in Massachusetts. There is an actual detention center in Massachusetts. In Dover, there's it's it's like the regular jail, I guess, but they house people for ICE, like in this area. That then I guess before they ship them to Massachusetts, to Massachusetts and stuff. I see. Well, um, I, I need you on this. Yes, but we're working towards it, you know. Because I still have other stuff that I did before. That it's like it's you know you still want to get that stuff. But yes, I totally. I'm I'm fascinated by fact that you know I. It's, it's, it's appalling what's happening, and yes, without a doubt, it, that is an interesting subject thing to, to cover, and, and I would be fascinated to, uh, to, 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 to be doing that stuff. Here's your tax dollars at work, folks. U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement, ICE, is being sued by a Mexican man who was in New York City visiting, and he was shot in the face, sustained multiple injuries. There's a bullet still lodged in his neck. He is suing ICE. The gentleman says he was just standing next to an ICE official when uh, the ICE official whipped out his gun and uh, fired it right into his face. The bullet penetrated his hand, tore through his left cheek, and has remained lodged behind his ear. And uh, they're suing Border Patrol. This is your tax dollars at work. Not only are we paying the salary of this ICE pig, that's what you are. If you work for ICE, you're a pig. Have you seen the people who work for ICE? They they really are. Oh, yeah, they're pigs. So we have to pay their salary. And then when they, you know, because they're fat and they can't get it up and they're sadists, they fire bullets into Mexican tourists' face, and now we have to pay for the settlement. There's going to be a settlement, so millions of dollars. Your tax dollars hard at work, thanks to the pigs, the pigs who work for ICE, which should be abolished. And anyway, you you got to cover this, man. That's what I want you to do. Now, you're either yeah, going to yeah, do... Yeah, I, I like the idea. You're either going to do what I tell you, Bacon, or, or not, or not. Is that is that clear? You're either going to do what I tell you to do, or you're going to do what you want to do on this show. Is that clear? I, I, I have yes. I, I okay. got that. All right. I don't, I don't mean to alpha dog you, but uh, this is my show, and I'm just telling you right now. You're going to do what I tell you to do, or and and I mean this, we'll do what you want to do. Are we clear? I don't mean to humiliate you. If it has to be that way. Okay. It has to be that way. All right, Citizen Bacon. By the way, Citizen Sausage has been calling from Chicago every week. Have you heard him? I I think I have maybe one time. Okay. I just want you to know, Citizen Sausage, 
I'm not saying you should be threatened by him, but he's younger, more energetic, and he's willing to do the work for more less money than you're willing to do it. He's willing to do it more freer than you are. For more free. How does that make you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, the Windy City, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Speaking of Windy City, can you stop breathing into the? How many? How long? How long until? Just I, I said to you last Tuesday, just give me a number of times I have to ask you to stop breathing into the into the phone, and I'll, I'll just keep asking you. I'll hit that number. Let's get it out of the way. Just tell me how many times do I have to tell you or ask you politely not to breathe into the telephone? And I'll start asking, starting right now. Just give me a number. Do I have to ask you five more times, ten more times, a hundred more times? I'll do it right now. I'll ask you a hundred times to stop breathing into the telephone. And let's get it out of the way. Wouldn't it make more sense to do it when you need to rather than a whole bunch of times, like, before you need to? That doesn't really make any sense. Well, you know what doesn't make sense? A grown adult who keeps forgetting not to breathe into the phone. I mean, I mean, this is the big time bacon. You're on the David Feldman show. I know, but I still have an old antiquated phone. So, how has your life changed since you became a star on the David Feldman show? How is my well? I, I'm I'm poor. Well, that's good. Um, good. I like that. Uh, I mean, I, that's pretty much you know. Are you drinking more? Are you drinking more? Um, no. I mean, in winter, I... No, not right now. Okay. You know. All right. But, you know, because I get it. I have to get... I, you know, I have to get in shape because I have to... I'm going to... My daughter and I are going to spend a month on the Appalachian Trail in May, so... Oh. I'm going to be in shape for that. I get it. The, the Mark Sanford euphemism. <laughs> Well, I don't think he said it was with his daughter. Well, I'm trying to figure out what taking my daughter right. on the Appalachian Trail means. It's probably something, I don't know, like a, like you're meeting a younger Argentinian woman? Is that- no, no. No, no, no. No, I actually do have to get in better shape because, you know, so kick my butt. Yeah, but why would you? So wait a second. When are you going on the Appalachian Trail and how do I benefit from this? I don't know. It's going to be, you know, it should be the month of May. We did it last, uh, last summer well, before she you... went to college, so. Hang on. Be... Hang on, hang on. Did you run this by human resources first? You have to I... schedule a vacation. Are you taking a vacation or are you going to interview people along the Appalachian Trail? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully, I, I a mean... guy, a little kid who plays the banjo. I'm hoping that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, deliverance. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank right. you for explaining right. my jokes. You know, I get the sense you no longer want this show, and I'm hurt. But, because I was, I was, I didn't have anything to, it was actually because I had nothing to say, so all I could say is deliverance. Like, okay. I didn't have, like, a, so, you know. Am I not going to hear my from lack of. Am I am I not going to hear from you for for a month? Uh, in May, I don't know. I will be hiking. Will you have so. internet? I don't have internet 
where I am now. So, you know, it's absurd that I would have it. <sighs> My daughter will probably have, have, a, have, have the internet with her. I don't know. We try not to read Everyone else likes to have a, like, everyone uses an app, and now it's crazy, but... So like wait, wait, what do you tell? So who's going to replace you? You you have to get a sub. You just, just talking about some sausage guy. We can do sausage bacon. You know, I don't, I don't know. No, 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 citizen sausage. Or if we do the ice thing undercover, you can be yeah. David, undocumented citizen bacon. If we do that, and we get somebody who's well, not a citizen. I think you can go to any Chinese restaurant. Okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. But what do you... So what? I think you just... I think what you just said... Uh, spoke... I don't know. There was, some, there was some story about that. I don't know. What? That they're serving undocumented workers at a Chinese restaurant? <laughs> they're not... Not... I don't... I don't think they're serving undocumented workers. I think there are undocumented workers in some of the restaurants. But oh, and do you have a, do you have a problem with that? Hmm? Well, I, if people are being exploited, it's no good. Ah, okay. I, I think oftentimes that's the problem. Okay. Is, you know when you know you know the boss you know the, the people who hire. Undocumented workers exploit them because the undocumented workers don't have a place to, uh, to, to, to if they, if, you know, if there's something that's wrong, they're, you know, they get paid less money, they don't get health care, and then if, if, if the boss is doing stuff, making them work longer hours or doing other things that they shouldn't be doing, the workers have no place to go because they're scared to death that they'll be kicked out of the country. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the things are the way that they are. Okay. The people who are working in all those, uh, but slaughter freaking plants, all those meat processing plants, we know that they're all pretty much undocumented workers who are just being exploited more and more. You've been talking to Citizen Sausage about unionizing here at the David Feldman Show, haven't you? About the what? You and Citizen Sausage have been communicating and have been talking about unionizing. Oh. There's a vote. There's a vote. I'm going to get a summons from the NL... NL National Labor Relations Board. I'm gonna have to hold a vote here. Is that what's well, going on? Yeah, it's uh, I. It's not a right to work state. I don't think. You know that so I, I think we're allowed to. I like the idea of unions in principle. Okay. But I, I like to think that my my workers are family, and I provide enough for you guys that you don't need. Look, a livable wage and be able to Uncle Joe, huh? Uncle Joe, come on, Uncle Joe, come on. Yeah, I'm Uncle Joe Biden, and and yeah, I like to come think on. I like to think that the people who work on my show are family, and I think it taints the relationship here if you are able to feed your family and want to go home after a twelve hour day. I don't even think uh, we, I can feed my, I can't even feed my family, uh, you know, from... Uh, I'm hurt. I'm, see now, see? See how money ruins relationships? When you bring money into it, can you see now how my feelings are hurt? I, I love you, Bacon. You're, you're part of the David Feldman Show family, 
And, and now you're telling me that that I'm hurting you. I mean, this stuff. I don't know. This is join, what this is what unions. <laughs> this is what unions do. Why? Why would you want to disrupt this great thing that we have going? Well, it's the power dynamic. The uh, you know the the. You have all the power in this. So the only way is that the workers need to come together to sort of try to co-balance off the power that uh, that you have. Why are you being mean and cruel and divisive? Well, no, there's no uh, there's no money in this. I can't feed my family. You know, I, I'm okay with that. It's not well, bother. It sure. doesn't. Bo- it doesn't bother me. So why do you living, have? Uh, you know, living up. You know. Uh, High up in the sky in New York City, you know, uh, off the labor of uh, all the workers, you know. You know, uh, you know, and you, I think you remind me of Bernie, and I think Pete, Mayor Pete, called him out during Wednesday's debate, where he said, "Why do you think you have all the answers? You're not the only one who cares. You're not the only one who has the right answer," and. If somebody disagrees with you, Bacon, that doesn't mean they're evil. Multiple choice. Yeah. It's 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 e all of the above. I would like a choice. I'd like a choice to pay you a livable wage, or choose to watch you and your family suffer from malnutrition, have your son not really grow, have him be short because he's being deprived the necessary proteins during his childhood. I want that choice, and I think I'm. I think I'm smart enough to make those decisions by myself. Without the government, why you would choose the second one? Well, because then I get to keep more money. Okay, then you get all the stuff. Yeah, I did. Then I get, and I want that. I want that choice. I think the American people are smart enough to decide for themselves, not have the government dictate whether or not I pay you. A livable wage, or or or, being, or the government forcing me to. Oh yeah, that's Bloomberg's thing. Bloomberg doesn't. He didn't. He doesn't want. What didn't he fight against the minimum wage or something? Yeah. No, no reason for a minimum wage. Why? Well, just let the market settle that out. I want the choice not to pay you. Right. I think no. I'm smart enough. I think the American people. I figured it out. You want me to cover ice. You yeah, you just need to have people who are already detained who can work for pay, you know, because the prisoners in jails, you know, often have to work and they get paid maybe like a penny, a couple penny, you know. Yeah, you're on to me. Yeah. And then so then you can hire the people to who are already detained to then you can pay them almost nothing and then they're already in there. They'll have all the information. You got it, pal. All right. Yeah. Me on the outside, no good. Yeah. I, I, I think, in all seriousness, I want you to cover ice. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm into that, totally. Good. Without a doubt. Good. Yeah. All right. Clipping letter one. Okay, so this is a lady who I think she started a chapter of something called Indivisible. Um, she's going to talk all about it. I met her... I think she was outside a peak event, but she was very interesting. I think she asked him a question, if I remember correctly. So she's going to talk all about the indivisible and about influencing our local, using local pressure to influence our Congress, Congress people, local stuff like that. She's here. pretty cool. Okay, here we go. 
Yeah, this is David Bacon with the David Feldman Show, and I'm in Dover, New Hampshire for the uh, Andrew Yang event. Uh, it's January 11th. There was a woman in the audience who got to ask a question, and I think she's from Indivisible, New Hampshire, but I'll let her talk all about that. And if you want to say your name, that would be that's Sure, fine. yeah. My name is Linda Rhodes. Uh, Indivisible, New Hampshire is uh, allied with the National Indivisible Organization, which, if you haven't heard about it, was started right after Trump was elected. Oh, okay. Uh, it was started by three congressional staff who asked the question, uh, how did the Tea Party get so much power? Right. And they thought about how to influence Congress and oppose the Trump administration. Right. And they came up with a very basic idea. They put out something called the Indivisible Guide, okay. which is basically you need to put local pressure on your local government. Your two House reps and your, your two senators and your one House rep. Right. And you need to show up at their town halls. You need to make yourself heard. Right. You need to be loud. You need to do a lot of demonstrations and tell uh, the progressive people have not done that. Right. The Tea Party right. has done that All well. All politics are local. We didn't do that as well exactly. as we should. Exactly. So they basically said, start a local group and make that happen in your community. Nice. So I started a local group and we've Good made that you. happen in our community. Awesome. <laughs> and so is there a specific, like, um, tenants of the organization specifically or just... Every, every local group decides what they want to focus on. Okay. And what we realized very early on is that we had four Democratic representatives in Washington. We right. had two Democratic senators, and both our House members were right. Democrats. New so, Hampshire. From New Hampshire. Right, right, right. So our whole New Hampshire legislature, however, was completely red, exactly. including the governor. So we decided to start working on local politics. And right. we very quickly realized that voter suppression in New Hampshire was the biggest issue that we had to work on. Right, because Trump won. Trump won by twenty-eight hundred votes. I no, think. he didn't win. Oh. He didn't win. Oh. Okay. Hillary, Hillary won by a very small oh. margin. Yes, Hillary won by twenty-eight hundred right. over Trump, right. and there were fifty-four hundred out-of-state voters who voted in our election. But there's no stat on how many of them were college students versus, say, military or something like that. So then something well, happened in our yeah. They they made up a whole story that they were busing voters in. Right, right, it was right. all garbage. Right. So we decided that we had people that were interested in climate change and education reform, and and we decided none of those things could happen unless we reversed the voter suppression. Right. Because if the Republicans were able to cheat, basically, right. by gerrymandering and by passing laws that made it more difficult for people to vote, right. then we, we would lose everything. The first one was, I think, the license that now I have to show, which I didn't have to show. Yeah, a actually, ago. that was the second one. The first okay. one was, was called SB3, and it was it was basically just making it much more complicated for students to vote. Okay. They didn't say that it was to first. do that, right. but it, that, was the, what, that was the result. Right. They have to declare a residency or something. That went into the courts, and it's still in the courts, and right. they're still fighting about right, it. Right, right, right. Right. Which, then then which, they then they did the license plate okay, one, so okay. which which redefined what, what who is a resident, right? And they also made it very complicated. So students got confused, and they just said, "Okay, we're not doing it. We're not voting because it's too confusing." Right, right, right. So because Maggie Hassan won by only a thousand votes, right. and we in Durham, New Hampshire registered 3,000 students that year. Mm -hmm. Basically, the students were who elected Maggie Hassan. Exactly. So the Republicans knew that if they went after the students, they could really they right. could really make a difference. Right. Plus, they gerrymandered the state ter right. terrifically. And so we went after those, and we, we worked very hard in the 2018 election, and we flipped 
the New Hampshire House, the New right. Hampshire Senate, and the New Hampshire Executive Council right. blue. It's amazing. With all the grassroots work we did, Indivisible knocked on 2,000 doors, we wrote 5,000 postcards, we nice. got a group of people together who had never previously been involved in politics, right. and people wanted to work. Right. And we got we got the work done, but we did the governorship. Right. So we, we reversed all these voter suppression bills by a by, by part, bipartisan votes. Right. And we all, also, the anti-gerrymandering bill passed with bipartisan support. Excellent. The governor beat the governor beat each other. Yes, exactly. So now we have to get rid of the governor. Right. So we're going to be doing the same kind of work in the 2020 election. Only our group has grown dramatically, and people are very involved, as you see from this event here. Right. And you know we've got a real momentum on our side. That's awesome. So if people are interested, it doesn't matter what state they're in. There are going to be some local chapters. They could look up some information. I assume exactly. Like, All you have to do is Google "indivisible guide," right, and you will find the guide. And there's a whole website, and there's a map on there, and you can put your zip code in, and you can find the organizations that are working in this way in your community. And there, I think there are 6,000 indivisible groups all across right. the country. So, hey, listeners, get involved locally. That's how it's going to make the big change. Yeah, the big difference. And, and all politics is local. Exactly. But if I think Andrew Nag made the point that the federal government can't do a lot of, about voter suppression. It is a state-by-state state right, 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 issue. We right. know that Stacey Abrams is working on it in Georgia. We know right. that they're working on They're trying to purge a whole bunch of voters off the rolls in yeah. Wisconsin. We got, in Florida, we got more people to vote because felons got back their right, right to vote. They, and then the Republicans made it so they had to pay all kinds of fines yes. in order to... So the voter suppression work the Republicans are doing is nationwide. It's right. very insidious. It's very under the radar. If you get involved in your local communities, you'll find out about it and get on board. Because there's we can't win anywhere if we don't win the voter suppression fight. Right. I think that's very, very true. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks for all you do. Yes. Yeah, get involved. Yes. Get involved. Thank, thank you. Great job. Great job. Hey, here's a trivia question. Okay. You said all politics is local. Then she said all politics is local. Did you notice that? Um, well, it's hard for me to hear the tape through my phone. So I oh. can't always follow along very well. But No wonder you're so happy. When? You don't have to... Um, Okay, I have to yeah. yeah, there you go. Who okay. originally said all politics is local? Oh, um, I don't know. Ah. I think a lot of my listeners know. Should we have a contest? Sure. Should we have a contest? Sure they... Well, I, I think it's a I think it's a well established thing, but I'm I'm so bad with names. I'm not good at like that kind of stuff. Okay. But um but, you know, I, 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 maybe we'll have a contest. I don't... But people can look that up. People can Google it. Yeah, see, that's why I can't do that. I can't just Google things. So I, oh. I have to only, I only have what's in my head. So. Yeah. Oh. Well, we're having a contest, and it's on the honor system. If you know who originally said all politics is local, contact the David Feldman Show. And if you get it right, David Bacon will come to your home and interview you. I don't know about that. Yes. I mean, if you're paying for the transportation, yeah. What? What? We're family, Bacon. You're part of the David Feldman Show family. Why do you have to bring money into this? That kind of makes, that kind of poisons the relationship. Well, it seems like, you know, I don't know why I, that would be, you know, I'd be stuck with that. 
sort of thing. Well, let me ask you something. Can you sure. see how a big star like me would be afraid that my friends and, and, the, and the women in my life may only want to be around me because because I'm rich? Can you see how I question people's motives? Being as rich as I am, can you see that I, I kind of question this woman who's sleeping with me, the woman lining up, all the women lining up outside the studio to have a relationship with me? Do you... Can you understand how I'm worried that maybe they're doing it because I have money? But does that bother you? Yes, because I think prostitutes, they are prostitutes, these women who are lining up. I think, oh, I think like music, sex should be free. All music sure. should be free and all sex. And, and, no. And, and, and you work for me, right? And, and sometimes I worry that the only reason you're coming in each day to the office and working for me is that you're doing it for the money. And and that means oh. you don't it means you don't love me. Because you're doing it for money and that hurts. Well it's the money zero. Yeah. That, I, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Of course. This is so much fun. All right. Uh, Clipping letter two. All right. So this is a real, this is a short one. This was at a Deval Patrick event. The great, the great Deval Patrick (laughs) from Bain Capital, former governor of Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yes. Um, So this is a guy, he's from, it's a group called Keep It in the Ground. And he was obviously very new at this. But, he had like this is to get like, rid of zombies, right? That dead people should just stay on the ground and not come up, right? Yes, it's a, it's a, I think it's an anti-Michael Jackson thriller uh, group. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. They were opposed to uh, Vincent Price and all that stuff. Yes. Um, so I guess, so there's like, I think there's like three principles to this thing. and I don't remember what they are. Patrick, like, goes, like, well, I kind of believe in two of them or something. Like, like he doesn't believe in all three. There's one he disagrees with. But then he goes ahead and signs it anyway. And it's like, well, wait, you're signing something that says you're agreeing with the three, but you're actually telling us you don't agree with one of them as you sign it. So your signature is worthless. He's signing a petition to keep it in the ground. Yes, but he's... As he's signing it, he didn't agree. So I just talked to the guy, you know, after about that little interaction. And, so and keep it in thing. the ground is a movement for Americans to go pound sand, right? Pound sand? Yes. Um, you should go pound sand. Have you never heard that expression? I don't think hmm? I I know about the ostrich that hides their head in the sand. Nobody's ever told you to pound sand? Pound sand. I know if you hit it with lightning, you can get glass. Yeah, all right. It's, it's you know, it's just a a, a term of endearment. No, clearly not. Go pound sand. <laughs> all right. Clipping letter two. 
Hey, this is David Bacon with the David Feldman Show. It's uh, January 11th. I'm at the uh, Open Democracy Action. It was with a Deval Patrick. And there was a gentleman here who got him to sign a pledge. And it says, uh, I pledge not to take contributions over $200 from oil, gas, the coal industry, executives, lobbyists, or PACs, and instead prioritize the health of our families, climate, and democracy over fossil fuel in- industri- industry profits. It was kind of strange because he, like, he kind of said he went. He was good with some of it, but not others. But then still was willing to sign it. So I'm confused by that because he acted like he would still take, you know, the two hundred dollars from like people who work there, but still signed it to say like I won't. So I don't. I don't know what what the deal is. But so can you tell me a little bit about your organization, maybe your name and that kind of stuff? My name is Chris Potter. Yep. I'm with Rights and Democracy, which is a grassroots organization in New Hampshire and Vermont. Oh, awesome. And we're running a Keep It in the Ground campaign. Right, um, right. Asking um, candidates to uh, support policies that will protect our climate right. um, and transition away from fossil fuels. Right. Have you got many candidates to sign the pledge? Every candidate on the Democratic side has now signed this pledge. Deval Patrick was the last. That's amazing. Did you personally get those or just no. different people <laughs> from your group? Nope. I'm a latecomer to this. Oh, okay. Yep. Awesome. And so how long has your organization been around? I'm not sure how long rights and democracy has been around. I'm a recent addition to the state. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, the cause that you're doing it certainly seems good. We do need to keep the oil in the ground, you know, especially like, you know, all the plastic. And yet they're building more of those, like, giant, I think Pennsylvania's building a huge, right. like, another plastic making thing. And there was just, oh, it's just exponentially kind of growing how much we're still doing. And obviously plastic, we need oil for. But, so it's good you guys are running around uh, getting signatures and stuff. So I commend you and, and thank you. Yeah, you, thank you, you. What was your name again? Chris Potter. Excellent. Good luck. Thank you. Go pound sand. That was great, Bacon. Go pound sand. That was great. Hello? Okay. What? Yes. I. You like to say things that I don't know the reference, and then, I don't know, it makes you feel superior or something. I, but uh, well, whatever. It's a term of endearment. You should walk around the house, and when your kids come home with a report card, you should look up. And say, go pound sand. Yeah, I don't know. I think that might, maybe that's from your generation or something. My generation. Okay. Yeah, by the who? Yes. By, yeah, by, by, by the who? I give up. Huh? I give up who? <laughs> yes, but guess who? No. Okay. Uh, clipping Letour 3. Okay, so this is um, uh, uh, Paulana Belkin, who works for the ACLU, and this was at a Cory Booker event, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Paulana asked a question to Cory, and then and then uh, I don't have any, I don't, I have that, but I didn't, I'm not playing that part. So then I interviewed uh, Paulana, and this is about, I guess, New Hampshire. On January 1st, New Hampshire added a third, so you can, when you go to get your driver's license, you can, you can declare male, female, or I, I guess you can put an X or something, and it's like a, it's like a third classification. So, Polana's just gonna talk about that, about the work that she does for the ACLU and that kind of stuff. Okay. Clipping letter three. 
Yeah. yeah, this is David Bacon with the David Feldman Podcast. I'm at uh, the University of New Hampshire. It's the Franklin Pierce School of Law at an ACLU New Hampshire uh, event with Cory Booker. And um, there was a question from the audience, and I uh, I didn't understand some of the stuff you were talking about. So if you could just tell me more, that would be great. And say your name, too. Absolutely. So my name is Polana Belkin. I, I work with the ACLU of New oh, Hampshire. Yes, that's why. She, uh, that was uh, why she knew she that I had right And I, I was like, oh, oh. She I goes, now it's t- your Time or something like yeah. that. I, yeah. yeah, so this, uh, it was last le- legislative session, uh, New Hampshire passed a bill that allows for a third gender marker, which is defined as neither male nor nor female. Okay. And it's represented with an X, so it's right. It's an inclusive category where it's just, if you don't identify you don't... within that binary, right. this is for you. Wow. Um, and it went into effect yesterday, but the DMV was closed. So this morning I went with someone around 9 in the morning, and they were the first person in the state to get it done. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and it was really, I mean, just the sheer joy. Um, right. They had always, they have this line where they were like, I have an F on my on my license, and it stands for uh, fraudulent. Right, 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 right. Um, right. So, yeah, and now they have an X, and it's it's pretty cool. We were the, I think we're the 12th or the 13th state to do it, and there's been right. three Right, that's what I was just going to ask, Matt. Oh, wow. So, yeah, um, right. Massachusetts, we beat Massachusetts to it, which right. is great. That's very cool. Um, right. And I think, like, Illinois and Hawaii were afterwards. Right. Maybe. But it's basically a new thing, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, the first state to do it was... Uh, I don't no. know. Off the yeah. top of my head. It's okay. I think it was Maine. Right, right, right. Um, oh, wow. But, yeah, so now... Like Maine does it, Vermont does it, New Hampshire. I think all of New England right, uh, right. Uh, accommodates it now, which is really great. Um, but so a lot of people have been going around asking these presidential candidates, like, would you support that? At right. The, uh, well, it's the first time I've, I've heard the question. Yeah. I've been to a lot of these events. But. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, there were passport changes made in 2010. Um, before 2010, it was, like, impossible to amend a passport, even just for a binary transition. It was really difficult. Oh, right, right, right. So. Sure. Um, so, you know, like that power, I mean, it could be legislated, but the power really comes from the president to say, you know, like my secretary of state is going to work on this and right. implement these changes. Right. So there are, pe- there are people now in these 16 states where they have a state ID that says X and then their passport still reflects still says, an M or an M. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so that does need to be changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, it will just take time. It'll just take time. Right. It'll take time because right. it's like, not only is it passports, it's like eventually like green cards will need to get there. Social right. se- security, it... Our gender marker isn't printed on it, but it's tied in with all the information. Right. So we march towards progress. Sometimes there's setbacks, progress. but we continue to we move forward going. in we all sorts going. of ways. Yeah, it's, it's super awesome. Excellent. Well, I, I, is is that the majority of the work that you do for the ACU? Is 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 that uh, area, or do you do a lot of different stuff? I don't even know how the ACU works per se. It's, yeah. No. So ACLU. I um, I am the trans justice organizer. Okay. Um, so you know I am a, a community organizer, um, but my my title sort of typically an organizer just works with communities um, uh-huh. and you know kind of like gets them to rally together for things but I do a lot of like policy work and whatnot too um, so last year this was one of the main things I was working for whether it's getting people to show up and share their stories because right. it's like did you know right, right, they're right, working right, on right. it and most people right. are like no yeah exactly and then they're and then they say 
well, I can't tell my story. I'm like, no, you have a story. You, you have, have to tell really, it. You have a really great story, right. and I can help you work through it. Right, right, right. And then sometimes it's calling the legislators and being sure. It's like, so you saw the committee hearing, you know, how do you think your vote's going to go? Right, 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 right. Let right, me right. see if I can, you know, quell any of your fears and whatnot. Right, right, right. Um, but some of it's just, ed, you know, like, aside so from So it's the like a lobbying kind of thing. But yeah, for, sometimes. For, but for, uh, but, but really, for a... For, yeah, but for, like, an idea, not, like, a, obviously, yes. like, a company, you know. It's, yeah. Correct, right. correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's cool. You know, we, we made some advances in healthcare last year, which was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Just literally adding it to non-discrimination statutes. It, it, it wasn't there in a lot of healthcare and insurance stuff yet. Right, right, right. Um, and now it is, and that's really great. Uh, the year before this, so it was 2018, non-discrimination protections on gender identity were finally legislated in New Hampshire. Right. Uh, which was, like, monumental and really set so many different projects into motion like now that we've acknowledged yeah. this is real that you know like this is going on in our state because a lot of people were just saying like there aren't any transgenders here right, it's right, like right. no there are transgender people here. sure of course right um yeah, and, you know, some of it's this community, ed- ed- the educational events, too. Like, you kind of get wind, like, um, maybe there's something terrible going on at a school with, like, trans students. Right. And being able to show up in that community and provide educational events, whether it's, like, a panel for them to go to. Right. Um, and just learn, like, this is what the transgender experience is, or getting people ready for, like, a school board hearing. Right. Or, and is there a lot of, like, um, I don't know, well, is there a lot of discrimination? Do you find a lot of discrimination? people finding a lot of discrimination in this regard in our state compared with some of the others? I know some of the others you you hear like terrible things all, all, you know more often but I haven't heard so much about New Hampshire but I'm not in that you know my eyes aren't always looking yeah. at that you know specifically. like 10 years ago it was a pretty bad scene um, right, right, right. you know like people I mean there were people during the non-discrimination campaign that were sharing stories about pretty much like they're, they're trying to order food at a restaurant and getting and just being denied or and just being told to get out oh just being even rude, or, just rude and just people just being rude very to aggressively rude oh, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's people that lost their jobs uh, but in the last couple of years it's been getting pretty good and some of it I mean it was a mix of I think the non-discrimination campaign did a lot Um, not only not only was it that a law was passed but that law was accompanied by like some of these rallies had hundreds of people you know we had like the business and industry association came out swinging for that bill saying oh wow you know like especially in a state like New Hampshire we have full employment Um, yes exactly right so why would you why would you take some of the candidates out of the running and not defend them you know right 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 right, Um, right so but yeah like the stories from 10 years ago are not very pretty and right. that campaign just accelerated the social change so yeah. much and really you know it's like every couple days most newspapers were writing some story about that bill right, right whether right, it was right. an event happened in support of it or right at least mentioning it yeah getting a word out there more and more yeah right. no I mean and it's like all elements of LGBTQ rights, like it's getting more widely accepted, and in New Hampshire, it's pretty decent right now. Right, right. Um, you know, there's some little stuff to work on, but sure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Totally. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Great job, Bacon. Great job. Well, thank you. Great job. Well, this is our last clipping. It's letter four. Yes. So this is going to be a few kids, well, from Temple. Uh, this is at a Michael Bennett event. Now, when you say Temple, uh-huh. you to- you're talking about the university, or are you talking about a yeah, synagogue? 
or the Univer- the, the side yep. of your head? That's I'm not ha- the one with the bump in my head. Um, it's a Kevin dent. University. It's a dent that I have in my head. <laughs> not a bump. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I never the- knew I had a dent in my head until I did this show. From the, yeah. Well, I don't think a- I have a dent in my head. It's just the angle of the thing. It's just a thank a you. Deal. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Nothing to worry about. As long as it's symmetrical, you know, as long as you're the same on the other side, I think is what you want. Yeah. Now you have a degree. Like, you have a degree in phrenology from Heidelberg University, as I understand it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh no, I don't. I used to have one of those heads, you know, that have the things that have the different sections. I don't think I have one of those anymore. Who gave you that head? I'm sure I bought Did it your girlfriend give you the head? Yeah, I, I... Did she give you... No, I Um, yeah, I was trying to think. Uh, go she, oh, oh you uh, gave head... You gave the head to somebody else. Who'd you give the head to? <laughs> what? I'm sure I... No, I, I believe I actually sold the head. <laughs> Maybe it's even worse. Ah, go pound sand. Um, I love having you on the show. Go pound sand. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you. See, the thing is, I can't look that up. I, that's 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 what you 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 get me because I can't. I you know walk into your, just look at look it up on their phone. I, I just I can't do that. So. Walk into your home, open the door, and say, "Honey, I'm home." And then when she walks down the stairs, go go pound sand. All right. Is that a frustration? What? Yeah. Is that like touching the sand? Is that because you're frustrated? I don't know. Okay. Go pound sand. I don't know. Clipping letter four. What What do you have here? Well, I just told you. I wasn't paying attention. No, you were. You were. You were cracking wise over it. Oh, I'm sorry. What temple did they go oh, to? Oh, temple. You know? Right. Right. I'm Come tired. on. What? You're getting, I mean... What? What? Well, it's time for know, me to be replaced by... Go, go pound sand. Ah, oh, thank you. Here we go. David Baker with the David Feldman Show, and I'm uh, Feb- uh, February 8th down in Manchester, and this was a Michael Bennett event, and this was the largest Michael Bennett event, but he had that uh, Carvel guy coming ahead of time, so that, I think, was the big draw. The last event that was here was the biggest I'd seen him earlier, but there were chairs and stuff, so it was crazy. Anyway, so there's, I guess, a whole bunch of different students here. There's some from uh, McGraw, Hill, something like that, and then here there's a bunch of, there's a few Temple people. So, uh, how long are you guys, girls, up here for? Uh, how, what's, uh, what's the deal and all that stuff? So, we're here for five days to um, just to cover the primaries to like interview and to interview the candidate uh, candidates and to see how their supporters react to their campaign and we're here to interview them and to like see more information about the different candidates and are you, are you having any luck interviewing the candidates so far well so far did you just get here or? no we've been here for like yesterday yeah, we got you came yesterday okay yesterday. so i mean you picked you know like crazy hectic time so it will yes. be harder like this week than it would have been say like last week or the week before just like you know as a thing but uh so how many who have you seen who do you want to see um this morning we saw andrew yang at his town hall right we went to that it was really interesting we got to see a mix of different people you know supporters of his and 
And Do you know what town that was? It was in Windham. Okay, and how, how did the size of the campaign or the uh, event uh, compare to this? Um, it was a little smaller. It was in a high school or middle school gym. Right. Um, so there were less people there, but I would say they were just as or more so even like enthusiastic toward everything. And how would, you, how would you say, would you describe the crowd? Young, old? Uh, At the Yang event? Yeah. It was definitely mixed. There were even some children there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That came to Wearing mask, hats and mask yeah. stuff. Yeah, so I went to see Mr. Weld today at his thing. Bill Weld. Bill Weld. Oh, a yeah. Republican Bill. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What'd you think of him? Um, it was an interesting. It was a smaller uh, yeah. venue than this. A lot of older people were there. Right. But, um, was it at a bar? It wasn't a bar, no. It oh, okay. Was, <laughs> it was a, a big tinier. <laughs> it was tinier. Um, this is definitely have, has a bigger vibe, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's the draw from uh, from Carvel. Is, yeah. It's what's bringing everyone here totally. today. Yeah, yeah. And who do you want to see tomorrow and stuff and the next day? Yeah. I, I would like to see Warren and Yang. Yeah. Because um, I, didn't went, I went to... Um, well, the Bill Weld thing, yeah, I, yeah. I went to Weld. He's smart as heck. He is smart, yeah, but the thing yeah. is, the question, the, the way that he answered, he just like... He answer like how uh, Michael uh, Bennett just did, right, just right. go around it. Right. Which like if right. I'm like impressed, like oppressed, yeah. I would like an answer, not like how you like go around. like I don't want you to go around it. I just want a straight answer. Right. Like, well, it was interesting to see how he used your question at the very end, like because they're they're that's I was trying to like encourage you to just you you gotta freaking because you don't know if there's gonna be a point or not, and because it was coming towards the end of the thing, all he did was get it, and then as soon as he gets to that applause thing, it's over. It doesn't matter. He's done. Even if he was thinking of taking more questions and yeah. stuff like that. But um, so you're a you're a journalism student. You are journalism. journalism communication studies. Communication. So what do you want to do with this? You want? Are you also a journalism student? They, they, yeah. Think about he's poli sci. Oh, yeah. awesome. So what? How is this gonna? Uh, what kind of journalism do you want to do? Do you want to do like? Do you see these people who are? It's so insane the hours that they're doing like this stuff. No. What kind of journalism do you guys um, want to do? So I'm interested in reporting. I'd love to become a political commentator. Yeah. So um, this event was so awesome to talk to other fellow journalists and they give right. hints and right. it's a lot of work. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's my civic duty right. to like right. protect journalism. Right. right. How's it going, buddy? Good to see you. Um, I'm interested in broadcast journalism, which is like, I'm into like produ- production side, so I would like to eventually produce my own show and oh, have yeah. my own show. Right, right, right. So um, hopefully I can do that in the future. Right, right, right. And how about you? Since I'm comp studies, my minor is poli sci, so I'm more interested for this trip of ours to see how the campaigns are working and how the people are actually interacting with each other regarding the candidates. Right. As well That's as the communication the part of your yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like sociology kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, that's interesting. So what have you learned? What have you noticed? What it's been kind of... really interesting. We went to some watch parties last night, and it was really... We went to... Oh, to watch the debate thing, because yeah. that was happening yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, we went to Pete's first, Pete Buttigieg's, and that one was really interesting because a lot of... Was the he there? Parents, no, he no. was not there. He was not there at the watch no. party for him no. in New Hampshire. No. But he was in New Hampshire. He was, he was probably watching it with some, like, uh, money people, I would bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
No, it was really interesting to see all the people interact with each other. The demographic was much older than I thought it would be. Which oh, I thought he, he does not get kids. Yeah, there yeah, was yeah, yeah. like oh, no yeah. young people there. Right. And then also it was interesting to see the people interact with each other because a lot of people came from out of state just oh, yeah. to experience this for the weekend. And right, get, right, right. You know, understand who they want to vote for in the future because a lot of them were Biden supporters originally. Right. And now that with the Iowa results, they're rethinking their decision and they think that Pete has, you know, a different that's yeah, because Pete's a moderate, and Pete is such a, I mean, he wants to be like that kind yeah, of person exactly. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Who are you uh, favoring? If you, but you don't have to say it, so I do. Um, what, what state? You guys are in Pennsylvania, but are you from there originally or no? No, I'm from New Jersey. So are you going to vote where? New Jersey or Pennsylvania? New Jersey. You'll vote New Jersey. And when do you guys, do, are you in Super Tuesday? Or I don't no, even know. our primaries Way later. are in June, so it's really late by then. Right. So and when is the Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania is the end of April. That one might be more important. Yeah, Why don't you vote there? Is it too complex to... Uh... I don't live on campus. I commute from New Jersey. Oh, because yeah. it's so close. Because Temple's Philadelphia yeah. and it's right across the... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would love to. Though. Right. Awesome. Uh, are you a student, too? No, I just Oh. Oh, you're Awesome stuff. Hey, if you want to... Well, I don't know. I guess we lost one of the people. I was going to say, if you want to say your name, you know... I'm Natalie Shimento. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you go. David Bacon. Fantastic. Yeah, there you go. Go pound yeah, sand, baby. Go pound sand. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. All right, David Bacon, you have an email address, don't you? Yeah, I do. I got an email uh, yesterday, I think. Yeah? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, New Hampshire Public uh, Radio offering you a job? No, not New Hampshire Public Radio. No, uh, no, it's just it's a, it's a listener. Why don't you give that your email? Uh, David Citizen Bacon at gmail dot com. And is the citizen in quotation marks? No, it is not. David Citizen Bacon at gmail dot com. If yeah, you want to contact there. Citizen Bacon to tell him to. Back off and stop humiliating me on my show. Hey, coming up, although this is, it's not quite, I don't have the date yet, but it's going to be sometime in March, and obviously no one will care or can go from your show. But anyway, there's going to be an art exhibit up in the buoy up in Maine in Kittery, and I'm going to have a piece in it, and it's going to be related to following the primary, and there's going to be a little David Feldman little, your little name will be on the piece. What kind of piece? Art piece. It's an art piece? Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're an artist? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Does this involve you dressing up like Winnie the Pooh? This one does not involve me dressing up as Winnie the Pooh. No, no, no. It's, uh, it'll be like a, you know, a piece of art on the wall. Did you dress up work. like Winnie the Pooh? I have in the past, yes. Did you ever cover yourself in Pooh? I have not covered myself in poo, no. Have you ever worked with poo, artistically speaking? Um, mostly photographs. Of poo? I think just, I think just photographs. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah, from a, a previous time. This is from, yeah, years ago. Yeah, 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 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I've done a bunch of stuff. 
You know, my truck is decoupaged. You know, do a, I do a lot of balance work. Used to do a lot of balance work. Balance Different work. Stuff. Yeah, perform. It's like performance art, but I haven't done it in a while because the the little group I worked with, uh, well, one of the guys died, and it's just. You're talking about trapeze, like walking the high wire. No, 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 no. Balancing things, like objects, like in front of you, spinning things, you know, wow, there's like a lot of uh, noise, music in the background and stuff. Some of that's on my YouTube site, but, you know. Okay. David yeah, Bacon, stand the line for one second. Will do. Have you called in your backup becomes now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. Fly to Inco. Go, Inco. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad Pathetic Hump.